The following is a conversation with Brian Keating, experimental physicist at USASD and author of Losing the Nobel Prize and Into the Impossible. Plus, he's a host of the amazing podcast of the same name called Into the Impossible. And now a quick few second mention of each sponsor. Check them out in the description. It is in fact, the best way to support this podcast. First is Inside Tracker, a service I use to track my biological data. Second is Athletic Greens, the all-in-one nutrition drink I drink twice a day. Third is Magic Spoon, low-carb, keto-friendly cereal. Fourth is Masterclass, online courses from world-class experts. And fifth is Onnit, a nutrition, supplement, and fitness company. So the choice is health or wisdom. Choose wisely, my friends. And now onto the full ad reads. As always, no ads in the middle. I try to make these interesting, but if you skip them, please still check out our sponsors. I enjoy their stuff. Maybe you will too. This show is brought to you by Inside Tracker, a service I use to track my biological data. They have a bunch of plans, most of which include blood tests that give you a lot of information that you can then make decisions based on. They have algorithms. They're using your data. They're using machine learning to come up with the brilliant analysis of that data. This data includes blood data, DNA data, fitness tracker data. And the point is to use this data and the machine learning algorithms to provide you with a clear picture of what's going on inside you and to offer you science-backed recommendations for positive diet and lifestyle changes. Andrew Huberman, the great Andrew Huberman, host of the Huberman Lab podcast, talks a lot about it. David Sinclair, who has a new podcast out, talked a lot about it in my conversation with him. It's obvious that we should be making lifestyle decisions based on our personal data, not some generic uh, population data. For a limited time, you can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store if you go to insidetracker.com slash lex. That's insidetracker.com slash lex. This show is also brought to you by Athletic Greens and it's newly renamed AG1 Drink, which is an all-in-one daily drink to support better health and peak performance. It replaced the multivitamin for me and went far beyond that with 75 vitamins and minerals. It is the first thing I drink every day. I drink it twice a day now. I really enjoy it. It forms a nutritional base. First of all, it's delicious, but it also forms a nutritional base for all the um, dietary sort of wanderings that I do. So I'm currently eating carnivore, mostly carnivore, with very, very few exceptions, sometimes vegetables. Not that I'm allergic to the other stuff, it's just what makes me feel good. But you know, if you're not careful, you're not gonna get all the nutrition you need. Athletic Greens, got your back, got my back. Anyway, they'll give you one month supply of fish oil, which is another thing I take, when you sign up to athleticgreens.com slash lex. That's athleticgreens.com slash lex. This show is also brought to you by Magic Spoon the OG sponsor of this podcast, the delicious, the incredible, the low-carb keto-friendly cereal. It has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, only four net grams of carbs, and 140 calories in each serving. You can build your own box or get a variety pack with a bunch of flavors. You can go to the website, check out the flavors. It has cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, blueberry, cinnamon, I think it goes on, and they keep adding new ones. I don't know, for me, still, cocoa, is the best flavor, it's the flavor of champions, it's the one I go to. In this life, a man must choose, and that is the choice I have made. And it has brought to me much happiness without sacrificing the, knee, 
the nutritional sort of fortitude. Anyway, Magic Spoon have a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it, they refund it. Go to magicspoon.com slash Lex and use code Lex at checkout to save $5 off your order. That's magicspoon.com slash Lex and use code Lex. This show is also brought to you by Masterclass. $180 a year gets you an all-access pass to watch courses from the best people in the world in their respective disciplines. Exploration, Chris Hadfield, Neil deGrasse Tyson, you all know who Neil deGrasse Tyson is, Will Wright, the game designer, the guitarist, Carl Santana, Gary Kasparov, Daniel Negreanu, Neil Gaiman, Martin Scorsese, Tony Hawk, Jane Goodall, it just keeps going. And they keep adding new ones. Like I'm doing one on um, portrait photography currently. I've been interested in understanding how a single photograph can capture like an emotion, a deep, complicated emotion. That's so fascinating to me. The way you should learn whether you're a beginner or you're an expert, is you should listen to the masters of those arts. Anyway, get unlimited access to every masterclass and get 15% off an annual membership if you go to masterclass.com slash Lex. That's masterclass.com slash Lex for 15% off the annual membership at masterclass.com slash Lex. This episode is also brought to you by Onnit, nutrition, supplement, and fitness company. They make alpha brain, they make a ton of stuff, but Alpha Brain is probably my favorite. It's a nootropic that helps support memory, mental speed, and focus. Long stretches of deep work, so deep focus, where I'm sitting there in the silence of my mind, focusing on a difficult thinking task. Something that requires you think deeply and whatever thoughts that come into your mind and try to distract you, you slowly let them drift past. It's a kind of meditation I use Alpha Brain to help me when I know that it's going to be especially difficult. So I don't use it every day. I use it when I need that extra super rocket boost for a deep work session. It works. It helps me clear the mind and maintain focus. Anyway, go to lexfriedman.com slash onnit to get up to 10% off Alpha Brain. That's lexfriedman.com slash onnit. This is the Lex Friedman podcast, and here's my conversation with Brian. Keating. As an experimental physicist, what do you think is the most amazing or maybe the coolest measurement device you've ever worked with or humans have ever built? Maybe for now, let's exclude the uh, background imaging of cosmic extragalactic polarization instruments. Yeah, I'm slightly biased towards that yes. particular instrument, but- Talk uh, about that in a little bit. Yeah, but certainly the telescope to me is, is a lever that has literally moved the earth uh, throughout history. So the OG telescope? The OG telescope, yeah. The one invented not by Galileo, as most people think, but by this guy Hans Lippershey in, uh, in the Netherlands. And, you know, it was kind of interesting because in the 1600s, 1400s, 1600s, it was the beginning of movable type. And so people, for the first time in history, uh, had a standard by which they could appraise their eyesight. So looking at a printed word now, we just take it for granted, 12-point font, whatever, and that's what the eye charts are based on. They're just fixed height. But back then, there, were not, there was no way to adjust your eyesight if you didn't have uh, you know, perfect vision. And there was no way to even tell if you had perfect vision or not until the Gutenberg Bible and mo movable type. 
And at that time, people realized, hey, wait, I can't read this. You know, my priest or my, my friend over here, he can read it, she can read it. I can't read it. What's going on? And that's when, you know, these people in, in, in Venice and in the Netherlands saw that they could take this kind of, you know, glass material and hold it up and maybe put another piece of glass material and it would make it clearer. And what was so interesting is that nobody thought to take that exact same device, you know, two lenses and go like, hmm, let me go like this and look at that bright thing in the sky over there uh, until Galileo. So Galileo didn't invent it, but he did something kind of amazing. He improved on it by a factor of 10. So he 10X'd it, which is almost as good as going from zero to one as going from, you know, one to 10. And when he did that, he really transformed both how we look at the universe and think about it, but also who we are as a, as a species, because we're using tools not to get food faster or to, you know, preserve, you know, uh, our, 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 our legacy for, the, for future generations, but actually to in increase the benefit of, to the human mind. Somebody mentioned this idea that um, if humans weren't able to see the stars, maybe there was some, some kind of um, make above the atmosphere, which for the early humans made it impossible to see the stars, that we would never develop human civilization, or at least raising the question of how important is it to look up to the sky and wonder what's out there, yeah. as opposed to, um, maybe this is an over-romanticized notion, but like looking at the ground, it feels like a little bit too much focused on survival, not being eaten by a bear slash lion. If you look up to the stars, you start to wonder, what is my place in the universe? Do you, you think you think that's uh, modern humans romanticizing? I think it's a little romantic um, right. because they also took I the tried. same. <laughs> they took the same two lenses and they looked inward, right? They looked at bacteria. They looked at you know hairs, and the, in other words, they made the microscope. Yeah. And we're still doing that. And so you know, to have a telescope is it serves a dual purpose. It's it's not only a way of looking out; it's looking in but it's also looking back in time. In other words, you can see a microscope. You don't think, oh, I'm, I'm seeing this thing as it was, you know, one nanosecond ago, light travels one foot per nanosecond. Uh, I'm seeing it in a No, you don't think about it like that. But when you see something that's happening, you know, on Jupiter, the moon, Andromeda galaxy, you're seeing things, you know, back when Lucy was walking around the Serengeti Plains. And for that, I think that took then the knowledge of, you know, relativity and time travel and, and, and so forth. It took that before we could really say, oh, we, we really unlocked some cheat codes in the human brain. So I, I think that might be a little too much, but, but nevertheless, I mean, what's better than having a time machine? You know, it's like we can look back in time. We see things as they were, not as they are. And that allows us to do many things, including speculate about that. But one of the coolest things, I don't know if you're familiar with, so I'm a radio astronomer. I don't actually look through telescopes very often, uh, except, uh, you know, on rare occasions when I, when I take one out uh, to show the kids. But, um, but a radio telescope is even more sort of visceral. I mean, it's much less cool because you look at it and you're like, all right, it looks cool. It's kind of weird shaped thing. Looks like it belongs in sci-fi. It's going to blast, uh, you know, uh, the Death Star or whatever. But when you, um, when you realize that when you point a radio telescope at a distant object, if that object fills up what's called the beam, which is basically the uh, field of view of a radio telescope, it's called its beam. If you fill up the beam, and you put a resistor, just a simple absorbing piece of material at the focus of the radio telescope, that resistor will come to the exact same temperature as the object that's looking at, which is pretty amazing. It means you're actually remotely measuring, you're taking the temperature of Jupiter or whatever in, in, in effect. And so it's, it's, it's allowing you to basically teleport 
And there's no other science that you can really do that, right? If you're an archaeologist, you can't. Let me get into my, you know, my, my time machine and, and go back and see what was Lucy really like? You know, it's not possible. So this, the same thing happens. This is where I've learned about this from March of the Penguins. When the penguins huddle together, mm-hmm. they, uh, you know, the, the body temperature arrives to the same place. So you're, you're doing this remotely. This yeah. is the March of the Penguins, but remote. And we do it from Antarctica, too. So there are some penguins around when we do it. <laughs> Okay, excellent. You uh, mentioned Time Machine. I think in your book, uh, Losing the Nobel Prize, you talk about time machines. So let me ask you the question of, uh, uh, take us back in time. What happened at the beginning of our universe? Ah, okay. So usually people preface this by saying, I have a simple question. So, uh, you, know, so, 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 you know, what happened before the universe began? What happened? Brian so- Keating teaching me about comedy. <laughs> I have a simple question for you. Let's t- take two. I have a simple question. What happened at the beginning of our universe? There you go. All right, good. So when we think about what, what happened, it's more correct, it's more logical, it's more uh, practical to go back in time starting from today. So if you go back uh, 13.874 billion years from today, that's some day, right? I mean, you could translate it into some day, right? So on that day, something happened. Uh, earlier than than you know than the than the moment exactly now let's say we're talking around uh, uh, one o'clock um, so at some point during that day uh, the universe started to become a fusion reactor it started to fuse light elements and isotopes into heavier elements and isotopes of those heavier elements um, after that period of time you know going forward back closer to today less you know ten minutes earlier ten minutes earlier <clears throat> or, or later rather coming towards us today we know more and more about what the universe was like. And in fact, all the hydrogen, you know, to very good approximation in the water molecules in this bottle, almost all of them were produced during that first 20 minute period. So I would say, you know, the actual fusion and production of the lightest elements on the periodic table occurred in a time period shorter than the TV show, The Big Bang Theory. Well done, sir. You know, most of those light elements, besides hydrogen, aren't really used in your, you know, in your encountered, right? We don't encounter helium that often unless you go to a lot of birthday parties or pilot a blimp. Um, you don't need lithium, hopefully, uh, you know, but, but other than that, those are the kind of things that were produced during that moment. The question became, how did the heavier things like iron, carbon, nickel, how, we can get to that later. And I brought some samples uh, for us to, to discuss and how those came from a very different type of process called a different type of fusion reactor and a different type of process explosion as well called a supernova. However, if you go back to the beyond those first three minutes, we really have to say almost nothing because we are not capable, in other words, going backwards from the first three minutes, as famous Steven Weinberg uh, titled his book, um, we actually marks a point where ignorance takes over. In other words, we can't speculate on what happened three minutes before the preponderance of hydrogen was formed in our universe. We just don't know enough about that epoch. There are many people, most people, most practicing card-carrying cosmologists believe the universe began in what's called a singularity. Um, and we can certainly talk about that. Um, however, singularity is so far removed from anything we can ever hope to prove, hope to confront, or hope to observe with evidence, um, and really only occurs in two instantiations, the Big Bang and the core of a black hole, neither of which is observable. Um, and so for that reason, there are now flourishing alternatives that say you can actually for the first time ask the question, that day, you know, Tuesday, you know, in the, in the first you know, moments of the our universe, there was a Tuesday a week before that, <laughs> 24 hours time, seven days before that. That has a perfectly well understood meaning 
in models of cosmology promoted by some of the more eminent of cosmologists working today. When I was in grad school over 25 years ago, no one really considered anything besides that Big Bang, that there was a singularity. And people would have to say, as I said, we just don't know. Um, but they would say some future in, you know, incarnation of some experiment will tell us the answer. But now there are people that are saying there is an alternative to the Big Bang. And it's not really fringe science as it once was uh, 50, 80 years ago when these models, by, by the way, the first cosmology in history was not a singular universe. The first cosmology in history goes back to Akhenaten, Ra, and, and, and the temples of, of Egypt in, th in the third millennium BC. And in that, they talked about cyclical universes. So I always joke, you know, that guy, Akhenaten's court, you know, he'd have a pretty high H index right about now because <laughs> people have been using that cyclical model from Penrose to P Paul Steinhardt and Aegis and um, uh, right up until this very moment. Can you maybe explore the possible alternatives to uh, the Big Bang Theory? So there are many alternatives, um, starting with, so this, the singularity, quantum, cosmologically demanding singular uh, origin of the universe, that stands in contrast to these other models in which time does not have a beginning. Uh, it, it, if, and many of them feature cycles, at least one cycle, possibly infinite number of cycles, um, called by Sir Roger Penrose. And uh, they all have things in common, these alternatives, as does the dominant paradigm of cosmogenesis, which is inflation. Inflation is sort of, can be thought of as this uh, spark that ignites the hot Big Bang that I said we understood. So it's an earlier condition, but it's still not an initial condition. In physics, imagine, imagine I, I, I show you a grandfather clock or a pendulum swinging back and forth. You look away for a second, you know, I, you come into the room, pendulum swinging back and forth. Alex, tell me, where did it start? How, how many cycles is it going to make before the error? You can't answer that question without knowing the initial conditions in a very simple system, like a one-dimensional simple harmonic oscillator, like a pendulum. Think about understanding the whole universe without understanding the initial conditions. It's a tremendous lacuna, a gap that we have as scientists that we may not be able to, in the inflationary cosmology, um, determine the quantitative physical properties of the universe prior to what's called the inflationary epoch. So you're saying for the pendulum in that epoch, we can't, because uh, you can infer things about the pendulum before you showed up to the room in our current epoch, correct? Right, yeah, so if you look at it right now, but if I said, well, when will it stop oscillating? So that depends on how much energy it got initially, and you can measure its dissipation, its air resistance, you had infrared camera, you could see it's getting hotter maybe, and, and you could do some calculations. But to know the uh, two things in physics to solve a partial differential equation are the initial conditions and the boundary conditions. Boundary conditions, we're here on Earth, it has a gravitational field, it's not gonna excurs or you know make excursions you know wildly beyond the length of the pendulum. It's not, um, you know, it, it has simple properties. Um, so, but, and this is like, in other words, you can't tell me, you know, when did the solar system start orbiting in the way that it does now? In other words, when did the moon acquire the exact angular momentum that it has now? Um, now that's a pretty pedestrian example, but what I'm telling you is that the inflationary epoch purports and is successful at providing a lot of explanations for how the universe evolved after inflation took place and ended, but it says nothing about how it itself took place. And that's really what you're asking me. I mean, you don't really, look, what, what you care about like Big Bang nucleosynthesis and the elements got made and these fusion reactors and, and the whole universe was a fusion reactor. But like, don't you really care about what happened at the beginning of time, at the first moment of time? And the, the problem is we can't really answer that in the context of the Big Bang. 
We can answer that in the context of these alternatives. So you asked me about some of the alternatives. So one is Aeon theory, the conformal cyclic cosmology of Sir Roger Penrose. Another one that's that's um, it was was really popular in the 60s and 70s until the discovery of the primary component of my research field, the cosmic microwave background radiation, or CMB, the three Kelvin all-pervasive signal that uh, astronomers detected in 1965. That kind of spelled the death knell in some sense to the what was called the quasi-steady state universe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then there was another, um, uh, a model that kind of came out of that. You hear the word quasi, so it's not steady state. Steady state means always existed. That was a cosmology Einstein believed until Hubble showed him evidence for the expansion of the universe. Um, and most scientists believed in that for, you know, millennia, basically the universe was eternal, static, unchanging. Um, they couldn't believe that after Hubble. So they had to append onto it concatenate this uh, this new feature that it wasn't steady, it was quasi-steady. So the universe was making a certain amount of hydrogen every century in a given volume of space. And that amount of hydrogen that was produced was constant, but because it was producing more and more every century, as centuries pile up and the volume piles up, the universe could expand. And so that's how they developed. That's slowly. Very slowly. And it doesn't match observational evidence. So, that, But that is a, an alternative. By the way, did Einstein think the, the, the steady-state universe is infinite or finite? Do you know? Um, he, I, I would assume that he thought it was infinite because there was really, you know, if, if something had a no beginning in time, then it would be very unlikely we're in like the center of it or it's bounded or it has, in that case, a finite edge to it. I wonder what sense. he thought about infinity because that's such an uncomfortable thing. No, he has this silly joke. I'm sure you're familiar with his silly joke, right? What's that? His silly joke was that um, there are only two things that are infinite, um, the universe and human stupidity, and I'm not sure about the universe. So, Well, me saying I'm not aware of the joke is a good example of the joke. It's very meta. Okay, so... Uh, all right, so sorry, you were saying about quasi- All the uh, alternatives. Sta- uh, all the alternatives in the quasi-steady state. And the, and the most kind of promising, although I, I hate to say that, you know, people say like, what's well, your favorite mo-, you know, alternative, right? This is not investment advice. <laughs> Inflation is not transitory. It is quasi-permanent. Um, so a very prominent- oh, Sorry to interrupt. We're talking about cosmic inflation. So calm down, That's cryptocurrency right. folks. That's right. Although the first Nobel Prize, uh, and one of the first Nobel Prizes in economics was awarded for inflation, not of the cosmological kind. Uh, so most people don't know that inflation has already won a Nobel Prize. It's a good topic to work on if you want a Nobel Prize. It doesn't <laughs> That's matter right. the field. Exactly. It's time translation invariant. So when we look at um, the alternative that's called the bouncing or or cyclic cosmologies, these have serious virtues, um, according to some. (laughs) Uh, One of the virtues to me, just as a human, I'm just speaking, uh, you know, as a human, um, one of the founders of the new version of the um, uh, of the cyclic cosmology called uh, called the bouncing cosmology is Paul Steinhardt. He's the Einstein Professor of Natural Sciences at Princeton University. You may have heard of it. And he was one of the originators of what was called new inflation. In other words, he was one of the founding fathers of inflation, who now not only has no belief or support for inflation, he actively claims that inflation is Baroque, pernicious, dangerous, malevolent, not to science, not just to cosmology, but to society. So here's a man who created a theory that's captivated the world or universe of cosmologists, such as it is. It's not a huge universe, but there are more podcasters than cosmologists. Uh, some do both. But uh, but this this man created this this theory with, co- with collaborators, 
And now he's like, I joke, I'm like, Paul, you're denying paternity. <laughs> like you're, you're like a deadbeat dad. Now you're saying like inflation is, is bogus. And, and, but he doesn't just attack. See, this is what's very important about um, approaching things as an experimentalist. You got a lot of theorists on and that's wonderful. And I think that's a huge service. An experimentalist has to say no. He or she has to be confident to say like, I don't care if I prove you right or I prove your enemy wrong or whatever. We have to be like exterminators and nobody likes the exterminator until they need one, right? Or the garbage collectors, right? But it's vital that we be completely kind of unpersuaded by the beauty and the magnificence and the symmetry and the simplicity of some idea. Like inflation is a beautiful idea, but it also has consequences. And what Paul claims, I don't agree with him fully on this point, is that those consequences are dangerous because they lead to things like the multiverse, which is outside the purview of science. And in that sense, I can see support for what he does, but none of that detracts from my respect for a man. Um, uh, you know, imagine like, you know, Elon comes up with this like really great idea, you know, space. And then he's like, oh, actually, it's not, it's not going to work. And, you know, but like, here's this better idea. And he's like, SpaceX is not going to work, but he's now created an alternative to it. It's, it's extremely hard to do what Paul has done. Doesn't mean he's right. Doesn't mean I'm going to like have more and more attention paid to it because he's my friend or because I respect the idea or I respect the man um, and his colleague, Anna Aegis, who works really hard with him. But nevertheless, this has certain attractions to it. And what, um, what it, it does most foremost is that it removes the quantum gravity aspect from cosmology. So it takes away 50% of the motivation for a theory of quantum gravity. You, you've talked a lot about quantum gravity. Uh, you talk to people, uh, eminent people on the show. Always latent in those conversations is sort of the teleological expectation that there is a theory of everything. There is a theory of quantum gravity, but there's, there's no law that says we have to have a theory of quantum gravity. So that, that kind of uh, implicit expectation has to do ultimately with the inflationary theory, so in, in cosmic inflation. So is that at the core? So, okay, uh, maybe you can speak to what is uh, the negative impacts on society from uh, believing in, in cosmic inflation? So, you know, one of the more kind of robust predictions of inflation according to its other two patriarchs, you know, considered to be its patriarchs, Alan Guth at MIT and Andre Linde at Stanford, um, although he was in the USSR when he came up with these ideas, um, uh, uh, along with Paul Steinhardt, was that the uh, universe has to eventually get into a quantum state. Uh, it has to exist in, in this Hilbert space, and the Hilbert space has certain features, and those features are quantum mechanical, endowed with quantum mechanical properties. Um, and then it becomes very difficult to turn inflation off. So inflation can get started, but then it's it's like one of you know SpaceX rockets. It's hard to turn off a solid rocket booster, right? It continues the thrusting, and you need another mechanism to douse the flames of the inflationary expansion, which means that if inflation kicks off somewhere, it will kick off potentially everywhere at all times, including now, spawning an ever-increasing set of universes. Some will die stillborn. Some will continue and flourish. And this is known as the multiverse paradigm. It's a robust, seemingly robust consequence, not only of inflationary cosmology, but more and more we're seeing it in string theory as well. So that, that you know, sometimes two, you know, branches coming to the same conclusion is, is you know, taken as evidence for its reality. So one of the negative consequences is it creates phenomena that we can't, uh, that are outside the reach of experimental Science, yeah, or is it that the multiverse somehow 
has a philosophical negative effect on humanity. Like it makes us, um, maybe makes life seem more meaningless. Is that is, is that is that where he's getting at a little bit, or is is it not reaching that far? Well, no, I th I think those are both kind of perceptive. The answer is a little of both because, in one sense, it's meant kind of to explain this fine tuning problem that we find ourselves in a universe that's particularly facund that has features you know consistent with our existence, and how could we be otherwise? <laughs> you know, the sort of weak anthropic principle. Um, on the other hand, it. A theory that predicts everything, literally everything, um, can be said to predict nothing. Like if I say, Lex, you know, you've been working out, you, you look like, you, you know, yeah, you, you have been, yeah, that's great. Uh, you look like you're, you know, about uh, somewhere under 10,000 kilograms. Be like, all right, yeah, you're right, but that's horribly imprecise. So what good is that? That's meaningless. I don't contribute any what's called surprise or reduction in entropy or, or, or you know, reduction of your ignorance about the system or you know exactly how much you weigh. Um, so me telling you that tells you nothing. In this case, it's basically saying that we're living in a universe because the overwhelming odds of our existence um, dictate that we would exist. There has to be at least one place that we exist. But the problem is um, it's a manifestation of infinity. So humans, and, and I'm sure you know this from your, your work with, with AI and, and ML and everything else, um, that humans, as far as we know, really are the only entities capable of contemplating infinity but we do so very imperfectly, right? So if I say to you, like, what's bigger, the number of, you know, water molecules in, in this thing or the number of real numbers? Or if I say, what's bigger, the number of real numbers or rational numbers? They're all different classifications of the amount of infinities that there could be. Infinity to the infinity power. You know, we have kids someday, they'll tell you, I love you, infinity. You have to come back. I love you, infinity plus one, yeah. right? So, uh, but the human brain can't really contemplate infinity. Let me illustrate that. They say in the singularity, the universe it had an infinite temperature, right? So let me ask you a question. Is there anything that you can contemplate in the observe, you know, Einstein's little quip aside, that's infinite? Like a physical property, density, pressure, temperature, um, energy, that's infinite. And if you can think of such thing, I'd like to know it. But if you can, how does it go to infinity minus one? You know, the opposite direction I go with my kids. How does it go from like to half of infinity? Because that's still infinity. How did it cool down? How did it get more and more tenuous and rarefied? So now it's only infinity over two in terms of Pascal's. Less infinite, more infinite. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, that's one of the biggest troubling things to me about infinity is uh, you can't truly hold it inside our minds. It's a mathematical construct that doesn't, it feels like intuition fails. And But nevertheless, we use it nonchalantly and then yeah. use like physicists, they're incredible intuition machines. And then they'll play with this infinity as if they can play with it on the level of intuition right. as opposed to on the level of math. Yeah, you know, yeah, maybe something cyclical, you can imagine infinity just going around the same, um, kind of like a Mobius strip mm -hmm. situation. But then uh, the question then arises, how do you make it more or less infinite? Um, yeah, all of that intuition fails completely. Yeah. And I mean, how do you represent it in a computer, right? It's either some placeholder for infinity or it's one divided by a very, the smallest, you know, possible, um, you know, rat, real number that you can represent in the memory. Well, that's basically my undergraduate study in computer science is how to represent a floating point in a computer. I think I took 17 courses on this topic. It was very useful. <laughs> so I came to the right place. But, um, but you know, in, in terms of what a physicist will mean, and you're right. I mean, physicists will blithely nonchalantly subtract infinity, you know, renormalization and, and do things to get finite answers. And it's, it's, it's miraculous, but 
you know, at a certain point, you have to ask, well, where, what are the consequences for the real world? So one of them, you ask, you know, what, what's the problem? Does it make us more meaningless? They purport, many of the people that support it, like Andre Linde. In fact, Andre Linde says, you have a bias, you, Lex, me, Brian, you have a bias that you believe in a universe, but shouldn't you believe in a, in a multiverse? What, what evidence do you have that there's not? A, so he turns it around. Whereas Paul Steinhardt will say, no, if anything can happen, then there's no predictive power within the theory. Because you can always say, well, this value of the inflationary field did not predict, produce sufficient uh, gravitational wave en energy for us to detect it with BICEP or Simon's Observatory or whatever. But that doesn't mean that inflation didn't happen. And that's logically 100% correct. But it's like it's like kind of chewing, you know, Wonder Wonder Bread. You know, uh, I'm, I apologize if they're one of your sponsors, but, you know. <laughs> Wonderbread slash Lex.com. <laughs> Type in code Kleb, right? It's my Kleb. <laughs> it's my favorite Russian word. It's like, would you like a piece of Kleb? By the way, even that uh, that word Kleb, mm -hmm. which means bread in Russian, as you say it, and like you're jokingly saying it now, it made me hungry because it made me remember how much I loved bread when I was in the Soviet Union. When you were like hungry, that was the sort that was the things you dreamed about. I don't know. You know, what's amazing is how many of the Soviet scientists contributed to so much of what we understand today and they were completely in hiding like there's no google they couldn't look up on scholar yeah. they had nothing they had to wait for journals to get approved by the communist party to get approved and then and then and only then if they weren't a member of some class i'm sure you know like jewish scientists you had a passport that said jew on your passport yeah and zeldovich the famous um uh, yakov uh, borsovich zeldovich he was the advisor one of my advisors alexander polnarev um and he had to only because he was like at a Nobel level and you know was one of the fathers of the Soviet atomic bomb program could he even get his Jewish student he was Jewish too but but only by virtue of his standing of his intellectual accomplishments would they give him the dispensation to let his student you know travel to Georgia or something and it makes what we complain about I complain about academia and it's like oh well what can I talk about what can I we have no idea of how good it is and that they were able to create things like inflation, completely isolated from the West. I mean, some of these people wouldn't, didn't meet like people like Stephen Hawking until, you know, he was almost dead. Uh, and they just learned this thing through smuggled in, you know, it was, it's, it's a work of heroism, especially in cosmology. There's so many cosmologists that worked incredibly hard, probably because they were working the, they could, they could pass off as well. We're doing stuff for the atomic bomb program as well, which they were. At, at the same time, there is, um, interesting uh, incentives in the Soviet system that maybe we can take this tangent uh, for a brief moment, that uh, because there's a dictatorship, authoritarian regime throughout the, the, the history of the 20th century for the Soviet Union, science was prioritized. Mm -hmm. And because the state prioritized it through the propaganda machine, through the news and so on, it actually was really cool to be a scientist. Yeah. Like you were highly valued in society, maybe that's a better way to say it. And I, I would say, you're saying like, we have it easy now. In that sense, it was kind of uh, beneficial to be a scientist in that society because you were seen as a hero, yeah. as a, there's there's Yeah, there's so the was hero of the Soviet Republic. And that, you know, there's positives to that. I mean, I'm not saying uh, I would take the, <laughs> the negatives <laughs> or the time. positives, but it, it is interesting to see a world in which science was highly prized in, in um in a capitalist system, or maybe not capitalist, let's just say it, the American system, the celebrities are the uh, the athletes, the actors and actresses, maybe business leaders, musicians, uh, 
and you know the people we elect are sort of lawyers and lawyers yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. so it's interesting to oh, think of a world where science was highly prized but they had to do that science within the constraints of always having big brother watching it's uh yeah the same in germany germany had you know highly prized science. i mean one of the most famous tragic to me cases is fritz haber who invented the you know haber bosch process that allowed us to i don't know have you eaten yet you look you look i mean i know you fast Thank intermittent you. fast every day and you, you do that you know so, i said kleb and you, and you got it's a little drool but he, he says i'm lifting and i look slim this is amazing I, <laughs> oh, i'm gonna this, clip this out and put it on tinder i think right. that's a website you gotta go swipe left or right for that i don't know <laughs> um but when you think about like you know what he did and created the fertilizer process that we all enjoy and we eat from every day um he was a, a German nationalist, first and foremost, even though he was a Jew. And he personally went to witness the application of ammonia, chlorine gas, applied during trench warfare in, uh, in 1916, in battles in Brussels and whatever. And he was, they had a whole cadre of Nobel laureates in chemistry and physics you know, that would go and witness these atrocities. But that was also, they were, they were almost putting science above, I don't want to say human dignity, but, but of like who, the fact that he would later be suppressed and actually some of his um, relatives would die in Auschwitz because of the chemical that he invented also called Zyklon B. And so it's just it's just unbelievable. So I, I feel like that does have resonance today in this worship of, of science, you know, and listen to science and follow the science, which is more like scientism. Um, and there is still a danger. You know, I always say, um, just because you're an atheist doesn't mean you don't have a religion. You know, just because you, you, you know, in, in my case, in, in my books, I, I, I talk a lot about the Nobel Prize. It's kind of like a kosher idol. It's something that you can worship, you know, it doesn't do any harm. And, and we want those people that are so significant in their intellectual accomplishments, because there is a core of America and the Western world in general that does worship and, and really look at science, predominantly because it gives us technology. Um, but there's something really cool about that. And so, for me, it's hard to find that balance point between um, between looking to science for wisdom, which I don't think it has. They're two different words. Um, but uh, but also recognizing how much good and transformative power, maybe our only hope, comes from science. You open so many doors because you also bring up our uh, Ernest Becker in that book. So there, there's a lot of elements of religiosity to science and mm -hmm. to the Nobel Prize that's fascinating to explore. And we will. Mm -hmm. And we still haven't finished the discussion of the beginning of the of the universe, which we'll return to. Yeah. But now, since you opened the book, wow, pun unintended, of uh, losing the Nobel Prize, can you uh, tell me the story of BICEP, the background imaging of cosmic extragalactic polarization experiment, BICEP-1 and BICEP-2, and then maybe you can talk about BICEP-3. But the, the thing that you cover in your book, mm -hmm. the human story of it, yeah, what happened? Yeah, that, that book is in contradistinction to the second book. That's like a memoir. It's, it's really a description of, uh, of what it's like to feel, what it feels like to be a scientist and to come up with the ignorance, uncertainty, imposter syndrome, which which I cover in the later book in more detail, but um, to really feel like you're doing something uh, and it's all you think about. It, it is all consuming. And it, it's something I couldn't have done now because I have too many other, you know, wonderful, delightful demands on my time. But to go back to that moment when I was first captivated by the night sky as a 12-year-old, 13-year-old, and really mixed together throughout my scientific story has always been 
wanting to approach the greatest mystery of all, which I think is the existence or non-existence of God. So I, I call myself a, a practicing agnostic. <laughs> In other words, I do things that are that religious people do, and I don't do things that atheist people do. And I once had this conversation, you know, with my first podcast guest, actually, I shouldn't say, oh, I was just, just having a conversation with Freeman Dyson, yeah. but he was actually my first guest. Yeah. And I miss him. Name drop. Name drop. Yes. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be plenty of comments. So, about so in, in case people don't know, Brian Keating is the host of Into the Impossible podcast, where he's talked to some of the greatest scientists in the uh, history of science, physicists, especially in the history of science. So when I talked to Freeman, I said, you know, Freeman, you're an you call yourself an agnostic too. Can you tell me something like what what do you do on Saturday, on Sundays? Do you go to church? He's like, no, I don't go to church. Uh, and I'm like, well, imagine there was like an intelligent alien, and he was looking down, or she, it, she, I don't know, it thing was looking down, and it saw Freeman. And on Sundays, like a group of people go to church, but Freeman doesn't go to church. And then there's another group of people that don't go to church, and those are called atheists. But Freeman calls himself an agnostic, but he does the things that the like Richard Dawkins. He doesn't go to the same church that Richard Dawkins doesn't go to, yeah. right? So I said, how would you distinguish yourself if not practice? So I'm a behaviorist. I believe you can change your mentality. You can you can influence your mind via your bodily physical actions. So when I was a 12 year old, I got my first telescope. I was actually an altar boy in a Catholic church. It's kind of strange for a Jewish kid who grew up in New York. Maybe we'll get into that. Maybe not. Uh, but um, I was just fascinated by these. These uh, well, can we get into it for yeah. a second? Okay, yeah. <laughs> let's, all right, let's go. All right, let's, let's, go. let's go there. All right, let's go to uh, Baby Brian or Baby young, Brian. young, young, <laughs> young Brian. Brian, the new sitcom on CBS. Uh, young Brian, born to two Jewish parents. Uh, my father was a professor at SUNY Stony Brook. He was a mathematician, eminent mathematician, and my mother was an eminent mom and a brilliant um, uh, English major, etc. And they raised us, but they were secular. They, they, you know, we'd go to, I always joke, we'd go to, we'd go to synagogue, you know, two times a year on, on Christmas and Easter. No, no, we would go, uh, you know, Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, right? That's the typical two-day-a-year Jews. Uh, and, you know, we'd have, uh, we'd have matzahs once a year on Palm Passover. Uh, and that was about it. And um, for years, I was like that until my parents got divorced. My mother re remarried, and she married an Irish Catholic man by the name of Ray Keating. My father's name is James Axe. Um, so when she remarried Ray Keating, I was immediately adopted. <laughs> I'm actually adopted into the Keating family. And he had nine brothers and sisters and just warm and gregarious. They, you know, did Christmas and Easter. They, it, it was one of the most wonderful experiences I had. And I do things with great gusto. Whatever I do, I want to take it all the way. So to me, that meant really learning about Christianity, in this case, Catholicism. So I was baptized, confirmed, and I said, I want to go all the way. I became an altar boy in the Catholic Church. And you're going to be the best altar boy there ever was. I had like serious skills. You pass that collection basket. I could push people and get them to 2x their contributions. Um, but in this case, uh, I was 13. I don't know if you remember, you know, when you were 13. But if you extrapolate the next level up, you know, it's like you go graduate student, postdoc, professor. The next level up from, you know, conf confirmation, altar boy is priest. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but priests are not entitled to have relations with, with women. Mm. And as a 13-year-old boy, kind of like future casting what life's going to be like for myself if I continue on my path, um, I found it, maybe I... The math is not up. <laughs> That's right. There was, a, there was a serious gap in, uh, in that future. In that future. Um, 
And instead, when I should have been preparing for my bar mitzvah, you know, as most Jewish boys would be, a 12, 13-year-old boy, I actually got a telescope and uh, and became infatuated with all the things you could see with it. It wasn't bigger than that one over there that your hedgehog's looking through. Is that hedgehog? It's a, it's a hedgehog, hedgehog in the fog. I should mention, and we'll go one by one yeah. these things. You've given me some incredible gifts. Maybe this is a good place to yeah. ask about the telescope that put some clamps on and let the hedgehogs look and uh, using- Now your, you're officially an experimental astrophysicist, by the way. Why experimentalist versus an engineer? Because you assembled this telescope, you put, gave it a mount, and you connected it to uh, to a very Yeah, but there's no experiment going on. It's just engineering for show. Okay. It's very shallow. So Experiment is taking it to the next level and actually achieving something. Here, I just built a thing for show. Well, that's and always a joke. People say, oh, you're an experimental cosmologist. And I'm like, yeah, I build a lot of universes. Uh, we Actually, most of my time is putting clamps on things, soldering things. You know, yeah. It's not actually doing the stroking of my non-existent beard, contemplating the cyclic versus the bouncing cosmological model. Yeah, right? and just like uh, most of robotics is just using Velcro for things. Right, yeah. It's not like having dancing dogs and, and whatever, right? So telescope. Yes, this telescope. What's the what's the story of this little telescope? So this telescope's uh, a, a very precious thing in some ways, a symbol uh, of what got me into, you know, what brought me all the blessings I have in my life came from a telescope. And I always advise parents or even people for themselves. You right here, wherever we are, biggest city on earth, Manhattan, where I was growing up as a 12-year-old outside of Manhattan. You can see the exact same craters on the moon, the same rings of Saturn, the same moons of Jupiter, the same phases of Venus. You can see the Andromeda galaxy, Lex, two and a half million light years away from Earth. And you can do that with that little thing over there. Or one that's a little more expensive. Get one that has a mount and, and you can attach now your smartphone. What the hell is that? I wouldn't have known what that was in 1984. And with that, you can do something that no other science, to my knowledge, can really replicate. Maybe biology in some sense, but you can experience the physical sensation that Galileo experienced when he turned a telescope like that to Jupiter and saw these four dots around it, or that Saturn had ears, as he called it, or that the moon was not crystalline, polished, smooth, and, and made of this heavenly substance, the quintessence substance, right? So where else can you be viscerally connected with the first person to ever make that discovery. Try doing that with the Higgs boson. You know, get yourself an LHC and smash together, you know, high luminosity, you know, call up Harry Cliff and say, you know, I want to replicate, how did you feel? He didn't feel anything. None of them felt anything. It took years to compile it. You can't do it. But with this, you can feel the exact same emotions. That's fascinating. It's almost like maybe, maybe there's uh, another one like that is fire. Yes. Like when you build a bonfire, like, can you actually get it? See, if you use a lighter, I think if you actually, by rubbing sticks together or however you do it without yeah. any of the modern tools, that's probably what that's like. Yeah. And then you get to experience the magic of it, of what like early humans, homo yeah, sapiens you feel did. what Og felt when he did it that first time. By the way, is this a gift? This is a gift, of okay, course. I'm is this, you I'm, need a little bit of a swag upgrade, so I got you some will, gifts. Yeah, this is a... I'm, uh, I'm pulling a Putin, like asked if this is a gift, making it very uncomfortable for you to say, uh, well, uh, not really. This, this is actually my childhood telescope here. You know, this is but now years. I'm keeping it. That's All right. right. Uh, so looking yeah, through this telescope. Was when your love for science life. was first born. Changed my life. Because not only was I doing that, I was replicating what Galileo did, but I was, and I'll get, I'm 100% not comparing myself to Galileo Galileo, okay, if there's any confusion out there. But I did replicate exactly what he did, and I was like, holy crap, this is weird. Let me write it down. 
So it had another effect, which all good scientists, budding scientists should do, and all parents should do. Get your kid a book, a little notebook, tape a pencil to it. Write down what you see, what you hypothesize, what you think it's going to be. Not like in the high school, you know, like uh, hypothesis, thesis, but just like, wow, how did I feel? Better yet, astronomy is a visual science. Sketch what you see. The Lagoon Nebula, the Pleiades Seven Sisters, you can see them anywhere on Earth. And when you do that, again, you're connecting two different hemispheres of your brain, as I understand it, and uh, you're connecting them through your fingertips. You literally have the knowledge in your fingertips, in your connection between what you see, what you observe, and what you write down. Then you do research, right? Um, The goal of science is not to just replicate what other people did, is do something new. And uh, that's why we call it research and not just like studying, you know, Wikipedia. And in so doing, you start to train a kid at age 12 or 13 for 50 bucks. It's unbelievable. And now we can do even better because you got shared on Instagram or whatever. And you can, by doing so, have an entree into the world of what does it really mean to be a scientist and do so viscerally. You know, I, I often say, I was taught this by my, my uh, English teacher, Mrs. Tompkins in ninth grade, that the word educate, it doesn't mean to pour into. Let me pour in some facts into Lex. And, you know, it's not like machine learning. You're just showing like billions of cats or, you know, you're not like forcing it in. You're bringing it out. It means to pour out of in Latin, educare. And what more could a teacher want than to have something that the kid is just like gushing? No, you're not going to see like- To inspire the kid. Yes. Inspire. Yes. Shout out to Mrs. Tompkins. Yeah, Mrs. Tompkins. She's watching. Yeah. She's a big fan. <laughs> <laughs> Me, she doesn't care for, but you. Yeah, she's excellent. <laughs> we take those we love for granted. Uh, she's, this is in Manhattan. Th- this is in Westchester County, New York. Okay, yeah, got it. So, okay. so But then that's where the dream is born. Yeah. But- then there is the pragmatic journey of a scientist. So going to university, graduate school, postdoc, yeah. and all the way yeah. to where you are today. What's what's uh, uh, what's that? What are some notable moments in that journey? So I call that the academic Hunger Games. You know, because it's like you're you're competing against like these people you know, who are just getting smarter all the time as you're getting smarter all the time. They're, they want to get into a fewer and fewer number of slots. Like there's fewer slots to get into college than in high school. There's fewer slots in graduate school. There's fewer, very fewer sp- slots to be a postdoc. And many, many, maybe infinitesimal number. You know, we just did a faculty search at UC San Diego, 400 applicants for one position. It's almost getting impossible. Like I almost can't conceive of doing what these new brilliant young people applying to become an assistant professor at a state university that they're doing. Like it takes so much courage to do that. Um, so I went from you know this kid in New York uh, thinking I would never be a professional astronomer. A because I didn't know any. I'd never seen any. I didn't even know that they existed. And I thought, who the hell is going to pay me to look at the stars? Like, won't they pay me to be like an ice cream taster? Like, it's just not something I could conceive of getting paid to do, even if I had the brilliance to do it, which I didn't feel I did. Um, and then I went to graduate school, and um, and during graduate school, I had this kind of um, on again, off again relationship with my father. And I knew that he was a mathematician. I, he had left and gotten remarried himself and moved across the country. I didn't see him for 15 years. And in that time, I learned a lot about him. And I learned that he had gotten very interested not in pure mathematics, which he had been a number theorist and contributed seminal work on, on uh, Diophantine equations, which you know play a role in Turing's work, you may have seen. But anyway, he had 
become interested, turn completely away from that into the foundations of quantum mechanics and relativity, which is physics. And by that time, I was at Brown University, and I was, you know, thinking, oh, maybe I'll be condensed matter physicist or experimentalist. I never thought I'd be a theorist, and I'm not a theorist, so it was pretty prescient. And um, but it, it always appealed to me, like, why not do what made me happy as a twelve-year-old? Like, we often forget about like those, you know, primitive things about us are probably the most sustainable, durable, and resilient attributes of our character. So with my own kids, I look like, what are they interested in now when they're young? And it doesn't mean that's what they're going to do. I mean, some of them want to play Fortnite, you know, like professional Fortnite play, which there are, uh, but, you know, the odds of that is less than the odds of being a professor. Can I ask you, um, is your father still with us? No. Just on a small tangent. Yeah. Do you miss him? Do you think about him? Does his mathematical journey reverberate through who you are? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it did in very many ways. Um, and he's been gone for a long time now. Thinking back to that time with him, uh, he must have instilled some capacity for me to only want to spend my time, which is a limited quantity. I don't think it's the most limited quantity. Maybe we'll talk about that later. But um, but to go into um, only the most challenging, interesting things with the t limited time that we have while we're alive. And for him, it was the foundations of quantum mechanics. For me, it was the foundations of the universe and how did it come to be? And I felt like, well, people have been trying since Einstein to outdo Einstein, really have made great progress in the foundations of quantum mechanics, but this is an exciting time. The Kobe satellite had just released its data that the universe had this anisotropy pattern. Stephen Hawking called it like looking at the face of God and so forth. And so it seemed like this is a good golden age for what I'm going to do and what I'm most interested in. But always throughout that, I wanted to understand, I didn't want to be a wrench monkey. No offense to people that just do experiment. And, and no offense to monkeys. No offense to monkeys. That's right. This little guy. Sorry, man. <laughs> um, but thinking back to what animates me, it's not doing the engineering as much as it is getting the data, but there's a lot of steps. I want to be the guy um, understanding what made the universe produce the signal that we saw. So I always joke with my theorist friends, you know, who call me a closeted theorist. You know, like I want to be, you know what they call a guy who hangs out with musicians, mm. a drummer. So I want to be like, like that for physics, right? Like uh, for theoretical physics. I want to be like the guy who doesn't do new theory, but understands the theory that the new theorists are doing. I love that formulation of a theorist is understanding the source of the signal you're getting. Like signal is primary. Yeah. Like the the thing you measure is primary and theory is just um, the search of explaining um, how that signal originated, but it's all about the signal. I mean, I, I see the same search for the human mind and, and mm. like neuroscience in that same kind of way is it's ultimately about the signal, yeah. but you kind of hope to understand how that signal originated. That's fascinating. Yeah. That's uh that's such a beautiful way to to explain experimental physics. Cause it it ultimately at the end of the day is all about the signal. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe those two things, the the neuroscience and the cosmos, uh not getting too romantic, but yeah. Maybe they're linked in some fundamental way. Maybe they're some fundamental conscious, cosmic consciousness. But um, we're going to get to that. Yeah, yeah. No, we definitely have to. Get to that. <laughs> but getting back to yeah. So, so my origin. Story. So I always say like, and I want to try this on you. Uh, you said you wouldn't answer any of my questions, but I'm going to ask you some questions. What's the most important day on the calendar? Don't tell me the date, but what, to you, what is your? Most, what's the most important day to you every year? 
Do I have to answer or do I have to think about it? No, no, answer. answer. Like, you don't have to tell me the exact date of the count. It could be like your mistress's, you know, uh, birthday or whatever. But I have so many, I lose track. <laughs> even though I'm single, how does that even make sense? I know. Okay. I'm sorry. Uh, so, I, uh, a day, like, like, a, like, like a month and a day. Yeah. I mean, for me, it would be December 31st. Yeah. So, I was going to say New Year's Eve, New Year's Day. Uh, some people say birthday, anniversary, kid's birth. They're usually signif signifying beginnings and ends, right? January means the portal between, the god was the portal between the beginning and the end. So you're looking back, maybe because you're Russian, you know, like the death side, the, the light side, looking forward into January, the beginning, right? Um, <laughs> so um, everybody's most important day is usually some beginning or something significant. For me, it was studying the most significant thing of all. It's like, when did the universe get born, as I said before? And I didn't think there... Again, I didn't, I just, there was some mental obstruction that I didn't realize that I could get past because I didn't think like anybody does it. Like I knew p astronomers knew these answers, like the universe at that time between 10 and 20 billion years old. Now we know it's 13.872 billion years old. It's incredible the five digit, you know, for significant five. What significant, is it again? 13 point? 13.872 billion years. 872 million so is there a lot of plus or minus on that? Is it, what are the error so bars on for that? for me, I'm 50. So it would be the equivalent of you looking at me and telling me within 12 hours how old I am. Yeah. So half a percent, percent level accuracy. There's a confidence behind that? Oh yeah, I mean, there's a significance. Yeah, no, it's extremely well measured. I mean, it's one of the most precise things that we have. In contrast to, again, 25 years ago, we didn't know if the universe was 10 billion or 20 billion years old, but there were stars in our galaxy that were believed to be, as they are, about 12 billion years old, or in the universe that were 12 billion. So that would be like you being um, older than your father. It was embarrassing. Can we, can we actually take yeah. a tangent on a tangent on a tangent on a tangent? How old is the universe? Can you, can you dig in onto this number? How do we know currently with those, I guess you said five, four or five, Significant, uh, figures, yeah. significant uh, digits. So it, we can come about it from two different ways. One, uh, basically, they rely on the most important number in cosmology, which is called the Hubble constant. The Hubble constant is this weird number that has the following units. It has the units of kilometers per second per megaparsec. So it's a speed per distance, which means you multiply it by distance and you get a speed. And what is the speed you're measuring? Well, you're measuring the speed of a distant galaxy at many megaparsecs away. So a galaxy at one megaparsec away, this isn't actually strictly true because of local gravitational effects. Uh, but if you go out, say, one uh, megaparsec away, I would say that that galaxy is moving 72 kilometers per second away from you. And every galaxy, except for the local, very most local group surrounding us, maybe a half a dozen galaxies, out of 50 to, sorry, sorry, out of uh, 50, uh, 500 billion galaxies to perhaps a trillion galaxies, so 12 out of that number are moving towards us. The rest are moving away from us. So that number, if you invert it, if you say, well, when did those things last touch each other, all those galaxies? Now they're really far apart. We know how fast they're moving away. It's a very simple algebra problem to solve. When were they touching? That's where you get that number from. So there's the local 12 and then the rest. Ignore the 12, yep. And then ignore the 12 and then look at the others and yeah, the, then solve the algebra problem. Uh, how does the... And stuff in the beginning, the, the mystery of that beginning epoch changed this calculation of- Very know. little, because actually we understand um, how there's some other ingredients that go into it, namely how much dark energy there is in the universe, how much dark matter there is in the universe, how much radiation, light, neutrinos, et cetera, there are, and how much ordinary matter like we're made up of, neutrons, protons, croutons. Okay, so the, let me, <laughs> 
<laughs> Morons. <laughs> it appears that the universe is bigger than it is older. How does that make sense? Oh, oh, yeah. So you're talking about the fact that we can actually see stuff in our observable universe that's located at a distance that is farther than the speed of light times the age of the universe. Yeah. Naively, you would say that the, the you know. So you're right. If the universe were static, um, if the universe came into existence, and you can conceive of this, the universe came into a, a big bang in a fixed universe. So the universe just ex started off. Those galaxies were, you know, they could be moving towards us, away from us, who knows. Um, that you could say, I can see a galaxy that's at a distance of only 13.8 billion years times the speed of light. That would be true. But the fact that the light is expanding along with the expansion of the universe. So imagine there was some very distant past. We were near a galaxy. It's going to produce some light. And that galaxy is going to be moving away from us. The light's going to be getting more and more red shifted, as it's called. And it's going to be moving farther and farther away from us at, uh, as time goes on. There'll be some acceleration as we get into the era of dark energy. Um, the light signals, there'll be some cone of acceptance, if you will, um, from which, which represents all the events that we could have received information from. We can't currently communicate with that galaxy, it, it sent us some light and now it's moving away and it sent us some light. And because the space is also dragging the photons with it, if you like, the photons are being uh, participating in the expansion of the universe. That's why they're redshifting. That we can see things to out to where the universe first began expanding, not just when it began existing. And because the universe has been expanding for 13.8 billion years with no sign of slowing down yet, which is a huge uh, surprise, serendipitous surprise, um, that we can see things approximately three times the age of the universe away from us. So we can see, let's call the age of the universe 15 billion years, just to make the math simple. We see things at 45 billion light years distance in that direction. And we see things at 45 billion light years in that direction, <laughs> just turning our telescopes 180 degrees away. So that means we see things that themselves are, are 90 billion light years away from each other. That's sort of the diameter of the observable universe. Is there another universe beyond that? We don't know. Some conjecture, there's not only one, there's an infinite number of them. How are you emotionally okay with the fact that our universe is expanding? So like... It's gonna be like Annie Hall, like with Alvi uh, Singer. No, just, I, I grew up in the Soviet Union. We watched propaganda. <laughs> I, I realized that you did, yes. Uh, so there's a famous- Annie Hall, is Annie that Hall. some kind of, uh, <laughs> is what is the- Communist Party, propagandist <laughs> uh, movie with Woody Allen, um, certainly canceled, but yeah. uh, but nevertheless, back when he was uh, uh, not canceled yet, uh, he made a movie called Annie Hall, in which as a, it's a self-depiction, he's like a Larry David before Larry David was Larry David, neurotic, typical neurotic young Jew, he's in Brooklyn, and he all of a sudden tells his mother he's not doing his homework anymore. He refuses to do his homework. His mother says, why? He goes, because the universe is expanding and it keeps on expanding. Uh, everything will rip apart and no, we'll never have anything in contact and everything is meaningless. Uh, and I assume these are some of the topics we're gonna get to. Uh, and, and she goes, what are you talking about? We're in Brooklyn. Brooklyn <laughs> is not expanding. Uh, and that's true. Brooklyn is not expanding. The solar system is not expanding. Oftentimes they get asked, what is the universe expanding into? That's right. one of my favorite questions. Uh, what is it expanding into? And I say, it's actually an easy question if you think about it. Um, you've seen your friend Elon, he goes out to space, he's got a rocket, right? What's outside of the rocket? If you, take, if you take this bottle, empty out this bottle, take the cap off it, go outside the rocket, you know, sipping some tang, screw on the cover of it, what's in there? Is it empty? 
Uh, that's just semantics, I guess. Uh, y- yeah. No, it's definitely not empty. Uh, so you step outside the rocket? Yeah, you're in the vacuum of space, the quote-unquote vacuum of space. And there's no more liquid in it? There's no more liquid in it. No, it's just a, just a container, one cubic centimeter. Let's uh-huh. just make it simple. One cubic centimeter of a uh, box, and you take it out into space, outside uh, the Falcon, whatever, right? Yeah. Um, what's inside that box? It's not empty. There's actually, I'm going to say... Uh, this is going to set your friends up. There's 420 photons from the fusion of the light elements that we call the cosmic microwave background inside that box at any second. Okay. All right. right. Hold on a second. What? Four, 420. That's, uh, I've heard of that number before. All right. Let's. It let's... used to be 69, but then they changed. <laughs> wow. Physics works in mysterious ways. Okay. In the millimeter box, it's 69. What What are we talking about here? What uh, What's in <laughs> what's, what's in the box? I'm going to get <laughs> That's right. Let's think outside the box. No, we're thinking inside the box. So if you have a, oh, every cubic centimeter of our observable universe is suffused with heat left over from the Big Bang, dark matter particles, there's a little ordinary matter in the universe, um, uh, and every cubic centimeter, there's some probability to find a proton, a cosmic ray, an electron, et cetera. There's actually an awful lot of neutrinos inside of that cubic centimeter. Now, just imagine how many cubic centimeters there are in the universe. It's enormous. That's why there's enormous numbers of particles in our universe. It's a very rich universe. But now let's zoom in on that box. So now inside that box, there might be, you know, one, let's let's say there might be one ordinary matter, like a proton or an electron, a baryon, a, um, a lepton. There might be a couple, some, um, a couple hundred neutrinos, and there'll be a couple hundred photons, as I said, 420. What's between those guys? What's between the protons and the neutrinos and the photons? Like, just zoom into the uh, cubic micron now. Like, imagine 420 things inside a box this big. It's actually pretty empty. Mm-hmm. Like, they're just zipping around in there, right? So between them, there's a lot of empty space. And this is outside the kind of physics-based models of fields and all those kinds of things. Yeah, just like, I mean, just actually fields, yeah. asking the question of, like, what is this emptiness? What is the particle content in the universe in every cubic centimeter of the universe? Outside of the 420. So you have the 420. They have some mass. Yep. Oh, they have energy. They don't have mass. Photons don't have mass. Energy. That's why they don't mass. bring suitcases. You know that's true, right? Photons never bring suitcases with you, with them, because they're traveling light. Hmm. See, I don't even get a laugh this out is, of you. That's uh, corny dad jokes. Okay, you'll you'll appreciate it. No, this God is pretty will. good. It's just <laughs> I'm laughing on the insides. What's in the box? What's the 420? What's between the photons? That's what space is. That's what the universe is expanding into. Okay, that's nothing. So that's. That's the notebook yeah. on which the photons are written. Exactly. This, That's beautiful. But still, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, thank you. Uh, still, I, I I understand this, but it's still uncomfortable that that if the uh, the universe is expanding, that this thing is expanding. the The canvas is expanding. It's very strange. Mm. Because like if we were just sitting there, still, I guess if we're in Brooklyn, nothing's expanding. So our cognition our under- intuition about the world is based on this local fact that we don't get to experience um this kind of expansion yeah and that intuition leads us astray but you know that gravity is the weakest of the so-called four fundamental forces um and yet it has the longest range you know, pervasiveness gravity is you know we're being pulled towards the andromeda galaxy at, at some enormous rate of speed because of its massive counter gravitational force to the force we exert on it. Uh, so gravity is enormously uh, long range, but incredibly weak. And because of that, 
uh, we can think about these effects of expansion as the relationship between the, as you said, the no, the the grid lines on the notebook, right? Gravity is a manifestation of the interrelationship between those points, how far they are from each other, and those can change. Those point distances can change over time because of the force of gravity. So it's weak, and what and what we experience as gravity is the um, changing of those trajectories from being rectilinear to curvilinear. That's what we experience as gravity. Well, you had this analogy when you talked to Barry Barish about a bowling ball and a trampoline. and uh, That's almost right, uh, because it's actually, you have to visualize that now in, in four dimensions, like wrapping a trampoline at every point around the object, including on the sides. And you know, it becomes very hard to visualize. So a lot of people use that. Um, it's also a fraught analogy because you're using gravity, like the notion of gravity pulling something down to explain the notion of gravity. So it's a little overburdening the analogy. Mm-hmm. But okay, so you mentioned Barry Barish wrote the forward to your book. Yeah. Uh, how, how do gravitational waves fit into all of this? How, how do they, emo- on the emotional level, how do they oh. make you feel that they're just uh, moving space time? <laughs> yeah. So gravitational waves were the Nobel Prize for gravitational waves discovery the first time. You know, it's this, this, it was discovered twice indirectly by two uh, men uh, named Holson Taylor. And that was given my first year of graduate school. The day I entered graduate school almost, they they announced these two guys won it. And the guy who won it did the work that would later win him the Nobel Prize when he was my age. Is this in the 40s? Uh, this was, no, this is the 19th. That was a joke. Yeah, that was All good. Right. That was good. Thank you. I got it. I got it. You know, All to right. a cosmologist, age means nothing. Yeah. Um, and to a tennis player. Not on Tinder. <laughs> That's right. All right. Um, Sorry. So gravitational waves do fit in uh, because what we're trying to do now is use the properties of gravitational waves, the analogous properties that they have to photons, that they travel at the speed of light, that they go through everything, they can go through everything, and that they're directly detectable. We're using them to try to confirm if or if not inflation occurred. Mm -hmm. So did inflation, the spark that ignited the fusion of the elements in the early part of the universe and the expansion, the initial expansion of the universe, did that take place? There's only one way that cosmologists believe we could ever see that through the imprint of these primordial gravitational waves, not these old you know, newcomers that Gar- Barry studies, the ones that occurred a billion light years uh, away from us uh, a billion years ago. Uh, but we're seeing things that happened 13.82 billion years ago during the inflationary epoch. However, those we cannot build a LIGO and put it at the Big Bang. So if you want to measure, let's say you have a, um, the old time um, uh, firecracker, let's say there's a firecracker and you want to see if it went off in the building next door to you, you can't see it. So you can't see the imprint of it, but you can hear it. And what we're trying to do is hear the effect of gravitational waves from the Big Bang, not by using a camera or even an interferometer like Barry used and his colleagues, but instead using the CMB the light, the primordial ancient fossils of the universe, the oldest light in the universe, we're going to use that as a film, quote unquote, onto which gravitational waves get exposed. And hope you can, uh, so what are the challenges there to get enough accuracy to, to for the exposure? 
So the the signal, as I said, is um, so there's 420 of these photons per cubic centimeter, and there's a lot of fo- cubic centimeters in the universe. However, what we're looking for is not the brightness of the photon, how intense it is. We're not looking for its color, what wavelength it is. We're looking for what its polarization is. And so, we'll go. There. Let me yeah. just ask: Are you serious about the per <laughs> cubic millimeter? Four twenty is the number. Centimeter. But uh, uh, cu- uh, cubic centimeter. Yeah. 420 is the number. That's the number. Uh, I wonder if Elon knows this, and if he doesn't, he will truly enjoy this. Okay. <laughs> this uh, okay. is great. Yeah, that's true. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> Funding secured. Excellent. Um, so, I mean, this takes us to this story of yeah. heartbreak, of triumph, of uh, that you describe in losing the Nobel Prize. So, describe what uh, polarization is that you mentioned. Yeah. Can you describe what bicep one and bicep two are? Bicep three perhaps the instruments that uh, can detect this kind of polarization. Yeah. What are the challenges, the the origin story, the whole thing? Yeah. So, well, the origin story goes back again to like a father-son rivalry. It really does. So my father won all these prizes, awards, et cetera, but he never won a Nobel Prize. And, you know, some parents in America, they compete with their kids. You know, oh, I was a football player in high school. I'll show you and, right. and whatever, wrestling, whatever. And, and some of us could be healthy too. Um, but... Um, with me and my dad, it wasn't super healthy. <laughs> like yeah. we would compete and, and, you know, he was much more of a pure mathematician and I was an experimental physicist. So we had both different ideas and what was p- worth prioritizing our time. Um, uh, but I knew for sure he didn't win the Nobel prize and I knew I could kind of outdo him. So I, I feel pretty venal and, and kind of, you know, mi- minuscule kind of character wise saying well, that. The only reason you could outdo him is because the Fields Medal is given every four years. And, and only if you're under 40, which yeah. he was. No so he's working under much more limited <laughs> conditions. <laughs> That's right. So it, even if I had, which, you know, spoiler alert, the book's called Losing the Nobel Prize, so I didn't do it. Um, but I wanted to do something big and I wanted to do something uh, that would really just unequivocally be realized as in a discovery for the ages, as in fact it was when we made the premature announcement that we had been successful. We'll get so you that. were from the beginning reaching for the big questions. Yeah. That's all I care So about. as an experimenter, you were swinging for the fences. That's all I wanted to do. I felt like uh, if it's not, you know, if it's if it's worth spending you know, perhaps the rest of my life on as a scientist, as a scientist, it better be damn well, better be interesting to me to carry me through, to give me the, you know, the, you know, I always say passion is great when people say, oh, follow your passion, but it's not enough. Passion's like the spark that ignites the rocket, but that's not enough to get the rocket into space. So then you swung for the fences with bicep one. What is this? So bicep one was born out of um, kind of interesting circumstances. So I had gone to a Stanford university for a postdoc. So an academic hunger games, Stanford, Stanford university. Yeah. It's this uh, small little school. It's, it's, it's not like that technical college in in Massachusetts that you're affiliated with. Um, But um, as I went there, I was working for a new assistant professor. She had gotten there uh, only a year before I got there. And, and she had her own priorities, the things that she wanted to do. But I kept thinking in my spare time that I wanted to do something completely different. She was studying galaxies at high redshift and I wanted to study the origin of the universe using this, this type of technology. And uh, I realized, courtesy of a good friend of mine at, who's now at Johns Hopkins, Mark Hamminkowski, that we didn't need this enormous Hubble telescope. We didn't need a 30-meter diameter telescope. We needed a tiny refracting telescope, no bigger than my head, you know, less than a foot across. And that telescope would have the same power as a Hubble telescope, you know, size telescope could have, because the signals that we're looking for are enormous in wavelength on the sky. They're enormously long, large area signals on the sky. 
And if we could measure that, it would be proof effectively, as close as you get to proof, there could be things that mimic it, but that we discovered the inflationary epoch. Inflation being the signal originally conceived of by Alan Guth to explain why the universe had the large-scale features that it does, namely that it has so-called flat geometry. So there's no, there's no way to make a triangle in space in our universe that has three interior angles that do not sum to 180 degrees. You can do that with spacecraft, you can do that with stars, you can do that with laser beams, you can do that with three different galaxies. All those galaxies, no matter how far you go, have this geometry. It's remarkable. But it's also unstable. It's uh, very unlikely. It's very seemingly finely tuned. And that was one of the motivations that Guth had to kind of conceive of this new idea called inflation, 1979, when he was a postdoc also at Stanford, Slack. And uh, he was trying to get a permanent job. I was trying to like make my name for myself. And uh, so I realized I could do this, but I was also being paid by this, this professor at Stanford to do a job for her. And I was kind of a crappy employee, to be honest with you. And then one day she couldn't take it anymore because I was like sketching notebooks and planning these experiments. And I just, I wasn't, no. I, so you I had actually, big ideas in your mind. You were planning big experiments. Yeah. And that was uh, difficult to work with on a small scale for like a postdoc type of situation. Yeah. yeah. Where you have to, you know, publish basic papers, deliver on some basic deadlines for a project, all those yeah. kinds of things. And support your advisors paying you. She was yeah. paying me. Yeah. And so one day I came in and, um, and it actually uh, uh, involved another friend of mine, an astronomer named Jill Tarter, one of the pioneers in the SETI um, science uh, business of detecting extraterrestrials, which I assume you'd never like to talk about aliens, so I'm sure we won't get into aliens. Uh, but Jill was visiting Stanford, and I was like, I really want to meet her. Can you introduce me? And she said, no. In fact, you're fired. <laughs> my my boss. So I was like, "Is this is possibly the best thing that could ever happen to me. I didn't know where it would lead or what would happen to it, but getting fired from this ultra-prestigious university turned out to be the path, I mean, literally, that brings me here today, in that because of that, I ended up working for another person in Caltech, which is in Pasadena. And um, and she, my original boss, Sarah Church, she got me the job with her former advisor, a man by the name Andrew Lang. And Andrew was like, he was like this, I don't know, like, um, he's like an, a Steve Jobs or Elon, you know, charismatic, handsome, a persuasive idea man, not the guy always in the lab, you know, doing everything, but understood the where things are going decades from now. And he had been involved in an experiment that actually measured the universe was flat, very close to flat, um, along with uh, a preceding experiment done at Princeton by Lyman Page and, and other collaborators. So the shape of the universe is flat. The geometry of the universe is flat. How, how, how did he do that experiment? So he used the cosmic microwave background. And uh, so what I said is you have to look for triangles in the universe. So you can measure triangles on Earth. You, you can actually, it's hard to show uh, that the Earth is curved, but you can show the Earth is curved using triangles, mountaintops, et cetera, if you have an accurate enough protractor. Allegedly, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> God, you, you're you like auto-canceling. This is great. Um, no, my ratings are going to go up, man. This is going to be great. Uh, take out the If you game. want actual science, go listen to Brian. <laughs> If you want all of these conspiracy theories <laughs> or AKA the truth about flat earth, <laughs> listen to me. Uh, so he, what he used were, was the following triangle. There are um, proto galaxy sized objects in the CMB. The cosmic microwave background has these patches. And so you can make a triangle out of 
the diameter of one of these uh, blobs of, of uh, primordial plasma, the soup that constitutes the early universe, is just hydrogen. It's very simple material. Understand hydrogen, electrons, and radiation. Very simple. Plasma physicist, sun, understand it. The diameter is two, you know one base of the triangle, and then the distance to the Earth is the other two legs. So he measured, along with his colleagues at, at Caltech and, and University of Rome and that's other group at Princeton, measured uh, the angle... Uh, interior angle effectively very, very accurately and showed that it, it added up to 180 degrees. Can you localize accurately the patches in the CMB? Can, can you know like where they could like trace them back location-wise? You, you can know where they are, but more than that, there's so many of these patches. They're about one square degree on the sky. The sky, you may know, um, a sphere has about 44,000 square degrees in a sphere. So there's literally 44,000 of these size patches over which he could do these kind of measurements to build up very good statistics. That's not exactly how they do it or how they did it in this experiment called Boomerang, but they did measure very accurately the uh, what was called the first Doppler peak or acoustic peak in, in the plasma, the primordial plasma. That's fast. So um, the, the sphere has 44 approximately 44,000 square degrees so to cover a sphere. That's a, that's a very kind of important data collection thing when you're sitting on a sphere and you're looking out into the, yeah. into the observable universe. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of patches to work with. Yeah. And in fact, a lot of the fast kind of algorithmic decomposition of spheres and, and, and machine learning in the early 2000s still used today was created out of this field by data analysts using this thing called hierarchical equal area uh, triangles called heel, heel, heel picks is what it's called. And so it's just stitch all of this stuff together and that's, uh, a, yeah. and, and stitch it together very accurately. Yeah get high statistical significance in order to reduce the statistical errors, very clean signal and uh, measurement device to reduce the systematic errors. Those are the two predominant uh, sources of error in any measurement. Those that can be improved by more and more measurement. You know, you take more and more measurements of this table, you'll get slightly better each time, but you only win as the number of, uh, the, the one over the square root of the number of measurements. But the square root of 44,000 is pretty big. So they were able to get a very accurate measurement. Again, it's not exactly how they did it. They also have to do a Fourier analysis decompose that through a power spectrum, filtration, windows. There's a lot of work that goes into it. Image analysis, and then uh, comparing that with cosmological parameters, very simple model, just six different numbers that go into a model that made a prediction. And one of those is the geometry of the universe pops out. And that is the universe has zero spatial curvature. And that was called boomerang. So he had just come off of this. Now, let me remind you, who was the first person, you know, to measure the curvature of the earth? <laughs> it's a guy named Aristophanes in the, you know, whatever, lived around Aristotle's time. Uh, his name is in the history book. So this guy, Andrew Lang, I was like, he's like the next Aristotle, Aristophan. Like, I just wanted to work for this guy. You know, he was clearly had this brand. He was about 40 at the time. California scientist of the year. I, I was sure he was going to win a Nobel Prize for that. And I knew that, he, you know, so I went down to Caltech to give my job talk and he said, you know, I love it. You got a job. And before I could even, you know, before he finished the sentence, I said, I'll take it, you know, like it was too good to be true. And I started working there at Caltech and slowly but surely, because Caltech's a rich private university at that time run by a Nobel prize winner by the name of David Baltimore. He just wrote us a check. Baltimore wrote us a check and said, get started on this idea. And so we started coming up with the idea for what I later named BICEP, Background Imaging Cosmic Extragalactic Polarization, which is kind of ironic because we ended up measuring galactic polarization. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, but along the way, the idea was very simple. We're going to make the simplest telescope you can possibly make, which is a refracting telescope. 
your eyes. You have two refracting telescopes in your head. Only way you know, forward is more making things more complex, right? And when you make things complex in science, you introduce the possibility for systematic errors. And so we want to build the cleanest instrument. It turns out a cleanest instrument you can build in astronomy is a refracting telescope. We also had to, unlike that telescope or Galileo's, we had to use very sensitive detectors that were cooled less than 120th of the temperature of the cosmic background itself, which is the coolest temperature in the whole universe. So we had to cool these down to about 0.1 or 0.2 degrees Kelvin above absolute zero. To do that, we needed to put it inside of a huge vacuum chamber and suck out all the air molecules and water molecules and take it uh, to a very, very special place called the South Pole Antarctica, from which I retrieved for you a patch. There it is over there. So when you go there, you get these bright red jackets. Bright, oh yeah. You fly As down. somebody who was born in the Soviet Union, we obviously like to call it red. United States Antarctic <laughs> Program, the National Science Foundation. And the base is called the Amundsen-Scott South Polar Station. So it's a little known fact of geopolitics that whatever country occupies a region has ownership over it. Now there is a treaty in Antarctica, you can't use it for military purposes, for mining, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't know if you know, but about 12 years ago, Putin sent a submarine to the North Pole. Now, there's no so. land at the, at the North Pole, right? Mm -hmm. So what did he do? He stuck it on the ocean underneath. <laughs> uh, but the South Pole is on a continent called Antarctica, which was first reached about 110 years ago, the first time in human history. Um, Antarctica means the opposite of the bear. It means like no bears there. Like basically the opposite of where polar bears are. Arctic is, means polar bear. That's where uh, in Crete. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. Fascinating. So Antarctica means the opposite place of that. So humans never even saw it, let alone went to the South Pole, which is kind of in the middle of that continent. Um, we went to take this telescope somewhere extremely dry. It turns out the Sahara Desert, San Diego, Texas, and there's no place like the South Pole or Chile. Those are the two premier places on earth. Mm -hmm. Of course, you'd like to go into space, there's no water in space. So it's not about um, it's not about cold, it's about dry. Exactly. So that's why, for example, you can take this uh, vodka and you could put it in this cup, right? And we could take it over to a microwave somewhere and heat it up. Mm -hmm. After two minutes, the water's, three minutes, the water's boiling. You can't touch it, take it from me, don't touch it. But you can touch the mug and take it out if you want to, right? Why? Because the mug is totally bone dry. But the microwaves get absorbed by the water molecules because water molecules resonate exactly at these microwave frequencies. So we don't want these precious photons, 420 of them traveling per cubic centimeter from the Big Bang itself to get absorbed in some water molecule in the Earth's atmosphere. So you take it to a place with the fewest number of water molecules per, per square centimeter of, of surface area. And that happens to be either Chile, where my other project, the Simons Observatory, is located, or you take it to the South Pole. We took it to the South Pole and uh, spent a couple of uh, months of my life down there. And it's like being on Hoth. You know, it's like, it's a completely otherworldly environment. Ice, planar, flat as a pancake. You like, and, it, and the buildings are built up on stilts. They're built up because the snow will otherwise cover them over. Um, the nearest medical facilities are 4,000 miles away. If you have any issues with your wisdom teeth, they yank them before you go down there. Um, if you have any issues with your appendix, they'll cut it out of you before you go down there. The Russians at Vostok base, not too far away, about 600 miles away. The doctors there, there's a famous picture of one of them operating on himself. 
taking out his own appendix in the middle of winter by himself. So harsh conditions, harsh science conditions. in the harshest of conditions. On earth, at least. And we go to those great links because it's a pristine environment to observe these precious photons. And we built this telescope and it weighs you know tens of thousands of pounds. And it had to scan the sky almost like it's a robot. I mean, it's scanning the sky almost unattended. It needed, uh, we have a guy who spends a year of his life down there, a girl who spends a year of their life down there. They're called winter overs. They arrive in sometimes as early as November and they don't leave until the following December. And we always joke, we'll pay you $75,000. You just have to work for one night of your life. That's, that's all. But <laughs> it's a long night. And what bicep is... And uh, I couldn't bring my, my polarized sunglasses here, so I brought these actual polarizers here. So they, if you take this and put it in front of your telescope there, you have now made a polarimeter. You have made a polarization-sensitive telescope. Now, you may not be able to immediately know how you would use such a thing, but one way to think about it, now take this guy and look at a, a light, look at a light source, put one up to your eye, and now put the other one in front of it, anywhere, and now rotate them. What happens to the light source? Becomes brighter and dimmer and brighter and dimmer. Yeah, so it's called a quadrupolar pattern, right? So it's repeating. It goes bright, dim, bright, dim. Uh, it rotates twice in intensity for every single physical rotation. Wow. And that's because of the property of the photon. The photon is a spin one field, but the polarization of light is it's the axis at which its electric field is oscillating. Its electric field is marching straight up and straight down. And so therefore, vertical polarization is the same as negative vertical polarization. And so you get the same pattern as you rotate two times for every one physical rotation. So it's like a spin, a spin two object. So now if you put that in front of the telescope, you can do one of two things. Now you're polarizing all the light that's going in because you have one of the polarizers. And then you can analyze it as you rotate the other one. You can analyze it and change the amount of polarization. Or you can put this kind of very special crystal in here. There's a crystal, it's called calcite. This is from Lex Luthor, not Lex Friedman. This crystal, put it on top of uh, your printed notes there and tell me, what does it look like? There's a, uh, like I, I could see everything twice. It's a double image. It's a double image. It, that is a special crystal that has two different indices of refraction. Mm. So light emerging, which is unpolarized from the black ink comes out and it splits into two different directions. And it could split even more if I made the crystal give you my more expensive crystal, but that's all I have. What is the crystal with this kind of property called? It's called calcite. This is crystal, it's called birefringent crystal. Bi means two, refringent means refracting. So this is a special type of material that um, separates light based on its polarization. Pretty clean bi signal. Like yeah. It's, it's cleanly to... Yeah. I'm seeing, I'm seeing two very cleanly. It's very crisp, right. So that's that's yours to keep with every time you host me. Now, take the polarizer underneath your left hand. Uh, yep. Put it on top of the crystal and kind of move it back and forth. Wow. Let's have this is incredible. You can switch as you rotate, you switch from one uh, signal to the other. So it's so one of the refractions to the other. Whoa. So that is now you are analyzing the polarization. You are confirming the light comes out of the crystal, two different types of polarization. And effectively what we do 
is we have those two things, if you like, but working in the microwave, so our detector, that's where the, the cosmic photons are brightest in the microwave regime in the electromagnetic spectrum, and we're coupling that to a refracting telescope, but your eyes are refracting telescopes, so you are a polarimeter right now. You, the human eye can actually slightly detect polarization, um, but otherwise it mainly detects its intensity of light and the color. That's what we call color and intensity, brightness. So you're devising an um, instrument that's very precisely measuring that polarization. Exactly. And doing so in the microwave region with detectors not made of uh, biological human eye retina cells, but of superconductors and uh, things called bolometers. And, and this has to be done at, at temperatures close to absolute zero, under vacuum conditions, one billionth of the pressure we feel here at sea level. So why is it that this kind of device could win a Nobel Prize? So when the CMB was discovered, it was discovered serendipitously. There were two uh, radio astronomers working at the time at Bell Laboratories. Now, why would Bell Laboratories be employing radio astronomers? Bell Laboratories is kind of like... Um, like Apple or, you know, it was like a think tank or, you know, it was Google. Let's say it was like Google. Google has like Google X. It has this thing and that thing, right? Um, so they were working there. But imagine if Google was employing radio astronomers. Like they were actively recruiting. Why would they do that? Well, it turns out that was the beginning in the 1960s was the first commercial satellite launch for communication. And so, um, so Bell Labs, which would later become the telephone, you know, part of AT&T and the tele early telephone company, would later invent the first cell phone the year I was born. Um, and they would take that, uh, 1946, and they would take that uh, telescope technology that radio astronomers had developed, and they would use that to see if they could improve the signal to noise of the satellites that they were seeing. And they found they couldn't. They found that they could not improve the signal noise ratio of the first telecommunication satellite. It was like the equivalent to one kilobit per second modem, and they were bouncing signals from, uh, you know, from the west coast up to the satellite, bouncing it down, landing it um, uh, in New Jersey of all places, in uh, northern uh, northern New Jersey, Holmdel, New Jersey. And these radio astronomers couldn't get rid of the signal, so they said, "Well, New Jersey's not far from New York." Let's see if the signal's coming from New York. Nope, not coming from New York. Let's see if it changes with the year. Maybe it's coming from the galaxy, which was also discovered there by Jansky in 1930-something. Uh, so in the, the not being able to reduce the signal or increase the signal-to-noise ratio, the noise it was... was noise. You, you they knew the signal was right. They couldn't get rid of the noise. And there was excess noise over the model that had not only been predicted by them, but had been measured by a previous guy, a guy by the name of Edward Ohm. He measured the same signal, found that there was this hiss of static, of radio static that he could not get rid of that had a value of about three Kelvin. So you can translate. Remember I said, uh, if you take a radio telescope and you have uh, pointed at an object that's hot, the radio telescope's detector will get to the same temperature as the object. Mm -hmm. It's a principle of radio thermodynamics. So it's a really interesting thing. It's a thermometer. You can stick it into Jupiter from here on Earth. It's amazing. They were, and so we in radio astronomy characterize our signal not by its intensity, but by its temperature. So he found this guy, Edward Ohm, oh, there's this three Kelvin signal. I can't get rid of it. It must be I did my error analysis wrong. And I would give him an F if he was one of my you know, first year students. Um, but he just attributed to lack of, of understanding. These other guys, Penzias and Wilson, who are also radio astronomers, they said, no, let's build another experiment, put that inside of our telescope, and do what's called calibration. Put Inject a known source of signal every second that has a temperature of about 4 Kelvin, 
because the signal that they're trying to get rid of is about three Kelvin, and you want to have it as close as possible to the pernicious signal as possible. They did that once a second, so they got billions of measurements, millions of measurements over the course of several months, years, and even um, by the end, maybe, you know, millions of measurements for sure. And they found they couldn't get rid of it either, but they measured it was exactly 2.7265 you know, degrees Kelvin. So uh, how does uh, having a four Kelvin source, how does the calibration work? Just out of it could curiosity. Be it could be larger. Imagine like you're trying to calibrate the microphone. Like you could do it with like a really loud sound, but the gain would start to compress. So there are amplifiers downstream from the detector in every experiment that I've ever worked on. And they only have a linear region over a very small region. And you want to keep it as linear as possible. That means you want, if you're trying to get rid of, you're trying to compare like a voice and you're trying to compare that to a jet engine, it's not as, it's not going to be as, as easy on the, on the amplifiers as getting, you know, a slight a gong or something, you know, a violin. Oh, so, so the idea of the noise is present in both? There's that... noise present in both, and you get you measure, what they did is they made a separate measurement just of the calibration system, which they measured exactly very well. Four Kelvin is the temperature of a liquid helium. That's a temperature that's not going to change. And it's certainly not going to change over a timescale of one second. And so they could compare unknown signal, known signal, unknown signal, known signal, like a scale, like a balance. So mm -hmm. another way to think about it is like this. You've seen these Libra kind of balances where you put two weights in a pan, right? What happens if you put like a, a one ounce weight on one side and a 20 kilogram weight and the, you don't get any measurement, right? You do get kind of a measurement if they're close in weight. That's why they use four Kelvin. Got it. But just to linger on the fact yeah. that there's a romantic element to the fact that you're um, arriving at the same temperature. That's kind of fascinating. Yeah. And you're measuring stuff in terms of, you're measuring signal in terms of temperature at the source. Yeah. So you get to, I mean, there's something about temperature that's intimate. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah, especially since, you know, all life is basically, you know, conversion of energy and trying to control entropy, which is then related to thermodynamics uh, exactly in that way. And this is um, very crucial kind of thing to do in science because they weren't looking for the signal. They found it accidentally, these two scientists, Penzias and Wilson. And I like to think that those kind of discoveries are the purest in science. Like when you see something, Isaac Asimov once said, like the most important reaction as a scientist is not Eureka, which means in Greek, as you know, mm. I have found it. it. No, he said, no. He said like, that's weird. Like that's a much better reaction or that's freaking cool. Like yeah. that's a scientist. Not like, oh, I found one because- Surprise. Yeah. Because yeah. if you find what you're going to find, that's what- leads us susceptible to confirmation bias, mm -hmm. which is deadly. And so, you know, as close to deadly as possible. So how does that take us to something that's potentially worthy of a Nobel Prize? Ah, so Penzias and Wilson weren't looking for a signal. They ended up discovering the heat left over from the fusion of uh, helium uh, from hydrogen, et cetera. And that was a serendipitous discovery. They won the Nobel Prize in 1978. It was the first one ever awarded in cosmology. My reasoning is, what if you could explain not only how the elements got formed, but how the whole universe got formed and kill off every other model of science? So if that weren't enough, every scientist, you know, worth his or her salt had told me and Andrew Lang and, and our colleagues, this is a slam dunk Nobel Prize, if you could do it. Because it was really explaining, again, the stakes of this science is different than like superfluidity, plasma physics. When you talk about the origin of the universe... It ties into everything. It ties into philosophy, theology. Um, you realize if Paul Steinhardt is correct, that the Bible can't be correct. In other words, the Bible is correct now. It isn't falsified, if you like, if you believe it. I'm not, I never use the Bible as a science book, obviously. But the Bible speaks of a singular beginning. 
what if you knew for sure the universe was not singular? It, was, it would be more like the cosmology of Akhenaten and uh, Egyptians than the biblical Torah, Old Testament, if you will, narrative. So in my mind, the stakes could not be higher. And again, it's not an offense because we need plasma physics. We need, we need every type of physics except maybe biophysics. <laughs> like we literally use every branch of physics, thermodynamics, superconductivity, quantum mechanics, all that goes into our understanding of the instrument. And even further, if you want to understand the theory that predicts the signal that we purport to measure. So I, I rationalize that if Penzias and Wilson won the Nobel Prize for this, if Holson Taylor won the Nobel Prize for indirectly detecting gravitational waves, this is decades before LIGO, um, by me detecting gravitational waves indirectly, detecting the, how the universe began, detecting the, the origin of the input initial conditions for the Big Bang nucleosynthesis, which won the Nobel Prize in 1983, these are like five Nobel Prizes, you know, potentially. For that reason, it seemed as close as you could possibly get to being a slam dunk, to outdo what my father did, to do, you know, really this impossible. And at that time, Lex, you know, again, I'm, you know, it sounds weird because people are like, oh, you wouldn't, you know, you you don't really, you, know, you still want the Nobel Prize. You're still like reading. And look, you wrote another book about um, And I always joke, I'm like, well, if you want to see if I'm a hypocrite, just get them to give me the Nobel Prize in literature. You know, and if I accept it, then I'm a hypocrite. But um, oh, wait, well, we'll get to <laughs> your current feelings on the Nobel Prize yeah. in terms of hypocrite and so on. Yeah. But so there's this ambition. Let's say this device, this kind of signal could unlock many of the mysteries about the early universe. Yeah. And so there's excitement there. So let's take it then further. I mean, there's a human story here of a bit of heartbreak. Not only was this possibly worth a Nobel Prize, if the Nobel Prize was given, you were excluded from the list of three that would get the Nobel Prize. So why were you excluded? Maybe that's a place to tell the story of Bicep 2. Yeah, so Bicep 2, like, you know, iPhones, or I know you're an Android fanboy, but, um, you know, every year they get a little bit better. They get more megapixels, they get more optics, triple X zoom, whatever, okay, right? We upgraded our detectors as well. The initial detectors were based on what are called semiconductors. They They have certain properties that make them very difficult to replicate at scale. And we wanted to make them into uh, into superconductors, which had a virtue that you could then mass produce them. Why superconductors? Well, again, we're measuring heat. So one thing about a superconductor is that it transitions from some finite resistance to zero resistance <laughs> over a very short span of temperature range. That means you can use that very short span dependency as an accurate and sensitive and precise thermometer. And so my brilliant colleagues around the world, in this case, Jamie Bach, and nowadays Suzanne Staggs at Princeton, um, they are just exquisitely making these, these sensors, tens of thousands of them. The initial BICEP-1 instrument, of course, we just called it BICEP, uh, that only had 98 detectors. <laughs> Simon's Observatory is going to have 100 times more just in one of our four telescopes. We're going to have 60,000 detectors operating full-time at 0.1 degree above absolute zero in the Atacama Desert. We'll get there. But in the case of the, getting back to what BICEP did, we upgraded it, made BICEP 2. In January 2010, uh, we had just installed in the exact same uh, uh, um, location at the South Pole, in the same building, which is ominously called the Dark Sector Laboratory, DSL, still operating to this very day, um, we installed a new receiver on the same platform as before. 
has very similar identical optics, cryogenics, vacuum, everything, except it went from 98 detectors to 512 detectors. So almost an order of magnitude, very substantial upgrade. Um, and it had certain other features that made it uh, even more powerful but than just a naive factor of five. Um, and then we started observing with that. And we knew we'd have years to go, and maybe we'd never see anything. Again, we're looking for these tiny little reverberations in the fabric of space-time produced close to the origin of the universes we could ever get to. So I was playing a role in that. Obviously, it had upgraded my um, a version of the original idea that I had had for Bicep uh, with along with Andrew Lang. And in January of 2010, uh, we were I was at a meeting at UC Berkeley, and I got a call from Andrew Lang's, uh, or I was in a meeting with Andrew Lang's uh, thesis advisor, Paul Richards at UC Berkeley. And he said that Andrew was dead. He had uh, taken his life by suicide. And this is a man, and I'd already lost my father at this point um, in 2010, but he was like a father figure to me, Andrew. He would give me advice on marriage, on like how I should be with my kids, and, and um, you know, what was the most important way to move through the academic ladder. Again, he was preternaturally suited to win the Nobel Prize. Everyone always thought he would win it. He's still, you know, if he were alive, he still could win it. In fact, his wife or his ex-wife won it, <laughs> Francis Arnold in uh, 2018. And, um, you know, it was just a power couple. And it, it destroyed me for a long time because, you know, he was, uh, he was just this magical person. I mean, I couldn't conceive of my career, my life, um, even like, you know, these, these aspects of, of raising kids and being married without him and to do it in that way, it felt like, again, I'm not, you know, he's got kids and I feel terrible for, for them, obviously, but it did feel like a betrayal. I mean, I'm just being honest with you. It felt like, why the F did you not reach out? You know, I thought we were close and I couldn't, you know, I told him everything and I felt like he had told me everything. And now he was gone, and then inevitably we had to keep running the instrument. I mean, there's millions of dollars invested, careers at stake, young people working tremendously hard. And then here we were, and like, who's going to take over the lead? He was the lead of the project at Caltech. And then it turned out that the uh, other collaborators with whom I had been working for years and shared a lot of ups and downs with as well, they had you know, decided to form a collaboration in which I was no longer the principal investigator. I was no longer one of the co-principal investigators as I was on BICEP 1. So I continued on BICEP 1 as the co-leader of it, but not on BICEP 2. And, um, you know, obviously that was pretty painful. This is all happening at the same time as you, as you lose this father figure. Now there's this yeah. kind of, so it's one betrayal in a, in a way, and then there's an, another or something that feels like a betrayal. Yeah. And he had, you know, kind of been the one, the only one looking out for my interest in the new experiment. I had moved from Caltech to UC San Diego, and there were other postdocs in the mix, all of whom had come there to work with him to get the, you know, the approbation that would then lead to their careers taking off as it did for mine. And, um, you know, so there was a competition. I mean, science is not free from egos and and uh, and competition and, and, uh, and desires, rightfully or wrongfully, for credit and attribution. Was he the source of strength and confidence for you as a scientist, as a man? I mean, we're, we're kind of alone in this world. As When you take on difficult things, we often kind of grasp at a few folks that give us strength. Yeah. Was he your, basically your only source of strength in this whole journey? Like primarily in terms of like this close-knit as a scientist, there were really two. There was one, this Russian cosmologist, Alexander Polnareff, who thankfully is very much alive. He was at Queen Mary 
university. Now he's retired. <clears throat> he was kind of a theoretical, you know, cosmological father to me. And then Andrew was was this counterpoint that was teaching me, you need to have a brand as a scientist. Every scientist has a brand and some of them don't protect it. Some of them don't burnish it. Um, but some of the skills about being a scientist, we don't teach our students, involve how do you cultivate a, um, a scientific persona? And he was the exemplar for that. In addition to being the avuncular, you know, father figure type character that really, you know, was the person I would talk to. I had issues with when I had issues with my own students and he would tell me how those were and he would tell me, you know, his misgivings about, <laughs> about people that he worked with or things in his personal life. And it was, it was, it was devastating. But again, like, who the hell am I? I'm not his kid. You know, he, his kids lost father, you know, it's, so I feel guilty talking about it in that sense, but it's just a reality, you know? Well, there is something that's not often talked about is people who collaborate on scientific efforts. I mean, that's, I don't, again, don't want to compare, but you know, it's it's sometimes when the collaborations are truly great, it sounds similar as when um, um, veterans talk about their time serving together. There's yeah. there's a bond that's formed. So like comparing family and this kind of thing is, you know, it, it uh, is not productive, but the depth of the bond is, is nevertheless, um, real because you're taking on something you're taking on the impossible you're you're trying to achieve something sort of like there's this darkness this fog of mystery that we're all surrounded by which is um what the human condition is and you are like grasping at hope through the tools of science <laughs> and you're doing that together with like a confidence you probably should not have <laughs> yeah but you're boldly pushing through and then for him to uh to take his own life. Can, can I ask you about this kind of moment that combined, I don't wanna say betrayal, but the, perhaps the feeling of betrayal that Bicep 2 kind of goes on without you, even though you're part of it, uh, you're not part of the leadership group. Can you describe those low points? Did you, um, was there a depression or was there um a crumbling of confidence. Yeah, I mean, it was it was so uh, wrapped up with my identity as a person. You know, like there's only a few different ways to have identity, and you know, unless you're unhealthy psychologically. One of them for scientists is often that they're a scientist, and that sometimes is their primary identity. Now I've got other, you know, I'm a husband and father, um, but but you know, at that time that was my identity. So to have that kind of taken away, it you know what it reminded me of being you know kind of adopted <laughs> in a sense, like my, like the one who created me or that I had played, you know, played a role in my life, that he abandoned me in the sense, it felt like these people are abandoning me. And the only thing I'd correct about the analogy that you use is like in military, in the war, they're all working, you know, for a common good. It's not like I want to be, get the most kills or even, I compare it more to like a, a band, like think about the Beatles, you know, and what they did. And then they like, you know, they ripped apart because of egos, credit. They had solo careers. They had, you know, relations with their intimates and, and so forth. And and there it's not only for the common good. There is more of a zero-sum aspect. Like I would say, science is not, science is an infinite game. You can't win science. You never get to the, oh, we won science. And even the Nobel Prize, they don't feel like, oh, we're done. They feel like a lot of times they're imposters, even to that day. However, science is made up 
of a lot of, lot of, lot of finite games where there is only one winner for tenure. There is only three winner, are only three winners for the Nobel Prize. And because of that, I think it's heterodox and it's very confusing, especially there's no guide. I never got a guide how to be a professor, how to teach, how to lead a research group, how to deal with the death of an advisor, how to deal with an unruly graduate student or two, (laughs) you know. So we're all like reinventing it, which is kind of ironic and insane if you think about it, because the academic system that I am a part of and you are a part of is a thousand years old, dates back to Bologna, Northern Italy, 1088 or so, first universities were established. And, you know, very little has changed. There's some guy or gal scratching a rock on another piece of rock (laughs) and, you know, lecturing in front. And there's only one better aspect nowadays is that back then, the students could go on strike if they didn't like the professor, and then he or she wouldn't get paid. Probably mostly it was he's back then. Nowadays, that barbaric process has been replaced by tenure, so I'm okay. Uh, but, <laughs> but no, it was a definite kind of uh, feeling of the rug getting pulled out from underneath me because, you know, here's the, he was like my consigliore. He was a guy I, you know, sought counsel and counseled me, and, and he's dead. And I felt like there is no one who's going to honor the agreements that we had. And he was a very soulful person. He was so much better at being a scientist than I could ever be. And just a loss for the cosmos. It just really hurt. And, you know, I thought, oh, like, you know, it's so sad because he could have won the Nobel Prize. I don't think like that anymore. First, I think about his kids. Felt at first, now there goes my chance at winning a Nobel Prize. And hence the title of the book was like, I knew I would not win the Nobel Prize. It also means that there's parts of the Nobel Prize that have to be done away with. It's a double entendre. Like, we need to lose aspects of the Nobel Prize to help science out. We can talk about that a different time. But in the context of, like, now thinking back on it, that was such a minuscule part of it. Because let's say he did win the Nobel Prize, or I did win the Nobel Prize, or, you know, any of us did. Would that have changed anything? Would that have brought anything back? It's so, you know, we say it's like vanity. It's futility. And, and, And I just... You know, for me, the Nobel Prize is like, it's, I don't want to say it's like insignificant because obviously it has a lot of power and it has influence. And, you know, I went back, I had Neil deGrasse Tyson on my show. I'm going to name drop. Okay. And uh, he prepares, he prepares like a surgeon before doing surgery when he goes on a talk show. So you see him going on Colbert Report, you think, oh, they just have a banter. He's just naturally gifted. No, he said, no, no, no. You say that you're you're undermining what he does. What he does, he goes back, he watches the last month of Colbert Reports, or whatever it's called, Late Show, and he says, how long does Stephen pause between questions? How long in the news cycle does he go back? What topics has he talked about with people similar to me? So I took Neil, and I did that for you. And I look back, how many times has Lex mentioned the words Nobel and Prize? And I put it into Google Ngram, and out came exactly the same number of times as show notes, show episodes as of this moment so you've said the words nobel prize over 240 times yeah i mean it it is so strange as a symbol that kind of unites this whole scientific journey right like um it's so it's both sad and beautiful that (laughs) a a little prize like a, a little award a medal a little plaque they'll be most likely forgotten by history completely some silly list um, it's somehow uh, a catalyst for greatness. It it resulted in you doing your life's work. Yeah. The dream of it. Would I have done it without the Nobel Prize? You know, 
I, I can't necessarily counterfactually state that that would have happened. So no, it definitely has a place. Um, and for me, you know, it is valuable to think about it, but the level of obsession that, that academics have about it is really, I think it is almost unbalanced becoming unhealthy. And again, I have no, I make no truck with the uh, winners of the Nobel Prize. Obviously I've, you know, now I've had 11 on the show and to think about, you know, like the one rule. So by the way, right after the denouement of the story, which I'll get to in a bit, um, you know, how our dreams went down to dust and ashes. Hmm. Um, I was asked by the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences to nominate the winners of the 2015 Nobel Prize in Physics. So like the one that I theoretically could have been eligible to win uh, in, in 2016, actually, they asked me to nominate. Now imagine if I ask you, Lex, you say, Brian, you know, instead of me inviting myself on the show, if, if you say, Brian, would you like to come on the Lex Friedman podcast? I say, you know what, Lex? Um, you know that guy, Brogan? I, I think you might have Can you introduce him to, to me? You know, like, you imagine how that would feel? Like, you'd be like, after that, you know, I'm humiliated. So I was asked to nominate the winners. And the one rule that they say, of all the rules that Alfred Nobel stipulated, there's only one rule that they maintained. In other words, he, he said one person can win it for something they discovered in the preceding year that uh, had the greatest benefit to mankind, made the world better, right? None of that was mentioned in the letter. It said many people can win it for work done long ago. They didn't mention anything in the letter to me, signed by the secretary general, nothing about benefiting mankind. They said, just one thing, can't nominate yourself. So none of these guys nominated themselves. Actually, a little known fact, they sent that exact letter just to you. <laughs> they, that rule was created just for you. <laughs> That's called the Keating correlate. Yes, exactly. <laughs> just to like- Good for them. Uh, <laughs> rub it in. That's, I mean, it's uh, in this particular case, of course, there's like a, some weird technicality or whatever, but in this particular case, it's kind of a powerful reminder. Yeah. No, that I, uh, the Nobel Prize leaves a lot of people behind. Yeah. And the, there's stories behind all of that. Yeah, I mean, here's a good example. Again, this is my friend, Barry Barish. He's become like a, a mentor and a friend. Um, he wrote the forward to this, uh, my book, Antonio Possible. He, um, he won the Nobel Prize because a different guy died. And he admits it. And he said it. And actually, it's funny with him because... I've, I've heard you talk, you know, very rhapsodically and lovingly and romantically about, uh, with Harry Cliff and, and a wonderful podcast with him, by the way, um, about the LHC and how wonderful it is and how in that, you know, we were about to build this superconducting super collider right here in Texas and it didn't get built and it got canceled by Congress. And, blah, blah, blah. and I'd say to Barry, that was the best thing that ever happened to you. And he's like, what the hell are you talking about? I'm like, if that didn't get canceled, first of all, the, um, even though it did get canceled, the Europeans went on to build it mm -hmm. themselves, saved the American taxpayers billions of dollars, and we didn't, we wouldn't have learned anything really substantially new, as proven by the fact that, as you and Harry talked about, nothing besides the Higgs particle of great note has come out. And actually, he's had a recent paper, but it's been an upper limit, along with his collaborators, an LHCB experiment that I'm going to be talking with him about. But, but the bottom line is, it was really built to detect the Higgs. So the SSC, for twice as much money. Uh, would have sucked up Barry's career and he would have been working on that. Maybe not. And then he would never have worked on LIGO and then he wouldn't have won the Nobel Prize, right? So you look at counterfactual history. That's not actually a big stretch, right? If the SSC had still gone on, he would have worked on because he was one of the primary leaders of that experiment. Second thing, if, um, imagine the following thing had happened. They won the Nobel Prize because in uh, September 2015, they detected unequivocal evidence for the in-spiral collision 
of two massive black holes, each about 30 times the mass of the sun, leaving behind an object that had just less than 60 solar masses behind. So one solar mass worth of matter got mass got converted to pure gravitational energy. No light was seen by them. Um, this particular date, uh, September 15th, September 14th, 2015, okay? Um, that, explosion because of the miracle of time travel that telescopes afford us, that actually took place uh, 1.2 billion years ago in a galaxy far, far away. They actually don't know which galaxy it took place in still, and they never will. Okay. That, if that collision between these two things, which have probably been orbiting each other for maybe a million years or more, if that had occurred 15 days earlier, Barry wouldn't have won the Nobel Prize. Because <laughs> it's hilarious to think that there's one human that won the Nobel Prize because uh, two giant things collided <laughs> a billion, 200 million years ago. And if it had happened eight, you know, 18 days, 20 days, 30, because that was the deadline for the Nobel Prize to be announced, they announced the findings in February, but you have to nominate the winners in January. So I could have nominated them up until January 30th, but they didn't announce anything and there were just rumors. And so they, he didn't, he, uh, but the reason that he wouldn't have won it, because there was another guy who was still alive, considered to be the founder and father of three of the three fathers, Ray Weiss, who did win it, Kip Thorne, who did win it, and the third gentleman at Caltech named Ron Drever, who passed away again. He was alive in 2016. He died in the middle of 2017. And then he uh, wasn't awarded the Nobel Prize. And here we are, several billion of hairless apes that strangely wear clothing. Uh, celebrated uh, three other clothed mm -hmm. hairless apes with a medal with one <laughs> with one particular element, and then uh, they made speeches in a particular language that evolved in uh, and bend down to get those medals in front of another guy yeah. uh, who wears even fancier clothes, who is the king of Sweden, and uh, and then they got some free food afterwards. They get some reindeer meat. That's right. <laughs> okay, excellent. Um, since you mentioned Joe Rogan in that little example, uh, what happened to you in terms of Bicep 2, I wanna kind of speak um, at a high level about a particular thing I observed. So I was a fan of Joe Rogan uh, since he started the podcast. I just listening to the podcast. I'm a huge fan of podcasts in mm -hmm. general. Yeah, And it also coincided with my entry into grad school and this whole journey of academia. So grad school, getting my PhD, then going to MIT and then Google, and then just looking at this whole world of research. What I really loved about how Joe Rogan approaches the world is that he celebrates others. Mm -hmm. Like he promotes them. He gets like genuinely, and I now know this from just being a friend privately, he genuinely gets excited by the success of others. Mm. And th the contrast of that to how um, folks in academia often behave was always really disappointing to me. Yeah. Because the natural, just on a basic human level, there is an excitement, but the nature of that excitement is more like, I'm happy for my friend but I'm really jealous and I want to even outdo them. I want to celebrate them, but I want to right. do even better. Right. So even that's even for friends. Yeah. So there's not a genuine, pure excitement for others. And then uh, couple that with just the, you now as a, as a host of a popular podcast know this feeling, which is like, there's not even a willingness to celebrate publicly 
the awesomeness of others. You right. p- people in academia are often best equipped technically in terms of language to celebrate others. They understand the beauty, like the the full richness of why the the cool idea is as cool as it is. And they're in the best position to celebrate it. And yet there's a feeling that if I celebrate others, they might end up on the cover of nature, whatever, and not me. Game, right? it's, it's, they turn it into zero sum game. What I, the reason why I think uh, Rogan has been an inspiration to me and many others is that it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. And, and forget money and all those kinds of things that, I think there's a narrative told that uh, academics are this way because there's a limited amount of money and so they're fighting for this. I don't think that's the reason it's happening this way. Mm. I think uh, I think you you can have a limited amount of money. The battle for money happens in the space of proposal, there's networking, there's private stuff public celebration of others and all, and just actually just how you feel in the privacy of your own heart is not have to do anything with money it has to do with you having a big ego not humbling yourself to the beauty of the journey that we're all on mm-hmm. and there's folks like Joe Rogan who in a, a comedian circles is also rare mm-hmm. but he inspired all these other comedians right. to realize you know what it's great to celebrate each other we're promoting each other and therefore the pie grows because yeah. everybody else gets excited about this whole thing and the pie grows. Right now, the scientists by fighting, like by not celebrating each other, are not growing the pie. And now because of that, sort of science becomes less and less popular. It's a flywheel, and, and yeah. exactly. No, and I want to point out two things. One is that I remember you went on Joe's show maybe a couple of years ago and, um, and then he gave you a watch. He gave you like a Rolex, right? Yeah. And I tweeted to you, and I think Omega. it's Omega. Omega, sorry. Okay, fine. Uh, the watch that went to the to the uh, moon, which we will get to in a bit. Um, I don't think he could give you what I gave you, though. By the way, um, and we'll get to <laughs> what that final gift package is for you. And by the way, I also wanted to mention because when you said Joe Rogan, I would not be upset, and you should definitely go on Joe Rogan. And I we had this conversation with him, yeah, because I was like, when I was, uh, uh, so moving to Austin. Mm-hmm. And had a conversation like, don't you think it's weird? Like, if we have the same guests at the same time or whatever, he's like, "Fuck that! Yeah. I want you to be more successful than me. I want he he truly That's wants right. everybody, like especially people close to him, to yeah. be more successful. Like, there's not even a thought like. But you uh, know why he does? And this is what I tweeted to you, and one of the few things I think you have retweeted that I sent you. I said someday you're going to give that to somebody. And today I wanted that to be me. No, no. Uh, <laughs> uh, Joe's Omega. No, but but the point is he sees in you that same, um, you know, grandiosity, that same genuine spirit graciousness. And I think that's true. I mean, you do do something very rare. I don't want to turn this into too much of a love fest. But I do want to say, even back to Andrew, you know, who I've almost been hagiographic hey, about, you know, just treating him like a saint. He said to me the same thing. In a moment of peak, he said, like, God damn it. Like, I have to train these guys and women that work for me so that they can be better than me so that they can go out and compete with me for the same limited amount of funding from the effing NSF. You know, that wasn't his, that wasn't who he was. Um, that was just an expression. Like I'm doing something which is fundamentally, but you know what? Um, when you have kids, hopefully, you know, please God, you will someday. Cause I think, and I hope we can get to talk about that later, but part of investment and part of doing something with, when you have a kid, like you can get married. You can marry someone because she's rich. 
or he's rich, or you can marry someone because they're good looking, or he's good looking. You can marry for all these different reasons that are ultimately selfish. There's no way you can have a kid and be selfish. Nobody says like, oh, you know what? I really want this thing that's three feet tall, that doesn't speak English, that craps on my floor, that wakes me up all hours of the night, that interferes with my love life. You know, nobody says that because it doesn't benefit you for months and months. A friend of mine who actually does the videos for me and does a lot of my uh, solo videos, he's having his first kid. He's like, what do I do? Because he always gets stupid advice. I'll catch up on sleep now. Like, yeah, I'm going to store sleep in my sleep bank. Like, I don't think Huberman and you talked about that, right? You can't do that. That's stupid. What you can do, give the kid a bath. Feed the baby. Let the mother relax. Like, in other words, do the things. And, and this really relates back to what Aristotle once said. Aristotle once said, why do parents love kids more than kids love parents? As much as you love your dad and your mom, they still love you more. And because you love that which you sacrifice for. Here's a proof. Um, I know a lot of families that have kids with special needs. Some, some with severe, uh, my, one of my uncles, uh, my, the Keating side, had uh, severe what they called mental retardation. Now it's probably has a different name. That, out of the nine other brothers and sisters, he was their favorite because they had to sacrifice so much for him. And I think of that, you know, in the small case, like Joe is kind of mentoring you or whatever, and you're going to mentor someone else. You love that which you sacrifice for. Sacrifice is reduction of entropy. It's storing and investing. And you want to protect that. And, you know, that, that to me really speaks to this. So, I, you know, I don't hold it against. But it is true. Like scientists are, you know, when they're described again, they're often said to be like children, right? You've heard this description. They're inquisitive. They're curious. They're passionate. They love them. And I'm like, yeah, and they don't play well with others. They're jealous. They're petty. They're selfish. They won't share their ball and they'll go home. Yeah. We, you can't, there's no such thing as a single-edged sword. I wish there were, <laughs> you know, because you, we, we need some more of that because you got to dull it up. But in this case, he, uh, you know, I, I think when, when you have this kind of investment in, in science, it's going to be natural. But that doesn't mean we have to like, you know, feed the flames of co competition, you know, and like really venerate. If you go to the homepage of the NSF or the Department of Energy or the recently released National Academy of Sciences Future of Science for the astro Astronomical Sciences for the next 25 years or more, they talk about how many Nobel Prizes these different science things could win. Exoplanets, life, uh, the discovery of the CMB, B-mode polarization, the nice that, you know, that's figure two in this thing. And I'm like, what message does that send to kids? Like, to young people? Like, that's what you should be doing so that you win this small, as you said, this prize given out by one hairless ape to another wearing a fancier costume eating Especially reindeer. Especially in the case of Nobel Prize, it's only currently given to three people. At most, which was never one of his stipulations. He actually said one. You can only give it to one person. So they change it. Why did they change it? I talk about, I speculate in the book. Oh, by the way, the book's only three chapters out of 11 about the Nobel Prize and its, its effect. But, you know, one of the things that's been so interesting, like I'm um, speaking, actually, this coming up in December is, the, is the, the Nobel Prize is given out on the day of Alfred Nobel's death. There's a lot of, and, and, and they bring in flowers, not from his birthplace, but from his mausoleum, which is in San Romano, Marino in Italy. Uh, it's a lot of like death fascination, you know, denial of death features heavily in the Nobel Prize because it's like what outlives a person? Well, science can outlive a person. My father has a theorem named after him. It's still, you know, in, in, you know, engraved in many places around the world. You or I, we can go to different places around the world. People know who we are based on our publications. We engrave things. We want to store things. We want to compress things. And I think that's, that's, there's something beautiful about that. But there is a notion of denial of death. Like there is a notion of what will outlast me. Especially if you're among the many 90-something percent of members of the National Academy don't believe in an active faith, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a creator, in a god. And, um, and science can substitute for that, but it's not, it's not ultimately as fulfilling. 
I just, I don't believe it can fulfill a person the way even practicing but not believing in a religion can fulfill a person. So, it, which is interesting because you, you do bring up Ernest Becker and the denial of death uh, in losing the Nobel Prize book. And there is a sense in which that's probably in part at the core of this, especially later dream of the Nobel Prize or a prize or recognition. I've, I've interacted with a few, um, you know, a, or a large number of scientists that are getting up in age. And there is the feeling of, of real pride, of happiness in them from winning uh, awards and getting certain recognitions. Yeah. And I probably at the core of that is a kind of immortality or, um, a, a kind of desire for immortality. And that, that was always off-putting to me mm -hmm. as opposed to, I mean, I know it sounds weird to say it's off-putting, but it just, rather than celebrating the pure joy of uh, uh, solving the puzzles of the mysteries all around us, just mm -hmm. the, the, the actual the actual uh, exploration uh, of the mysterious. Yeah, for its own know, sake. For its own sake, yeah. yeah. Well, right. that's why I said, you know, it's like a scientist should, okay, you have to be careful and not have any, you know, physical, it has to be platonic, but you can think of of scientists and mentor. I have a chart in the book and in my, a plaque made by one of my graduate students, former graduate students, she's now a professor in New Mexico, Darcy Barron. And uh, she made this plaque and it has 17 generations. So here I am. 17, you know, levels down. There's a guy, Leibniz, not the famous Leibniz, different Leibniz. 1596, he was born. And I'm in this chain. And I don't know if you know this, but in the Russian language, the word scientist means someone who was taught. I'll say it very simply. Mm -hmm. One who was taught, right? Uchoni. Uchoni. So um, it probably means a guy who was taught, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, just Uchone. mean a person. No, no, it's, some, it's, some, it's literally someone who was taught. Someone who was taught, right. Yeah. So what does that mean? To me, it has a dual kind of meaning, at least dual meaning. One is that you have to be a good student to be a scientist because you have to learn from somebody else. Two, you have to be a teacher. You have to pay it forward. If you don't, I claim you're really not a scientist in the truest sense. And I feel like with the work that I do in outreach and stuff like that, I'm doing it at scale. I'm influencing more than the eight, you know 24 kids I might have in my graduate class or undergraduate class. And they you know, potentially could reach thousands of people around the world and make them into scientists themselves. Because that's the flywheel that is only beneficial. There is no competition, there is no zero sum fixed, uh, a fixed mindset versus growth mindset, um, because it is an infinite game. Imagine a, a culture that had none of the trappings of the negativity of the Soviet Union or pre-World War I uh, um, Germany or Imperial Japan, you know, science celebrated and we're just making like a nation of scientists and like we're not doing it to become multi-billionaires or necessarily, you know, for any military purpose whatsoever. But if we had that, you know, sometimes I'm flying, you know, home at night, like when you fly into LA, you literally, it's very rare. You can see like the number 10 million. Like it's very hard to like visualize things. That you, you see a brick wall, you ask how many bricks are there? It might be a thousand, two thousand. 10 million lights, there's 10 million souls. And you can see, and they're discreet. They're not like the Milky Way all blending together. Each lost in their own busy lives. Right. Excited, fall in love, afraid of losing their job, all that. By the way, people should know that you're a pilot. Yeah. So you literally mean fly. Yeah, sometimes you, I get to do it. Yeah. You get to look at the, <laughs> the, the eye of God perspective on these uh, 10 million, on these millions of 
And I don't think apes. they're like constellations, but upside down, like the city. <laughs> it's like a constellation. Hopefully I'll stay, keep the plane the right way up. But when you think about that, like imagine they're all working together and imagine like you always talk about love and, I, but like, you don't know, you don't know that they're not worthy of love. Like, so you're looking down on them and it's just amazing. Cause you think like, what an amazing creation is man mm-hmm. and humans and what can we do? It's, it's phenomenal. It's so exciting. And then I get to do it, you know, it's a job I say, don't tell Gavin Newsom, but I do it for free. You know, I, I love what I do. And, but to think about like, oh, if my student succeeds and I'm not, no, it's, it's, it, it is unfortunate that you have experienced it. I've certainly experienced it. And I think there are ways around it. I think it is a, it is a vexing problem because people want to, you know, it's very tempting to keep your own kind of, you know, garden fertilized. <laughs> you know, one thing that's interesting is like, I, I, you know, people are like, why are you doing this thing? And, you know, podcasts, and you're supposed to be a, you know, serious scientist leading this huge project and um, collaborators. And, and I'm like, well, most of what I do, as I said before, it's, yeah, for you, it's Velcro. For me, it's like, you know, wh- what is the deal with the, with the safety standards on the truck that we're driving up to deliver the diesel fuel that will power the generator that will allow the concrete truck to, it has nothing to do with the big bang inflation, the multiverse, God's existence it has nothing to do with that. Right. So those are people I say, I have to talk to the people that come on the show. Those are people I want to talk to. And that's super fun. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's a real honor that I get to do it. I'm using, I have some unfair advantages, right? I'm at a top university. We have people that's affiliated with the Arthur C. Clarke foundation, you know, brilliant scientists coming through and but I felt like it would be kind of a, a a shame if I didn't you know allow them to teach at scale because they're better teachers than I am. Let me ask you a interesting, maybe difficult question. Have you ever considered talking on your podcast with the people who would get the Nobel Prize for Bicep Two if it turned out to be detecting what it is? Yeah, I mean, I'm still I'm still friends with them, and they have still gone on to. So I should we should say like why we didn't win the Nobel Prize, and then what happened with the group that is now leading it, completely div- div- that I'm completely divorced from in a in, sure. a, in a secular sense. Uh, we're friends, you know. We we see each other, you know. We send each other emails and stuff like that. Um, I'd love to get their sense of like what the, the the natural heartbreak built into the whole process of the Nobel Prize, what, what their sense is. I would love to hear yeah. an honest, real conversation. I understand your no, friends, yeah, but yeah. There's some hard truth that even friends no, don't talk they about. They weren't happy I wrote like, the book. I mean, I remember yeah. one of them, you know, was like, "Well, what's this I hear about a book?" And I mean, a lot of people told me not to write the book. They said it's going to give you know too much attention to the Nobel Prize. It's going to look like sour grapes. Yeah. Again, I say you can prove I have sour grapes or not, just give me the next prize. No. Uh, if so I, you would, if you get a Nobel Prize for literature, you would turn it down? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it's funny because Sabina Hassenfelder, uh, who, is, uh, who is a fellow kind of YouTube sensation. And, uh, and she's shooing for the uh, Nobel Peace Prize. You're right. She's so gracious and so good. She has that that that, that German, you know, just, just gentil, genteelness. Um, she's a little too nice for my taste. <laughs> She's, I would say. I wish but. she could really say what she thinks and not and be <laughs> snarky on occasion. So she wrote a review of my book when it came out three or four years ago. And she uh, she said, well, you know, Brian Keating, like she said, well, it's, you know, it's a good, it's interesting. He talks about, about cosmology, but, you know, um, he they can do whatever the hell they want. And he, you know, pro- presumably has this, you know, problems with it, but it's none of his business, basically. It's a private thing. And, uh, and at the end she said, but you know, if you want one good thing, he's a really good writer and he, you know, who knows, he could win the Nobel prize in literature someday. <laughs> I said, and then she uh, allowed me to publish a rebuttal on her blog, which was kind of funny, but anyway, um, no. So getting back to the guys that we were, you know, kind of collaborate or frenemies and uh, we're still, look, 
I, you know, we don't wish each other active ill. I've visited them. They're welcome to visit me. They have visited me. The thing I have to say is that I just wonder about introspection. Like for me, literally, I don't, I don't care about the Nobel Prize other than what it can do to, you know, benefit science. But I no longer, I did, but by the way, I did seriously care about how it benefit Brian Keating early on in my career. I'm just totally honest. Yeah, I don't, I'm not proud of it. It's kind of embarrassing. But now I would hope that people would say like, okay, the guy is like, you know, it's not, he's obsessed with it. My next book is not about this. <laughs> you know, it's about something completely different. And, um, you know, I, I do feel like people um, lack introspection a lot of times in science. Like we don't think about why we're doing what we're doing. And I think it comes down to curiosity. Um, one thing about Joe, and again, I've I've only listened to like uh, I have to confess you know you're like my father now I'm confessing my sins to you Father Lex Go Father on. Friedman um, I haven't listened to like that many of your episodes start to finish okay I'm with our friend a mutual friend Eric I've listened to a bunch of recent ones a Eric. bunch of uh, Einstein hmm. Weinstein uh, Weinstein Weinstein that's what it is um, I get I get them three confused Weinsteins. with the brother <laughs> the brothers Karamazov <laughs> the brothers Weins. And a few others. I haven't ever listened to a full Joe Rogan episode, but from what I've seen with him, he has a preternatural curiosity. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have passion. There are a lot of podcasts that have passion. Like I've been on their show. He has curiosity. Like he's not going to stop talking about something until he hops it, until he understands it, until he gets it viscerally. And I, I respect that because as I say in this more recent book, passion's like kind of like the the dopamine hit that gets you started like oh i'm gonna be great i'm maybe i could win a Nobel prize like that's not gonna sustain you mm -hmm. the sustenance comes from the passion converting to curiosity and what i want to do is convert you know as many things as possible to cure to things that i can then because actually i've had on you know people that that discuss addiction and there is an addictive quality to you know doing doing podcasts or whatever but there's an addictive quality being a scientist and you get to do things that are very specialized in specialized locations with special people, uh, paid for by other people who have no freaking idea what you do. I mean, imagine you worked in some like some job and you know, Feynman said he said all these contradictory things. Like when he was at, he was once said, like, he said, if you can't explain it to your grandmother, you don't understand it yourself. Mm -hmm. Then the day he won the Nobel Prize, a reporter asked him, What'd you win it for? He said, If I could explain it to you, bud, it wouldn't be worth a Nobel Prize. Yeah. So let's let's leave aside his inherent contradictions. But um but in reality, there is a kind of like dopamine rush that you get from it. But, um, but you know, what is ultimately going to be the sustenance of it? So, yeah, I, I do feel like um, we have to find a way to, to nucleate that. I don't know, actually, I don't know if it's, if it's like, can you, can you turn someone into a – I used to ask this question all the time. Like, can you make someone creative? Like, can you teach someone to be creative? I don't know. Can you teach someone to be curious? I don't know. I do know that kids are naturally curious. As they get older, they get less curious. Just like I heard from uh, the other forward authors, James Altucher, he said it once he did a, they did a study, kids smile 300 times a day or smile or laugh, adults five or six. Five or six. No, I'm just trying to get you to laugh, but you're not going to laugh. Uh, but anyway, no, it's true. So somewhere you lose 30 you know, to 50%. I'm not entertained. But that's because I'm an adult. No, and then I, I do remember there's some some distribution on those studies yeah. with the happier adults, small, a little more, but still the kids yeah. blow them out of the water. Just crush it. So can you, is it, or should, in other words, should we invest our energy in 
getting the half-life decay constant stretched out more for curiosity for kids? Or should we try to reset the the dopamine hit? And then, you know, I don't know. It's it's an open question. Well, I, I think um, it goes to David Foster Wallace, the key to life to, is to be unborable. I think <laughs> it, I think you could train this kind of thing, which is in every single situation. So like, um, which I think is at the, at the core, at least this correlated with curiosity, is in every situation, try to find the exciting, the fascinating. Like in every situation, you sitting at the, I don't know, waiting for something at a DMV or something like mm -hmm. that. Find something that excites you, like mm -hmm. a thought, like uh, watch people or start to think about, well, I wonder how many people have to go to the DMV every day. <laughs> and then try right. to go into the, the pothead mode of thinking like, wow, isn't this weird that there's a bunch of people that are having, to get a stamp of approval from the government to drive their cars, and then there's millions of cars driving like, every day. How can I do this better? Maybe yeah. there's some blockchain, and they could like VIN transfer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. no, and that that is a good that is. A good and then every situation, I think if you rigorously like just practice that mm. at a young age, I think you can learn mm -hmm. to do that because like sometimes people like ask me for advice and like what, to do this thing or, or that thing is. I think you at the core really have to have this muscle of finding the awesomeness in everything. Because <laughs> if you're able to find the awesomeness in everything, like whatever journey you take, whatever whatever weird um, Meandering path that, got you there. that you take through life is going to be productive. It's gonna end up in a, in a, in a great place. Mm. So like that muscle is at the core of it. And I guess curiosity mm. is uh, uh, central to that. But, you didn't win the Nobel Prize. The team of, of Bicep that led the Bicep 2 didn't win the Nobel Prize because of some space dust. That's right. Uh, Smick schmutz. Uh, which one is the that moon? One. Which one is? That one's the dust. The space dust, it. yeah. What are we looking at? So why why is space dust the the, the villain of this whole story? Well, it's funny, you know, I wrote these books and I don't know about you, but when you get all these books, I'm sure you get books, people send you books. They always come in these dust jackets, right? I was always like, what the hell is a dust jacket? Like how much dust is raining down at any moment? On a, I mean, this is immaculate. This room is Russian tidiness galore. But but in a normal household, how much dust is raining down? It's not, not really pretty until I wrote a book. And I realized, you know, I'm writing a story about the origin of the universe and the prologue, you know, to the cosmos. And dust is going to cover this story. It was actually, it's actually more a story about astrophysics and cosmology than dust. And this is the link between the cosmological and the astrophysical. So what does that mean? So astrophysics is broadly speaking, the study of uh, you know, physical phenomena manifest in the heavens, astronomical phenomena. Uh, cosmology is concerned with the origin, evolution, composition of the universe as a whole, but it's not really concerned with stars, galaxies, and planets per se, other than how they might help us measure the Hubble constant, the density of the universe, the neutrino content, et cetera, et cetera. So we tend have a tendency to kind of look a little bit, you know, they're like not all astronomers and astrophysicists are equal. They're all equal, but some are more equal than others. So we have a kind of a prejudice, a little swagger, right? And cosmologists are studying, you know, we're using Einstein, we're not using like, you know, Boltzmann, or we're thinking of the biggest possible pictures. In so doing, you can actually become blinded to otherwise obvious effects that people, you know, would have not overlooked. In our case, when we sought out the signal, we were using 
the photons that make up this primordial heat bath that surrounds the universe, luckily only at three degrees Kelvin approximately, we're using those as a type of film onto which gravitational waves will reverberate it, make them oscillate preferentially in a polarized way, and then we can use our polarized sunglasses, but in a in a microwave format, to detect the characteristic twofold symmetry pattern of under rotation. That's the technical way that we undergo it. I mean, there's a lot more to it. Um, but there are more than one thing that can mimic exactly that signal. First of all, when you look at the signal, the signal, if inflation took place, big if, but if it took place, the signal would be about one or two parts per billion of the CMB temperature itself. So a few nanokelvin, the CMB is a few kelvin, the signal from these B modes would be a few nanokelvin. It's astonishing to think Penzias and Wilson, 1965, measured something that's a billion times brighter. And that was what, uh, 60 years ago? Let's call it 60 years ago since they discovered it. Moore's Law, you're more expert than that. Let's call it every two years. So you're talking about like two to the 30th power uh, doubling or something like that at that. So let's call it two to the 20th, something like that. So that's like only um, uh, two to the 10th is a, is a, is a, is a thousand, right? Correct my math, I'm wrong. Yeah, two to the 20th right. is a million, mm -hmm. right? Two to the 30th is a billion. So you, we're outpacing Moore's law in terms of the sensitivity of our instruments to detect these feeble signals from the cosmos. And they don't have to deal with, you know, on the semiconductor fabric uh, factory in Santa Clara, California, they don't have to deal with like, you know, meteorites and astronauts and things like coming into the laboratory. It's a clean room. It's pristine. They can control everything about it, right? We can't control the cosmos. And the cosmos is literally littered with particles of schmutz, of failed planets, asteroids, um, uh, meteoroids, things that didn't coalesce to make either the Earth, the moon, the uh, planet Jupiter or its moons or get sucked into them and make craters on them, et cetera, et cetera. The rest of it is falling and it comes in a power spectrum. There's very few, thank God, chicxulub sized, you know, impact uh, or, or, you know, progenitors that will take out li all life on Earth. Um, uh, but there's extremely large number of tiny dust particles and, and microscopic grains. And then there's a fair number of intermediate sized particles. It turns out this little guy here is, um, is the end product of a collapsing star that explodes in what's called a supernova, type two supernova. So stars spend most of their life fusing helium nuclei, protons, into um, uh, and, and neutrons into helium uh, uh, nuclei. And then from there, it can make other things like beryllium and uh, briefly make beryllium and carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, all the way up until it tries to make iron and nickel. And iron and nickel are endothermic. It takes more energy than gets liberated to make an atom of iron. When that happens, there's no longer enough heat supplying pressure to resist the gravitational collapse of the material that was produced earlier. So the star forms, you know, goes inside out. That's how um, scientists discovered helium was discovered on the sun. I don't know. Did you know? That's why it's called helium. Yeah, they went there at night. And they, oh, well done. They went there at night. No, helium means Helios is the god of the sun. It was discovered in its spectrum from observations of the telescope like 150 years ago. It wasn't discovered like when uh, oxygen and uh, you know iron was discovered. Um, so it's it's only a relatively recent comer to the periodic table. So helium came after oxygen. Oh no! First, first hydrogen forms into helium. So that's the first thing that forms. No, in terms of discoveries. Oh yeah, after oxygen. Yeah, I think Priestley and. Yeah, and others. The Dalton discovered it in the 1700s. No, uh, helium was really only discovered from the spectrum of looking at the sun and seeing the weird atomic absorption and uh, called Fraunhofer lines in the solar spectrum. So, but when it tries to make iron, 
there's no longer any leftover heat. In other words, there's heat left over from fusing, as you know, the son of a plasma physicist. You fuse to uh, a hydrogen nuclei, you get excess energy, plus you get helium. So that's why fusion energy could be the energy source of the future, and it always will be. No, no, I don't know. <laughs> Hopefully it'll, it'll come much sooner than that. And so doing, trying to make iron, it takes more energy, doesn't give off enough energy, star collapses, explodes, and what does it spray out into the you know cosmic interstellar medium? It sprays out the last thing it made, which is that stuff. Luckily for us, because some of that coalesced and made the core of the Earth, onto which the lighter like silica and carbon and, and the dirt and the crust of the Earth were formed. And some of that made its way to the crust. The iron made its way to the crust. Some of that your mother ate and uh, synthesized hemoglobin molecules. And hemoglobin has iron particles in it. It's a quite amazing uh, substance. Without it, we, you know, we wouldn't have our red blood. We wouldn't exist uh, as we are. Is this so, a very long, complicated mom joke? <laughs> I, I've done enough dad jokes. My quote is up. Um, so I'm taking this this object, uh, you know, seriously. There's not all of it gets bound up in a planet. In fact, forming planets is very inefficient. Um, and so there's a lot of schmutz left over. Some of which gets in the way of our telescopes looking back to the beginning of time. And some of those molecules, like iron, is used in compass needles. Right? They're magnetized and magnetic fields in our galaxy can align them and make the exact polarization pattern that we're looking for. As if the compass needles get all aligned, that's like the polarization of, of the dust grain. It's like that, that polarizing filter. That means light polarized like this will get absorbed and light polarized like this will go through. Mm -hmm. So it's absorbing, it's making 100% polarized light out of an initially unpolarized light source. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened. And what we ended up claiming we, on, on uh, March uh, 17th, and I'm sure if you were there, you might remember this, at the Harvard Center for Astrophysics, there was an announcement. There were like three or four Nobel Prize winners in the audience. And the BICEP2 team, which I was no longer leading, I was still a member of it. In fact, in the announcement, the first person they mentioned, besides, you know, thank you, you all for being here, is me and my team at UC San Diego. Although I wasn't invited to go to the press conference uh, because that- uh, Harvard. Complicated. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, it's a little school up there in the in Cambridge area. Um, and so uh, they ended up uh, making this announcement that we had discovered the aftershocks of inflation. We had detected the gravitational waves shaking up the CMB. And on that day, past Lex Friedman podcast, back when it was called Artificial Intelligence, Max Tegmark said, goodbye, universe, hello, multiverse, and hello, Nobel Prize. So he saw that as confirmatory evidence, not only of inflation, not only of gravitational waves, but of the multiverse. Goodbye, universe. Hello, multiverse. Uh, multiverse is a natural consequence. Consequence of inflation, yes. According to its prominent, you know, supporters. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and of course, leave the poetry to Max, which uh, he does masterfully. Okay. So that, the excitement was there. I mean, maybe the initial heartbreak for you is there too. Yeah. That's, that's some of the darker moments you're going through, but broadly for the space of science, there's excitement there. Huge uh, excitement. And, and, and I often note that this is a problem in what I call, you know, the science media complex, because oftentimes you'll see things like past guest Sarah Seeger, Venus life, you know, exists. And that will be really, I mean, it's fascinating, right? And what the work that she's doing or her colleagues are doing, uh, or Clara, who was on your show as well. And that will be on front page, New York Times, Boston Globe, New, you know, San Diego Union Tribune. It'll be above the fold, make headlines around the world. And then, Six months, 12 months later, as is the case for us, retraction. Page C-17 of the Saturday edition that nobody reads, you know, and underneath the personal. So we have a problem in science that the 
you know, if it if it uh, if it explodes, it leads, you know, and we get this huge fanfare. And this is not unique to my experiment. This happened with an earlier discovery of so-called um, Martian life uh, of discovered in Antarctica, um, which was announced after peer review. We weren't peer reviewed at the point when we made the announcement. We had a press conference, and there are other reasons that the team leaders felt it was important to do that so that we don't get scooped by a referee who's unethical. Yeah. We thought we had done everything right, but that's confirmation Boy, so bias. There's like levels to this. <laughs> yeah, there were many <laughs> levels. And there were people, you know, me warning about you know, how it would be interpreted and wanting to also make sure that we put all the data out, including the maps, which we still haven't released. And um, so there were a lot of reasons to be skeptical, but the audit, the, the, the public never knows this. Yeah. I think it's, so I've made a rule that if I am ever in charge of, you know, doling out large amounts of science funding, that when you, you should keep kind of an option. In other words, you should have money for publicity. It's fine. Have money for your press conference. But hold in reserve in a bond to be used, hopefully never, but if it's to be used, an equal fund for the retraction, if it should occur. So you would like to see, because um, that's a big part of transparency is Correct. the, is the to me, in the space of science at least, that's as beautiful. <laughs> because it reveals the it's like it's uh it tells a great story there's a there's an excitement there's uh humanity there's a, there, there so there's a climax to the triumph but there's also a climax to the like the disappointment yes. at the end because that also eventually leads to triumph again that yeah. sets up that's the drama that sets up the triumph like with andrew wiles bringing from oz last right. uh from us theorem i guess it's not last name whatever the is like the the ups and downs of that, the roller coaster, the whole thing should be that documented. That is science. That is science. And when we don't do that, then we cultivate this aura that excludes other scientists, often from minorities or women. Back, you know, that you have to be Einstein. Like Einstein came out of the womb, and he was just like this guy with like curly. No, he wasn't. He was. Like, he wasn't bad at math. That was all. That's all nonsense. But he said that he. You know what he said? He attributed his success to Lex. He said, "I never asked my dad what happened." when I ran alongside a light beam as a kid. And thank God I didn't, because had I, he would have told me the best answer of the day, which by the way, uh, you know, he would create 20 years later as a 26 year old in, in uh, the patent office, obviously in Switzerland. And in so doing, by delaying when he asked these questions, he said, I approached it with the intellect of a mature scientist, not a little kid. And I wouldn't have accepted the same explanation. So sometimes assuming that scientists are infallible, ineffable, uh, omniscient, you know, being, I think that really does a disservice. And Jim Gates said, you know, he's like, Einstein wasn't always Einstein. And we cultivate this mystery and allure at our peril because we're humans until we have artificial Einstein, which I don't think will ever exist. You've launched the uh, assay or project where you hope to assess theories of everything with experiments. You have a YouTube video where you're announcing that. That looks super cool. Mm -hmm. um, can you describe this project? And you also mentioned kind of, you give a shout out to a little known fellow by the name of uh, Galileo Galilei as an inspiration to this project. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Galileo is kind of uh, my my avatar, my hero, the kind of uh, all around scientist that I would love to uh, approach the you know logarithm of of Galileo. He was not only a phenomenal scientist; he was a, an incredible artist, a writer, a poet, a philosopher. And back then, they didn't have distinctions between you know scientist and you know it was like a physician was like a physicist, um, and he would in. Indulge, you know, kind of these really intellectual flights of fancy 
thinking about uh, phenomena such as the Earth's tides or the or, or you know the composition of the Milky Way. And what's interesting about Galileo is that he was almost as wrong often as he was right. And Galileo uh, was not alone like this. Uh, I always say like Einstein had at least seven Nobel Prizes that he could have won for discoveries that later became true. But he also had seven, you know, huge, you know, impossible to believe blunders in some sense. Um, and it's too bad because he could have had a good career, as I always say. Uh, and Galileo was, was like that too. In other words, he would uh, fall victim to, I think, this confirmation bias that all scientists have to guard their lives against, their careers, their brands, their reputations against, which is the exclusion of evidence that doesn't conform to what you're trying to prove for one reason or another, or the radical acceptance of things that do comport with it uh, in order to bolster your confidence in. And both are equally intoxicating. It's a, you know, confirmation bias is a hell of a drug uh, because it, uh, it really, you know, reinforces this notion, which is partially sunk cost. You put so much time, effort, money, reputation into it. You don't want to be wrong and go back on it. And with Galileo, he would, uh, he would be incredibly perceptive about things such as, um, you know, the Earth being not located at the center of the solar system and the sun being the center, so-called Copernican hypothesis. Um, and he would use as evidence very, very interesting ideas that all of which were wrong, basically. And in fact, we weren't able to prove that the Earth orbited around the sun. And I ask you, like, can you prove the Earth is, is not flat? No, well, you're a flat earther anyway. But um, but but it's. I asked my proud uh, flat Earth Society member. T-shirts coming out soon. <laughs> Lexfreeman.com merch slash merch. <laughs> but it's actually not trivial to do that. But most of my students, graduate students, can prove that the Earth is round or explain how the Earth. It is actually not trivial to do though. It's I mean, not. Yeah. And much harder is to prove that the Earth goes around the sun. In fact, that's extremely hard to prove. And and almost none of my students, even after they get their PhD on the final exam, I kind of like to just, you know, give them a little bit of humility. Because I think to be a good scientist, you need to be humble. You need to have a little humility. And you need to have swagger. You need to feel like a little cocky. Like, I can do this. I can do this thing that Einstein, by definition, couldn't do. I'm going to attempt it. I'm going to attempt to do what was impossible just a generation ago. How do you uh, prove that the Earth goes around the sun? So you have to... Is it by the motion of other planets? So there are many ways to do it. I mean, obviously, you could take a spaceship, park it at the north uh, celestial pole of our solar system, and and just watch what happens. Uh, but obviously, that, that wasn't how it was discovered in the late 1700s. So it's called aberration. So if you look at stars um, uh, as the Earth orbits around the sun, uh, the position of the stars will sl shift slightly because of the tilt of the Earth and because the Earth is in motion around the Earth and uh, around the sun, and because the Earth has a non-trivial amount of uh, velocity compared to the speed of light in its orbit around the sun, uh, the stars will trace out little tiny ellipses, and those will correspond to the fact that we're moving around. Uh, if they're at infinite distance, which we assume that they are, they're not really. But for all intents and purposes on the scale of the solar system, they're infinitely far away. So that's called stellar aberration. And um, that was the first way it was discovered. And actually, we still use that. We have to correct for that effect when we measure the uh, cosmic microwave background. Because imagine you're inside of an oven it has some temperature, three Kelvin, a thousand Kelvin, whatever. If you're moving towards you, the photons that are coming to me in that direction will be blue shifted, hotter, and the ones behind me will be red shifted. I'll artificially impute a greater or lesser amount of matter or energy where you are, and it's an extension of the Doppler effect. So we actually make use of that and construct what's called like a local standard of rest. Anyway, um, so you can do it. But Galileo said, no, 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 I'm not going to wait for that. Uh, I have other proofs for it. 
One of which is that the earth has tides. And the tides come in and out twice a day, high tide and low tide. And it's he made the analogy of because the earth is moving around the sun, say this is the sun here, and it's moving around the sun, but it's also rotating on its axis. See how the water is sloshing up and down mm-hmm. inside the, the vodka bottle? Um, as that happens, he said that's what the tides are caused by. Totally wrong. Most people listen to this podcast. Just just, <laughs> just, oh, yeah, just right, so yeah. you know, if you're listening to this, he actually has a bottle of vodka in his hand. Half drunk. And, and, and we're both drunk and whatever else is <laughs> possible. Right. So as it sloshed around, he claimed that was what, no, it has nothing to do with that. The moon over there, the moon pulls differentially on the earth and the earth's ocean. That causes the, the oceans to bulge slightly towards and away from where the moon is. And the moon is actually the source of the Earth's tides. It has nothing to do with Copernicus, the orbit of the sun. So he was totally wrong about that. He also thought that the Milky Way was comprised only of stars, when we know it's made of gas, dust, nebulae, and things like that. Uh, so he had a fair share of blunders. Now, one thing I always kind of make note of, and I'm actually um, producing along with Jim Gates, uh, Fabio Ligianati, Frank Wilczek, um, and uh, Carlo Rovelli, and my friend Lucio Picciarillo, the first ever audiobook of one of, Gal- of Galileo's dialogue, the one where he claimed to find evidence for the orbit of the Earth around the sun, but it was an error. So you're reading parts of this yeah. text, yeah, which it's is a incredible. Brilliant book. So this book is uh, was written in 1632. It was written and it was the one that caused him to go into house arrest and almost threatened to be tortured. And that book um, uh, laid out his arguments for what was called uh, the Copernican or the um, or non-peripatetic Aristotelian, etc., uh, notion of uh, the planetary dynamic. And, and and eventually he was forced to recant that he believed in it, and allegedly he said he you know, he still believes the Earth moves. Anyway, so we're making that. It's written in the form of a trilogue. It's actually called the dialogue, but it's three people. There's one named Salviati, who was espousing Galileo's notions about how the heavens were orchestrated. And Salviati means like the salvation, the savior. Then there's a middleman, Segredo. So Carlo Rovelli is playing Salviati, brilliant one. <laughs> I am playing Segredo, who's like an intelligent interlocutor. I'm a, you know, I'm a kind of just, I can appreciate Aristotle. I can appreciate mm. Copernicus. Then there's this guy, Simplicio, the simpleton. And he espouses the words of the Pope. So you can imagine like, you know, you're working in the you know, Putin's government or you're working in whatever. Uh, and uh, and all of a sudden you're you're kind of putting the words of, of like the fool, literally calling the fool, but you're using the words of the all supreme powerful being on earth at that time was the Vatican Church, especially for an Italian like Galileo. So he wasn't as brilliant, you know, <laughs> politically uh, uh, as he was uh, astrophysically and otherwise. Who's who's uh, doing Simplicio? Simplicio is a friend, a friend of mine in, in um, University of Manchester named Lucio Picciarello. He's an Irish guy, but he has an Italian. No, no, he's he's a full-blooded Italian. But they all speak English and Italian. I only speak. Uh, and the forwards are written by. So one forward in this place has three forwards, uh, which is like a twelve-word. Okay, uh, the forwards are written. That by, joke for me. Yeah, that was a good one. Uh, the forward. I'm Three forwards. One of them is written by Albert Einstein, in which he says Galileo was not only one of the greatest scientists in history, this is Einstein telling Galileo, uh, but he was one of the greatest writers and minds of all of human history. That forward is read by Frank Wilczek, who you've had. Um, Jim Gates, who you've also had. He reads the translation, um, uh, the, the translator, Stillman Drake, who's a renowned uh, scientific translator. And then Fabiola Giannotti, she reads the introduction and dedication 
from Galileo to the Duke of Tuscany and uh, and some of the different introductions that Galileo himself had. It's just it's it's such a thrill to be able to do it. I only randomly found out because I had to, I wanted to study it, and it's like 500 pages long. And I was like, let me get the audio book because I'm yeah. an audio medium kind of guy. Didn't exist, so I said, let's do it ourselves. And so we did it, and hopefully it'll be out on Galileo's birthday, uh, which is February 15th, 2022. It'll be a ripe 457. But that's not the only one of his books. Galileo wrote many books. One of which is called The Military Compass. And this is an interesting book for my blockchain and your blockchain aficionados. In this book, he talks about a compass, which is not a magnetic compass, but an actual like slide roll. It's basically a slide roll. And he he it's a manual. It's like imagine if your phone, you know, came with a manual. Nowadays they don't, right? But this was a manual for how to use this slide roll, which is like enormously important. And he, and he gives a whole bunch of worked examples. It's a brilliant book. One of the examples is how do you convert money? So he does a money conversion, currency conversion between Ducati and Florentine Ducati and Scuti and, and whatever, you know, Lira, whatever. He does all these currency conversions. One copy of this book, or maybe, maybe two exist, first printings from 1600 still exist. If Galileo had just kept those in his family, they're worth $100 million dollars. Nowadays, you can't get a Scooty. A Scooty's worth nothing. Like a, a, a Ducati's worth nothing. I mean, maybe some collector wants a piece of paper, right? So it's a lesson. Like there are value in physical, you know, non-fungible tokens, this original non-fungible token. So, um, but then a third book is called The Assayer. So what is an assayer? So assayers were kind of like these alchemists, you know, physicists, chemists that would, uh, would, would be around a court. And every so often for the treasurer, uh, they would want to accept pieces of gold from the citizens and convert that to script or, you know, paper money. And to do that, they needed someone to verify with a standard of gold that they knew to be gold and uh, do some kind of semi-non-destructive evaluation of the purported object, the metal that was supposed to be gold. So they would take these pieces of gold, theoretically gold, and they would rub it on something called a touchstone. Touchstone was a special piece of rock, granite, whatever. It has no intrinsic value. It's just a piece of rock. But with that rock, you could assay and determine the content of this thing that could be worth, you know, millions of lira or whatever, right? So it's an incredibly important job. And um, so this person would take this piece of inanimate rock and use it to do something valuable. What I want to do in the assayer project is take this plethora of physical theories of everything. And I said recently you know, we should give a Nobel Prize to someone who doesn't come up with a theory of everything. Because there's just... <laughs> That's a good <laughs> There's just, like, it's just rotten with them. And, and, and I think it's great. You know, I often say that um, theory is kind of like software, and I'm not denigrating software at all, but, like, you can create a lot of software. You can make a quine, and it'll make its own quine, and, it, like, you can make infinite amounts of software. Look it up, kids. Yep, that's a, one of my favorite videos. And you can so you can replicate. You can't replicate. You can't make a telescope that makes a telescope that makes a. Tel In other words, hardware is kind of like the non fungible token. That's the ultimate minted, you know, limited edition. The book, the the compass book, like I talk. And so um, it's very expensive. That means you have to be very careful before you invest decades, billions, and humans into pursuing one of these theories of everything. You have to have good intuition for it. And lately, what I've seen is not predictions, but retrodictions. So you see that the Large Hadron Collider will come out with a measurement. And then so-and-so will say, oh, this is, uh, you know, uh, this is compatible with string theory. Or G minus two of the muon. It has these bizarre properties. Fifth force, string theory predicts this. Um, uh, string theory solves this. 
um, uh, neutrinos, uh, sterile neutrinos, uh, large hadron collider uh, uh, bottom or B experiment, blah, blah, blah. They'll say that it's compatible after the fact. And it's not so bad, right? Because look, what did Einstein do with GR, general relativity? The first thing he did was not predict something new. He looked at the anomalous behavior of the planet Mercury. And he saw it was behaving strangely. And people had said, oh, that's because there's another planet hiding behind the sun that we can't see that perturbs the orbit of the planet Mercury. And it's always, it's called Vulcan. Um, that was one approach. That's kind of like the dark matter approach where it's like there's a clump of matter that we can't see that's influencing the planet that we can't see. And we use that to divine and intuit the existence of the other planet. That's actually how Neptune was discovered. Neptune was discovered because of the anomalous behavior of the planet uh, Uranus. So Neptune was dark. We couldn't see it. It was tugging on Uranus in a certain way. And that led to um, Leverrier discovering the planet, predicting where this planet should be found. So it had a good heritage in physics, right? To predict this planet that you couldn't see that worked. But Einstein said, no, um, it's caused by the warping and bending of space-time due to the presence of matter will later become known as the Einstein equations. So he he explained why Mercury did that. He didn't, and it was known since the time of Newton that Mercury was behaving in this really freaky way. So he didn't predict it. He retrodicted it. That's fine. But at some point, you should come up with something new that's uniquely predictive of your theory, as I just said. The theory of dark matter in the context of Neptune is actually a valid theory. It just happens not to make sense in the context of uh, Vulcan. <laughs> and so um, if he had kept doing that, maybe, you know, maybe perhaps he wouldn't have come up with these other predictions that he would later reject. Like he rejected the existence of gravitational waves. You and Barry talked about that. He didn't actually believe it. It was the one peer-reviewed paper that he had. You know, he used to send back in those days, he sent a letter to Nature, Physical Review, publish this, you know, I'll let me know how much it costs. You know. <laughs> and they got it rejected because he said, you can't detect gravitational waves. And actually, or they're not real. And the guy showed that they're real because he can't corrected a math error in Einstein and Rosen's paper. Um, so it's fascinating. What should the assayer do? He or she should look at these theories, look what things they explain that already exist, and look at what new predictions they can uh, claim to explain if we can build experiments to, to test them. So you have to kind of challenge yourself to think about what kind of predictions can they make such that we can construct experiments. So that's like ultimately back going to the, uh, to the signal, to the experimenter theorist, yeah, essentially. That's right. So like very experiment-centric exploration of the fundamental theory of everything. That's right. And the best scientists, the best physicists, were both experimentalists and theorists. Or, or at least that they, if they were experimentalists, they understood the theory well enough to make predictions or to explore the predictions and the consequences of those predictions. They, Or if they were theorists, they were like uh, Galileo. Like Einstein has patents for things that he invented. Um, and then, you know, some of his work led to the laser and the maser. Um, so he had practical, it wasn't just pure airy-fairy, you know, quantum reality and exp expanding universe. Um, so in this case, what I want to do is look at, you know, there's 10 different theories of everything or cosmological models. They make predictions. They have advantages and disadvantages. And I'm just asking the question, why aren't we applying Bayesian reasoning with confidence intervals? Why don't we have updates? Every time an experiment comes out, we can update our credulity in that experiment or that theory, rather, based on the results of the experiment. And we shouldn't do it after the fact, or as, you know, Michio Kaku has said, oh, well, you have to tell me what the in initial conditions are. And that's not my job. You're supposed to tell me if string theory is correct, what should it predict if it's true? There's one big problem, which I should say, that um, to be a good assayer, I think you have to, you have to be um, worldly in the sense of 
um, worldly and curious, like we were talking about before with, with you and Joe. And you can't only talk your own book. You can't only understand your own pet theory of everything. Um, you can't only say, well, I only understand string theory and I don't have time for these other theories or as if it's beneath me to even under, uh, you know, go into Garrett Lisi or Eric Weinstein or Stephen Wolfram or aspects of, you know, M theory, et cetera, et cetera. And there are some that say, you know, like, why do we give, um, you know, string theory so much, um, so much of an advanced pass when it, we, there are actually predictions it's made that are completely anathema to what we observe in physics. Like the dark energy should be negative uh, and we see it as positive. Like that, that's a huge strike. You know, if you told somebody, here's my tenure application and what do you, oh, I've made this pretty, if it wasn't done by, you know, Maldacena and, uh, you know, Witten and, and folks like that, I don't know if it would have had the traction, the endurance, the resiliency that it's had. And that worries me because all these men and some women are making these fantastic, brilliant, beautiful ideas and they're not even looking at what their neighbor's doing. There's a, th thing that I really enjoyed seeing and I don't see often enough of these theories, which is others who are also experts kind of uh, studying them sufficiently well to steel man the theory, exactly. to show the beautiful aspects of the theory. Uh, you know, I see that with Stephen Wolfram. He has a, a very different uh, sort of formulation of physics with his physics project. Now I'm, uh, it's, you know, physics is a foreign land to me, but uh, his formulation, especially in, in the context of cellular automata, hypergraphs, just as objects, as mathematical objects themselves are, are familiar. And so I'm able to see the, the real beauty there. And it saddens me that others in the physics community can't also see the beauty. Like give it a chance. Give a chance to see the beauty. And that- Give it your respect. respect. So there is one person who does take, time and is what I consider to be a great scientist in terms of what he thinks. He obviously has invested interest in his own theory and it's Eric. Yeah. Eric's got a truly encyclopedic knowledge of the history of physics and he has a, a great warmth and graciousness when it comes to giving other, and I've witnessed this and I've had, look, first of all, I think debate is pointless. Like, I don't know about you, but if you've ever voted like, oh, I saw this debate and, you know, because uh, Trump did so badly, now I'm going to vote for Biden. No, it never happened. You almost never change anybody's mind unless you debate with love, unless you have almost like we're going to win together, like the red team approach in the military, they're trying to win a war. So they may disagree on, this, on the tactics day to day, but the strategy, we have to win this war. I love you and I want to protect you. I don't see that in very many of these physicists from Kaku. I almost see it, it's embarrassing in some ways because they'll, they'll almost mock with the exception of Eric. You know, Garrett's interesting. You know, his theory is, you know, people have a lot of issues, very technical. Uh, but Eric has taken the time to try to understand it. Eric has taken the time to understand Peter White's theory. And I, I don't see, I don't see the same graciousness extended from them. I'm sorry to yeah, say. Yes, essentially, you're you're right. You're right. I mean, with Eric, he, he hasn't. He he wants to, but he hasn't extended the same for Stephen Wolfram because I think. No, Wolf, he did. No, actually, no, he did. He did? I, I had a debate with them live on my show. No, I did. I, I listened yeah. to it, but like, I, I just think it's outside of the toolkit oh, that Eric is comfortable with. So it's not. It's not that he's not. But you're the main thing that's often absent, and Eric does have is like the willingness and like not just like dismissing or mocking the that he's he's reaching out but okay so, i mean what if it's not 
you know, I made a joke when they were on. I was like, how many theories of everything can there be? You know, Highlander, you know, there can be only one, you know, I don't know. Maybe. But he, of course, also like the other folks mm-hmm. who propose a theory has um, in ego. No. He, uh, he rides a dragon <laughs> with the dragon representing the ego. Well, let me ask you about your friend, Eric Weinstein. So he proposed initial sketches of geometric unity, which is his theory of everything. Maybe you can elucidate some aspect of it that you find interesting. But um, what do you think about the response he got from the scientific community? Well, you know, some of the response came from people academicians, professors. Some came from a lay audience, and some came from trained scientists who are no longer, you know, maybe practicing in universities. Um, I thought it was, there was a lot of vitriol, which surprised me, because I look at what he's trying to do, and it was always, the vitriol would always come with some element of ad hominem, um, and maybe that's his personality, maybe that engenders this or whatever. Maybe there is kind of just a natural tendency. You know, I always get these emails. Professor Keating, um, I have a new theory. Einstein was wrong. I'm going to prove it. I'm not good at math, but if you help me, I will share my Nobel Prize with you. And I'm like, oh, thanks. Have you read my books? You know, um, <clears throat> In other words, it's always taking down, taking down the dragon. It's always taking down the Kung Fu master, right? that you get the hit points from D&D. You get their hit points, you take their cards, you get their wrist tokens from Kamchaka. And thinking about with Eric, it's like, because what he's doing is so aspirational, it is grandiose in a good sense. What he's trying to do is, is construct a geometric theory of everything that has aspects of supersymmetry and stuff embedded in it. He's trying to meld that. It has very um, unusual features and that it features not only multiple spatial dimensions, multiple time dimensions. It uses new mathematical objects that he's invented. And look, I had, uh, you know, had him on my show. I've talked with him. We've had consultations with other physicists, you know, where he'll come down and I have a visitor's office and he comes down to San Diego sometimes and spends time there. And we talk with eminent mathematicians and physicists. Um, Eric's uh, been out of the academic world for a long time. And there is, as I said before, an aspect of persuasion that must take place in order to get anything through. And I think there was a slight amount of um, good nature, not ignorance, naivete, but just the sense that if this is right, everyone will recognize it. If you build a better mousetrap, the world will beat a path to your door, as the expression goes. That's completely untrue. That almost not, that doesn't even happen with mousetraps. I mean, you know how many freaking mousetrap types there are? It's like, no, they don't beat a path to your door. You have to sell that freaking thing. You have to sell it like Steve Jobs or Elon. You I have never, I've had one paper out of 200 papers I've published in peer-reviewed journals. I've only had one, half a percent, published with no referee's comments. In other words, published like Dream, submitted it, published, and it happened to be in a prestigious journal. So I was pretty psyched about that. But you almost have to crave the response, getting it back from a journal. And I think he doesn't see, first of all, he doesn't subscribe to the peer review process. He thinks that is anathema to the way sciences invest interest in public, in journals, et cetera, et cetera. I think you can have elements of peer review that are substantive and valuable. Um, I think you have to learn from your critics. One of my conversations with John Mather, he talks about loving your critics in this book, um, but not being so open to their criticism that their criticism goes to your heart and not being so open to their compliments that their compliments go to your head. It's a very tough Scylla and Charybdis to walk. Well, uh, there's something, I mean, I want to be careful here because I'd like to talk to Eric about yeah. this 
uh, directly, but I'll just from a from a perspective of a friend. Yeah, want to ask about the um, the drug of fame. Mm. So there's also the public uh, perception of the battles of physics, <laughs> and so there's a very narrow community. But then there's the way that's perceived. Um, the exploration of ideas is perceived by the public. And so there is a cert certain drug to the excitement that the public can show when they sense that you have something big. And that in itself might become the thing that gives you pleasure. Mm. And... Um, I think that with theories of everything or with any kind of super, super ambitious projects, and this is taking us back to when you were ambitious about trying to understand the origins of the universe. If you convince yourself that you have an intuition about the origins of the universe and you have a platform like you do now where you start to communicate your intuition. It's 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 hazy, like all of science. You're still unsure, but you have a sense. I mean, perhaps you don't have that as much with it as an experimentalist because you always kind of start going, okay, how can I build oh, a yeah. device <laughs> that to to see through the through the fog? But if you're more like a theoretician who kind of works in this, in the realm of ideas, in the realm of intuitions, it's uh, it it is also a source of pleasure. You mentioned dopamine. Yeah. A source of dopamine that you can communicate to others that you're really excited by the possibility of solving the deepest mysteries of the universe. Yeah. So there's some aspect to which you want to be a, a Grigory Grisha Perlman mm -hmm. and go into the hole yeah. and get the work done and shut the hell up about the, I'm um, yeah. speaking about myself, about, you know, uh, talking planning. about the dream and planning and exploring how great it will be if my intuition turns out to be correct. Yeah, that's right. If my, the the sketches I have turn out to actually build the bridge that takes us to a whole new place. As a friend of Eric's or a friend of, um, or my friend, what kind of advice do you give? What is your role? Is it to be a supporter? given that he has many critics, or is it to be in private um, a critic? Like a lot of my friends will say, hey, shut the hell up, <laughs> just get it done. Well, first of all, I wanna ask you a question I've asked him, and it comes from uh, Animal Farm by- uh, <laughs> my, Probably George. my favorite book, yeah. So you remember Benjamin the donkey? Yes. And he's talking to the pig. I forget the pig's name, you probably know. Anyway, the pig says to him, you've got this long, lustrous, beautiful tail. You're so lucky. I got this short, curly, little squiggly thing that does jack squat. Tell me, how does it feel to have such a lustrous tail? And Benjamin says, well, the good Lord, he gave me a tail to swat away the flies. But you know what? I'd rather not have the tail if I didn't have the flies. <laughs> so I want to ask you, as I've asked Eric, is it worth it? You know, you've got these, you've got these beautiful tail, but there are Flies. I'm not saying in a negative way. I'm just saying you get unwanted distractions, dopamine, you know, it's kind of the highlight, the spotlight effect. It's obviously allowing you to do things that you could never do alone. And I think, you know, first of all, I'd love to know how you answer that because that's something I don't feel I can relate to myself. Well, this has to do with more like 
platform a platform stuff yeah scale oh i um that has no very little effect on me i i enjoy it i enjoy meeting new people but that has nothing to do with platform mm -hmm. yeah no that has no effect on me um do i i'm want somebody that enjoys the act itself mm -hmm. so the, this conversation the reason i'm doing this podcast with you today is because that allows me to trick you into talking to me for a prolonged period of time. I don't care about platform. No. I assume nobody listens. It really doesn't matter. Yeah, and if it got it right, my, my whole test of it, it was a good podcast. Because how do you know? Like, podcast has been around, what, 12 years? How do we know as podcasters we're doing a good job? Like, sometimes you, someone will say, that was the best interview I ever had. But that doesn't happen that often, at least for me. But if you realize that you forgot to put the SD card in that little guy and the Zoom didn't work, would you do it again? And I think if you say yes to that, that was a good podcast. Yeah, exactly. That's that's exactly it. So in that in that space, yeah, um, all Give of it is worth it. Yeah. But but the dream, the the, the I'm more referring to the psychological effects. Mm. Forget the platform. Forget all of that. Mm. You know, I maybe shouldn't even brought up the platform because it really has to do even in your own private mind, mm. which is what I'm struggling with. I enjoy the planning, the dreaming, the early stages um, so much that um, I often don't take projects to completion. This is a psychological effect that I'm sure basically everybody, every engineer, yeah. everybody that does anything goes through. I just, uh, in this case particular, I think it, it also applies. And I wonder as a friend, what is the role? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that effect has been documented everything from, you know, planning telescopes to dieting. So there's a, there's a tiny bit of dopamine that you get visualizing how you're going to feel. You don't need to know this, but you know, you don't deal, but losing five pounds. Uh, I said, oh, I'm going to lose five pounds and I'm going to be able to do run, you know, a minute faster. So there's a part of me when I'm planning the diet and the meals and the, and the exercise that I get a little bit of that thrill and that actually saps a little bit of my willpower to actually complete the task that will take me to that goal. Yeah. So that's a documented effect. And that happens in, um, in, in project planning and project management. It's a very, very important thing to guard against as a manager of a big project. With Eric, it's interesting because with him, uh, first of all, we, you know, we relate extremely well you know, on a friendship level and uh, very close. He does remind me a lot of my father. And I, I've told him that, you know, just as a mathematician, as a big thinker, as, you know, in his case, as a father, you know, the father kind of figure that I didn't have in a sense, um, but that he is, he is a true lover of life. He knows he's got a huge platform. He knows he gets a lot of attention for what he does. Um, and, you know, I jokingly say, well, it's one thing, like, how do you know, Lex, that someone's an expert? So experts say. There's a good rule Ray Dalio writes about in principles. He says, an expert is someone who's done something three times successfully. <laughs> like, you can do one th something correctly once, you could do something correctly. It's very hard to pull off like three projects, three telescopes, three whatever, right? So um, so look for, ah, it's arbitrary, it could be four, it could be two, right? But the point is, look at Eric. So how many things has he contributed to and made you know, pretty substantive kind of uh, paradigm shifts for different people? I would say he's been right many times. Does that mean he's infallible, that he's ineffable? No, of course not. For me, so what I'm saying is I get a little bit of the joy of kind of learning something purely as a, as a scientist, something completely outside of what I do, mathematics, gauge theory, um, the, the, the kind of very, um, very advanced geometry topology that he's interested in. But every now and then, 
I will sneak in that I want, you know, I've told him, I'm going to turn your son into an experimentalist despite you. You know, like <laughs> he is not going to be a theorist. Yeah. Zev is not going to be a theorist. He is working with me. He is learning from me. And he's, we're trying to get him into, he wants to bypass all of the, you know, the kind of nonsense of, of undergraduate and go straight to graduate school. And I've tried to encourage him that maybe he could do it, maybe he can't, but there's no other way than to try. And so we, I've prepared a whole curriculum for Zev to basically bypass all of undergraduate. And yeah. to his credit, he he's done, earns all the credit. He's learned it to a level that matches many of my Okay, hold on a second. I have to push back, and this is me saying it, and I'll, yeah. I'm sure I'll talk to Eric about this. But to say you, you said Eric's done was right on multiple things. I think Eric has a great, deep insight about human nature and how societies work, and he says a lot of wise words on that world. But I think if we're talking about experts, you kind of have to prove, you know, it's like Michael Jordan playing baseball. <laughs> like he's proved it many times that he can play basketball, but he's also got to prove that he can play baseball. Right. And I would say the whole point of, I mean, of radical ideas is you're not, I mean, it's very hard to be sitting on a track record of, I mean, you're, when you're swinging for the fences always, you're, uh, there's not a track record to sit on and uh, like Max Tegmark is an example of somebody who has a huge track record of more like acceptable stuff, yeah. but he also keeps swinging for the fences in every other world. Right. So he has that track record. Yeah. With so, Eric, if you look at just the number of publications, all this stuff, he did really, he chose not to travel the academic route. So there's no proof of expertise except sort of an obvious, uh, linguistic demonstration of brilliance, but well, that's not how yeah. physics works. So right? there's, a, there's a polite way to damn somebody as a scientist and say he or she, she, they really know the history of physics very well. <laughs> like, <laughs> like physicists always love it. Like Sean yeah. Carroll always jokes about like, you know, like physicists should never talk about history of physics. <laughs> um, but it's more than that. So Eric has certainly contributed in finance and finance specifically and gauge theory and economics and um, and inflation dynamics and the non-cosmological. Hold on a second. That's yet to be proven. He has a lot of powerful. Well, gauge theory is calculus. Is calculus proven? I mean, he 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 has a gauge model for currency um, for currency uh, uh, exchanges between different nations that yes. is explanatory. Not not. It's not. Um, you know, is it is it is this something? In other words, it's a model and it's used for pedagogical purposes. And it might be okay. And it it's might, unique to him. It, I mean, to him and Pia. Yeah, yes. Right. It might be a powerful model. It might be one that actually deserves a huge amount of applause and celebration, but it's not yet received that. And that's one of the things that Eric talks about. It has not received the attention it deserves. Yeah. But it has not yet received the attention it deserves. And so like the, the well, proven yeah. expertise thing, mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of people that go to their grave without the recognition they deserve. And it's a tragedy. Sure. But- the fact is, like, you you have to fight for that recognition. The tragedy happens for a reason. You can't just say this person is obviously brilliant and therefore they deserve the credit um, uh, in every single domain. It yeah. doesn't it doesn't like transfer immediately. There's nobody yeah. that's well. At least I wouldn't argue. Eric is one of the special minds in our generation. But you still have to fight the fight of physics and prove it within the community. And I, right. I think the same applies in economics. You can't, I mean, as somebody uh, that, uh, you know, I've, I've gone through the academic journey, yeah. just like you said, 
the peer review, all of those things, flawed as they are, that's the part of the process. You have to convince your peers, the, um, the people that are as, as obsessed for whatever the hell reason about that particular thing that you're working on. Yes, there's egos, yes, there's politics, it's a giant mess, but I think it's a beautiful mess through which you have to go through in order to um, reveal the power of your idea to, to yourself and to the world. Well, let me use an example. So um, you know of James Clerk Maxwell, <clears throat> and he invented the laws of uh, electromagnetism, which is the first example of a unification principle ever displayed by the human mind in history. Math, purely mathematics, um, unifying completely disparate phenomena. In one case, electricity, charges, uh, static electricity, lightning, and the other magnets, bar magnets, currents, et cetera. Unified them. You know what he did? Uh, I like to do a thought experiment. So imagine Twitter exists 1864. Maxwell's working away. And he goes, I have this wonderful idea with fluxions and and uh, inductive virtue and blah, blah, blah. And it revolves on this thing called an ether. And by the way, there are these little vortices and gears. And the gears have these planetary things. And they suck up vortices. And the vortices determine the density of the electromagnetic potential. Be like this guy's a freaking not moron, and and you, what would you do? Come on, honestly, you would say that everything this guy does is wrong. I mean, he's got this idiotic idea, mm -hmm. and it would be proven falsified a couple of decades later by uh, Michelson and Morley. And in so doing, you would have thrown out a very beautiful baby with bathwater. Imagine Twitter. Imagine the tweet storm. You know, Clerk Maxwell uh, at Clerk Maxwell uh, one would get. It would be brutal, right? And to the detriment, and that might even set back history. Imagine Yang Mills doing the same thing. Churn Simons, a lot of these things are very fantastic. But but why Lex? Why does Ed Witten? Why does Juan Maldacena? Let me give a good a good example. Juan Gast, brilliant guy, I love him. He is the reason that Stephen Hawking conceded his black hole information paradox loss uh, issue. What did he conceive it? Conceded based upon Maldacena's calculation in ADS CFT and five dimensional wormholes above. Is any of that? First of all, we don't live in an ADS universe. Second of all, we don't know if wormholes are traversable, if they exist even. Uh, you know, these are devices, you know, Kip Thorne is popularized for movies. It's like to say that this is uh, something on which I will concede a bet. Now, obviously, Hawking was doing that for publicity. Why does Maldacena, why does, and he's got a pretty high H index, pretty well respected guy at IAS, love talking to him, brilliant guy. By the way, also had uh, made use of Eric and Pia's work on gauge theory and economics uh, originally and won, I believe, the breakthrough, I can't remember exactly what, but partially, you know, credit some of the work that he did, which appears there's a footnote to Pia Milani's thesis and some conversations with Eric, I think, in it. Anyway, getting back to that, why, why is there not the same skepticism? Is it because Maldacena, who's an eminent physicist, obviously, has published, you know, realistic work and done and done. what about Witten? You know, Witten gets a pass. I mean, if you well, Witten, Witten gets appeared. a pass on which aspect? Uh, the string uh, theory? Well, yeah, that M theory is correct. I mean, here's well, let me just say Hawking. Hawking gets the ultimate pass. Hawking would say things like M theory. There's zero evidence for it. I mean, there's the famous meme that went around this weekend, like, what is string theory predicted? And it's nothing. And by the way, that's actually wrong. I talked to Kamran. I know you talked to Kamran. Kamran says that string theory does make predictions. It predicts the mass of the electron lies between 10 to the minus 1 Planck mass and 10 to the minus 30 Planck mass. Okay, whatever. You know, our electron mass. It's a big range. It's a huge range. Is that Imagine Kamran comes up, and again, he's just some nobody, but he actually, you know, he doesn't have a profile. He's not at Harvard. Has zero H index or whatever Eric's is. 
Why do we not like, in other words, why are we more harsh on people that are that are well, trying? You know the answer to that. <laughs> so I get a, a million emails, just like you said, you yourself, where they prove an eye, in my world, it's artificial intelligence. So it's the, the, the equivalence of that uh, is I figured out how to build consciousness, how to engineer intelligence, how to, and, and uh, sometimes- You should send your emails to me and I'll send my emails and to you. And we'll reply to you. I mean, I and I don't want to sort of mock this no, because I think either. it's very possible that there is either kernels of interesting ideas or in whole, like there is geniuses out there that are unheard, but the, the because there's so much noise, you do have to weigh uh, like uh, higher the Ed Wittens of the world when they make statements. And that's why you build up a track record. As you said with Ray Dalio, you have to show that you can, uh, like uh, if you're Pollock and you show us a painting of a bunch of chaos, you have to, and this is a bad example probably because he probably never showed this proof. I don't proof. think he could do it, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. It's it's masters. much more com it's much more comforting to see that they can paint a good a, a accurate picture still life of still life of an apple on the table <laughs> so there there's meteorite at a time because then I mean um, uh, because then th th there's something about the scientific community that they have perhaps an oversensitive bullshit sensor to where they're not going to give the full effort of their attention if you don't have the track record. Now, you could say that's a kind of club that only you have to like, you have to have 10, you have to have this, yes, that exists, but there's some aspect in which you have to play the game a little bit to get the machine of science going. Otherwise, if you're um, always saying, well, I'm a, I have my ball and I don't wanna play your game, your game sucks, right. then nobody's gonna wanna play with you. That's true in there. It Look, inherent in all of this is an underlying grandiosity. Look, how could you talk about yeah. doing what Kaku said on on here and elsewhere? You know, we're looking for the umbilical cord that connects our universe <laughs> to another universe yeah. that will then reveal in a one-inch equation that will surely win a Nobel Prize, the mind of God. The... That's like a prerequisite, I guess, to tackle these questions. I think it's, it's detrimental. I think doing that... First of all, I think there's an element of almost snarkiness because none of these scientists are believing, you know, uh, Gnostics. Or the, they're, they're not theists, right? So they're using it as kind of a stand-in. And they'll always talk about Einstein didn't, he was like a Spinoza and he wasn't, a, you know, a theist. God uh, doesn't play dice. God doesn't play yeah, dice. Yeah, Einstein's mentions of God, yeah. Yeah, and then um, Stephen Hawking says, if when we come, uh, we get M theory understood, we'll know the mind of God. Uh, that's the title of, of Kaku's book, The God Particle, The God Equation. It, it you know, do any of them really believe in God? Now, now, is that a prerequisite? No, I'm not saying that. But um, but the point being, you're talking about something that has to do with God, right? I mean, where else do you go from there? I mean, I, I think God for now enjoys a little bit more, you know, kind of uh, PR than Elon or Joe or whatever, right? So, so like, it's far, you know, God's got a pretty good, you know, H index himself. He has a, by the way, a Twitter account, <laughs> just so you know, it's pretty <laughs> yes, good. The tweets you're... of God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the right. Tweet of God. Um, so if you look at that, um, you have to go in there. Again, you have to go in with some swagger. You have to have a little bit of, of arrogance, but you should, I agree, mix with a little bit of humility. So he's doing something. He comes from outside of academia. Now, if he rails against, I'm talking about Eric now. If he's just railing, oh, the system, and I'm not going to publish because F that, and that's only created by, by greedy journals, I, I don't think he's doing himself any favors. On the other hand, if he's shopping it, if he's talking it, if he's, if he's willing to expose it 
to, uh, to, to criticism and to even embrace people who may not have the purest intentions perhaps, but in the sense of, of like, they're, they're not arguing solely to get to the truth with a capital T. What they're trying to do is take down air. You know, hopefully those aren't, those people aren't out there. But on the other hand, looking at what Eric does for other people, looking at the fact that he has courtesy, he will look at Wolfram. He will look at Lisi, who's one of his closest friends. I mean, he calls him as uh, as his aunt, not his aunt. nemesis. The nemesis, right? Right. Yeah. And I think that's interesting that they're loving friends. I really friends. enjoyed that portal conversation yeah. between Gary Lisi. Uh, Eric Eric is torn about that conversation because I guess <laughs> because of the nemesis of the beautiful dance of minds playing with these ideas yeah. of theories of everything. And some of these things, you know, look so fundamentally. Now, I may disagree with him, uh, Eric, on a different aspect, which is the only one I'm capable. But let me say one thing, which is experimental. But but let me say one thing. I understand probably a third of what Eric's talking about with GU. I understand, you know, GR. I understand mathematics. I understand some group theory, fi fiber bone. I, I can get a little of it, the age theory. Um, but I, I also understand what I don't understand. And I understand that there are people like Witten, Maldesena, uh, Nima, other people that, that can understand it. And they're not trying to understand it. Sabina, she can understand it. She makes all these, you know. Oh, I don't understand it. I don't want to understand it. I don't have time. And then she makes a video, a music video, you know, kind of mocking <laughs> Eric and Steven and Garrett. Yeah. I'm like, oh, you have a time to do. And I love Sabina and I've, I've actually promoted my show on her and, and, I, and I love her and she's doing a wonderful job. But you have a video that you said yourself takes eight weeks to produce from start to finish and you couldn't have spent, you know, 30 minutes, two hours. I, Brian Keating, have done it as an experimental cosmologist. And I have enough to say, like, this is interesting. It's part of the Assayer Project. And it actually, I shouldn't say that there are no people. They're very serious. Louis uh, uh, um, Alvarez Gomez at SUNY Stony Brook, Simon Center for Geometrical Physics. Yeah, so he and I are running this this uh, seminar. Hopefully, this summer we're going to reenact the famous Shelter Island conferences in the 19, uh, 1900s, where you know Feynman got together and they calculated the Lamb shift and all. But what did that feature? The harmony, the resonant minds behind the best experimentalist in cosmology, particle physics, condensed matter physics is now teaching us tremendous things about uh, you know lower dimensional systems that can be applied. Um, uh, theorists and experimentalists, observers, cosmologists, we all will get together and we're just gonna do it out of a spirit of love. But if it's just like, oh, this guy's like a loud man, I don't have time for that. I really don't. I don't, I don't yeah. think it's interesting way to spend my time. There's a aspect that I hope to see and it goes back to our sort of um, discussion with, about Joe Rogan. I do hope to see sort of love and humility in the presentation, like let go of this kind of fear of your ideas being stolen and the ego that's inherent to the scientific pursuit. And um, right. uh, now that everybody is established and known entities, let go of that a little bit so we can explore and celebrate ideas. I would love to see more of that. Yeah. Just like as you're saying, mm -hmm. especially with these big ideas of yeah. theories of everything. And I've talked, I mean, he, this isn't talking tales out of school, but I mean, he has made claims that I fundamentally disagree with, you know, in terms of like, you know, he's had this Twitter baiting, you know, loving trolling of Elon. You know, why are you spending all this money to get to Mars? You know, we should be spending money on interdimensional travel and we can unlock it if we, and I said to him like, and he makes the point, you know, that, oh, the atomic theory, you know, that unleashed the nuclear age and uh, and that, you know, could lead to planetary destruction. Um, but I make the point pushing back with love on him. And I say, look, nobody looked into the equations, you know, like Fermi didn't like look into all these equations of, of the unification, which still doesn't exist, by the way. We spend all this time, Lex, and I don't know why it is. It's a phenomenon purely in theoretical physics. People are looking for the toe 
and they're overlooking the gut. In other words, they're spending all this time on the theory of everything, the God equate, and there's this gut that unifies the three stronger forces. We don't have a single theory for that. And people like Lash out, they've tried and failed at it. Yeah, for people who don't know, there's four forces, gut, grant, unification theories that unifies the three forces stuff and done trying to get a shortcut to the theory of everything, which unifies the four. Um, and then there's this whole thing that maybe quantum gravity is not even a thing. Right. So <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're, we're, we're trying to solve um, we're trying to solve the puzzle of everything at the physics level. And then already before solving it, already saying, once we solve it, here's going to be all the beautiful- Or just like level machines. jumping it. Yeah. Going to level you know, 256. 10 x and mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I suppose you need that kind of ego, that confidence, uh, that ambition in order to even have a chance at some of these- The problems. only two people in this book of nine Nobel laureates who told me they don't have the imposter syndrome were two theorists, Frank Wilczek and Sheldon Glashow. And, you know, Frank is a pretty interesting. I, I know eventually we're going to talk about the meaning of life, but you talk about Frank. Frank invented this theory along with his advisor and, and another, a third uh, person in the early 1970s, which from 1974, three, when he was at Princeton, all the way up until 2004, when he won the Nobel Prize, every day of his life. Imagine this, Lex. You're going to have this startup. Someone tell, actually, someone tells you you're going to win the lottery. You're going to win the lottery in 40 years. What becomes your singular focus in your life from now until the next 40 years? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, would it be winning the lottery or if I'm so I'm confident? You're guaranteed to win a lottery? Yeah. There's this, here's this wallet, Bitcoin wallet. It's going to guarantee to have this much money. It's yeah. stable coin, whatever. <laughs> uh, you're going to win it 40, but you have to wait 40 years. To me, it would be surviving for the next 40 years. You wouldn't leave your house. You would cover it, go out in a bubble wrap hat. You wouldn't go out without <laughs> 20 masks on, right? Oh, your God. whole life would be consumed with. Now imagine everyone's telling you you're going to win the Nobel Prize, which is bigger than the lottery. I mean, many prizes are worth more than the Nobel Prize. And every person who wins a prize that's worth three times the money, like Maldacena, he would trade the breakthrough prize yeah. for a Nobel Prize in a heartbeat. So these guys had to wait 40 years. Imagine the excruciating pain. What got him through it? He didn't feel like he didn't deserve it. He felt like, hell yeah, I earned it. He has that swagger. And what I'm looking for in this asset is to try to find ways that we can test stuff now, because I, I don't know if I'm going to be here in 40 years. I hope I am. But can we bypass, can we get shortcuts, what's called the low energy regime? And to me, that's that's what's interesting. Like, what can we do now? I don't care. Like Isaac Newton came up with color theory and he did something really interesting. Next time I come, I'll bring you some prisms. So what did he do? He took a white light, he took a prism from the sun actually. He put it through a slit, put it through a prism and it made a beautiful rainbow like you've seen. And then he took another prism and he put it upside down, like, you know, dark side of the moon or whatever. And the t- light went through the first prism, turned into a rainbow and then it, the rainbow went into a prism and came out a white light. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. Then he took a popsicle stick or whatever, it's probably, you know, pipe tobacco, and, and he put it in the beam, like blocked out the orange, and it didn't make white light come out. So he showed like colors a synthesis. It's a combination. He didn't use like uh, the Large Hadron Collider to do that. You know, he used a very low energy experiment to prove a unification in this color physics and a different kind of color physics than in quantum chromodynamics. But nevertheless, can we find things like that? Are we spending way too much time and energy thinking about the future circular collider, which even if it gets built, will cost $30 billion just to build? By the way, anytime from now on, if I leave you with anything, anytime an experimental physicist tells you a number, always double it, maybe triple it. How much is it going to cost? To operate it. 
So like, do we build an aircraft carrier to build an aircraft carrier? Do we build a nuclear reactor, a semiconductor facility? And the rule of thumb that works pretty well in project management is it costs about 10% per year to operate a given object of sufficient complexity. And in this case, so in 10 years, it'll cost double the cost. So never believe a number, whether it's from our mutual friend, Harry, or whoever, don't believe the number, double it, and then say, is it worth it? And so building a solar system size accelerator, even if it were possible, do we have to do that? Or can we use these two 30 solar mass objects colliding together to test the, um, the number of large extra spatial dimensions? Can we do that? People are working on it. I think it's fascinating. So focus on building detectors. Experiments. Uh, that, like, <laughs> where the cosmos is part of the experiment, I suppose. Yeah. That's doing the hard work. Because when you're saying low energy regime, because for some of these, especially big questions like theories of everything, you need some high energy events. And so somehow figure out how the high energy events that are already happening out there, Here's how the to example. leverage them yeah. to understand uh, uh, here on Earth. So one of the alternative theories of uh, cosmology that is not singular quantum gravitational requiring as the Big Bang and inflation are, is uh, are these bouncing models. Some of them uh, feature a similar kind of entity called a quantum field. And that quantum field in the initial stages of the universe of our current after the bounce, which is not a singularity, it compresses to a classical kind of rebound and the universe starts expanding. During that process, um, the expansion is governed by what's called a scalar field of which we only know one that exists that's called the Higgs boson. Higgs is a scalar um, fundamental particle, fundamental field. Um, that field then later does double duty, and it, it becomes dark energy. So it solves two problems. And I'm not saying it's correct. We don't know yet. But are there observations of – and so dark energy is manifest today. It's manifest in, in properties we see in supernova explosions, um, et cetera, et cetera. We see the effects of accelerating universe caused by presumably dark energy. Is dark energy a constant, or does it vary? That has to vary in order for this theory to be true because that eventually has to decay so that the universe can uh, not support itself and collapse again, again, classically. So we could use low-energy phenomena. It's hard to think of supernova as being a low-energy phenomenon, but we use that as a tracer of the cosmic expansion field and see, does it change or is it a constant? That's an example of a low-energy limit to prove a high-energy phenomenon like this collapsing universe in the cyclic model. Speaking of things that cost a lot but are super exciting... Yeah. Uh, page two. Oh, crap. <laughs> no, we're, we're, we'll wrap it up. No. Calm, calm down. This is, this is, there's more than page two. <laughs> what do you think this is? This is a uh, thesis. <laughs> Actually, well, Louis de Broglie's thesis was three pages long, and he won the Nobel Prize for the wave particle duality. So, you know, size matters in different dimensions in life. I think the, the lessons I've learned about life is the shorter the paper or the shorter the thesis. Uh, actually, the shorter the paper, some of the greatest papers ever written are short. Like I, I feel like uh, some of the best ideas in this world, now, not to sound like a contradiction of Feynman, a, a contradiction on top of a contradiction, but it could be written on a napkin, honestly. Um, it, which just kind of what tells you something about ideas. Um, what are your thoughts about uh, the James Webb Space Telescope? Um, is this as somebody who likes telescopes, and this is one of the, I think it says, um, it took 20 years to build $9.7 billion. Is that way too much, too little? Are you excited about this thing? 
it's it's sufficiently different from what I do in my field that it's incredibly interesting to me because it's 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 I have no you know horse in that race, and so I'm not competing with them for time or money or resources or people or whatever. So I can purely be uh, an advocate and an aficionado of science. It is, in some sense, the successor to Hubble. It will do things that Hubble can't do. Um, it will also may or may not have the impact on a visceral kind of artistic level that Hubble had. What are some of the most iconic things that Hubble did? The Hubble Ultra Deep Field, the pillars of creation, you know, storms and and, and imaging and of these twisted deep galaxy, deep sky galaxies. Those resonated with the public. Just visually, they were beautiful. Visually, yeah. When you look at um, these images, the Hubble Ultra Deep Field, you'll maybe put that in, uh, you'll show every speck of light except for one, 4,000 blobs of light. There's one star in our galaxy, the rest are galaxies. Now, that image is less than one-tenth of your fingernail held out at arm's length. It contains 4,000 galaxies. So now you can figure out how many galaxies there are in the whole sky just by seeing how long does it take you to move your fingernail over the whole sky. So we have another couple of hours. No, so it comes out to be, that's how we get 500 billion or more galaxies. Now, it's not exact to the galaxy, but it's 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 a good order of magnitude estimate, maybe even better. Um, Hubble produced that, and it was basically serendipitous. They pointed to some dark, blank piece of sky, what they thought was blank, and they saw it. Same thing that happened with the CMB. They were looking for something they didn't find. Same thing they found when they were looking for the deceleration of the universe and found it was accelerating. Um, so what I um, sometimes hear is that we don't know what we're going to discover. I never think that's a good idea to spend billions of dollars on something. Like you should have some guaranteed low-hanging fruit <clears throat> and then there should be swinging for the fences. And I think in this case, it was really everything is swinging for the fences because it's either, it's kind of a single point failure. If that telescope, which is this origami construction of 22 hexagonal panels that have to unfold properly and then orient themselves a million miles from Earth beyond the Earth-Moon distance by a factor of four and, and still transmit telecommunic you know, uh, telecommunication back to the Earth, get solar energy, keep it away from the sun. You, know, you don't want to look through uh, the telescope of the sun with your remaining good eye. And you do that and you cover, it's going to be phenomenal I, I, um, for science, for sure, if it works. <laughs> There are a lot of people think, you know, it's so risky. It's such, NASA sunk so much of their budget. It ate up, you know, and what if it does fail? I mean, there's no guarantee. Yes, it's insured, but so what? You're not going to get back those 20 years of people. Well, let's start building it again. Like they didn't build two copies of it. Um, and so, then if it fails, it kind of has a dampening effect on the prospects and the inspiration of the public for the what science can do, what science engineering can yeah. do is out in space. It will make a huge impact scientifically. Let's hope for the best. Let's assume it does succeed. It's launched in a couple of weeks. And um, and when it does, it will transform our understanding of, you know, we just discovered not only like extrasolar planets that have moons on them and asteroid belt. We discovered an extrasolar planet in another galaxy. Mm. This will be able to see crazy stuff like that, spectroscopy, imaging. Um, but but it's and it'll be able to go back farther in time such that we will be doing cosmology. Like Hubble did some cosmology and measured the Hubble constant. That was its key project when it was designed and launched. Um, but because it is an optical telescope, it's sensitive to more, you know, close-in redshifts, so shorter distances. Now, James Webb is much, much higher redshift. It can probe the darker, deeper, distant universe. Okay, let's talk about not the distant universe, but the, our neighboring planets. First, I got to ask you about the moon. Um, so there's a there's a piece of the moon on this table yes. that you've given me yes. uh, that we didn't have to pick up that arrived here. 
That's right. So how did a piece of the moon arrive here on Earth? So this chunk of the moon, if it were delivered by uh, the Apollo and NASA missions, uh, you and I would be guilty of a felony right now because it's illegal to own pieces of the moon collected by the Apollo astronauts. So don't even joke about that when you go over to Houston. This piece of moon rock was delivered via the old-fashioned way by gravity. So this was a uh, chunk of the moon, which is blasted off because the moon gets bombarded by asteroids and meteoroids. Some of them eject material from the surface of the moon into space. And it will then orbit the common uh, moon-Earth system. And it will then eventually enter our atmosphere. And if the piece is large enough and the trajectory is proper, it can land intact. And this one landed with a few uh, hundred grams worth, and they sliced it up. And then it was delivered via U.S. Postal Service to, to my house. So you can buy these pieces. And actually, you can buy a piece of Mars. You can buy a piece of Mars delivered by the same route. Now, what's so interesting about that? Well, if a piece of Mars can get here, a piece of Earth can get there. If some piece of Earth has some life forms on it, it could get there. And if that can happen in our solar system, it could happen throughout the galaxy. So I'm actually not of the opinion that there is life elsewhere in the universe, <laughs> at least technological life that we can, can see. I see this look of horror on your face. Um, I view it, <laughs> I am personally extremely pessimistic, would be extremely surprised. I'm, I'm just, I'm curious by the transition because you just said that life could have arrived from Mars or like from planet to planet by because of the meteorite striking it and so on. Yeah. And then you went to... You don't think there there might be life out there in the universe? Technological life. Technological life. Yeah. Adv uh, yeah advanced intelligent civilizations. Okay. Uh, yeah, okay. So go on. <laughs> yeah. So that's a the generalization of what uh, the famous astronomer Fred Hoyle called. I, I know this is a PG thirteen pocket. It's called panspermia. Mm. Panspermia. And, uh, beep that out, please. Yeah, yeah, please. And uh, that's the exchange of of uh, you know, genetic life form material from other reaches on Earth, which explains the origin of life on Earth, but not the origin of life itself, which I think is a much grander mystery and much more interesting. How did life get here? And you've talked with many eminent people about that. Um, I'm not going to add that much, but but just thinking about the reverse process. Let's say life started on the Earth somehow uh, and then made its way out into the universe. Is there enough time for the whatever material went from Earth via panspermic direction you know, spraying the love gun out into the universe, did that then have enough time to incubate and go onto a planet that could support it? Certainly not within our solar system, which traveling at the meteorite speeds would require, you know, hundreds of millions of years. Then looking at the evolutionary history from bacteria to Bach, from, you know, rocks to Rachmaninoff. I don't know, I can do this all day. Oh, wow, that's pretty good. How do you get from those you know, very simple inanimate objects to life? I just simply think there's not enough time for Earth to seed life, technological life throughout the galaxy. I don't think there's any evidence for that. But, so you, you really think that the origin of, of life on Earth is a really special event? Yeah, if it did originate on Earth. My question for those that search for life outside the Earth is what if you had a letter from God? And the letter said, um, life didn't originate on Earth. Like, would you choose a different profession? Like, it, se it would seem hopeless. Like, in other words, we only have a sample of one. In fact, we only know of one conscious life form, let alone one planet that has life on it, right? But what if you knew for sure it didn't start here? That means that, like, there's almost nothing about Earth that is... Um, originated. It didn't originate the life process. So to study purely the origin of life, not life itself, I think that's still fascinating. But how could we learn about 
you know, the origin of, of remember, you have to go from inanimate object to a living object, whatever that definition of life is. And I'm not an expert in you know, many definitions, Max, Sarah, you know, many different uh, definitions. But but how do you actually go from, from, from inanimate to animate? It's a huge question. Yeah, but then you don't have to be the place where life originated yeah. to replicate the origin or to under, like, uh, yeah, that's one way to understand something is mm -hmm. to uh, build it. Yeah. But another way is to just observe it. You don't have to truly re, uh, re-engineer re from scratch. It, yeah. <laughs> so I, I, you know, I, but then yes, if it didn't originate on earth, then your intuitions about the basic prerequisites of life are, are yeah. off. What's the governing principle? Right. Like may, what is, um, and then you could have just an, almost an arbitrary number of possible, like if life didn't start on earth, so to me, that's exciting because it's like, we know even less than we thought. <laughs> the thing is it can prosper on earth though. Yeah. So maybe the origin of life is fundamentally different from the, the maintenance of life. Right, and maybe maybe the existence of the earth life symbiosis is critical. I think Sarah, and you talked about Sarah Walker, um, that it's a planetary phenomenon, et cetera, et cetera. So, doesn't that make it less like, in other words, like not only do you need special life conditions to create life, but then sustenance of life, as you say, that also has to be maintained under very specific circumstances by very specific planets and with very specific tectonic activity and moon. And by the way, you need a Jupiter nearby. You need an earth and a moon system so that you don't get bombarded too early. And I always think like this, like technological life, I haven't said this before really, so I'm just speaking. I usually like to write down before I say it's different thing. But one of the things I thought about Somebody is- Somebody hosts a podcast. <laughs> you should probably accept the fact that you're going to say stupid things every once in a while. Not every once in a while, every <laughs> while. I claim that, you know, to get to sending, you know, people to the moon, you know, our planet needed whales and, and dinosaurs, right? Like you don't make a solar panel from another solar panel. Like you made a solar panel from a factory that melted down glass, silica, you know, aluminum, extruded that using fossil fuels. Where do those fossil fuels come from? Like, so any civilization that's going to be a Dyson, you know, a Kardashev, uh, do they have dinosaurs? Like, do they have like prebiotic life? Do they have a great oxygenation event? Did they have a dif dimorphism between prokaryotic, eukaryotic? All those hurdles, let's say you give each one, let's say there's eight hurdles. And each one of those has a probability of one in a thousand to go from, you know, uh, eukaryotic, prokaryotic, whatever. Let's say that's a one in a thousand chance. I think it's like one in 10 to the 40th or whatever, if you really do it. But let's say it's first generous nature, one in 10 to the three. Let's say there's eight of those hurdles. That means you have you know, 10 to the, to the, uh, to the 24th power, <laughs> uh, different uh, pr uh, possibility. And that's just with eight. Like the moon has to be there. Jupiter has to be there. Dinosaurs had to be there. All the different things that we have to get to technological life. There's only 10 to the, only, there's 10 to the 22nd, we think, Earth, not Earth, uh, planets in the observable universe, not the galaxy. So that's 100 times fewer than the probability <laughs> to get, you know, 100% clearing these eight very low hurdles of one in a thousand. That's fascinating, because now I really need to listen to your conversation with Lee Cronin, who I believe you had, yeah, because he believes the opposite. Yes, I know. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> want to have a debate with him. He, he, belie he believes uh, that the the way biology evolved on Earth could have evolved almost an infinite number of other ways. So like if you ran Earth over and over and over, you would keep getting life and it would be very different. So it's the, the fact that our 
particular life seems unique is just like, well, because every freaking life is going to seem unique, but you know, it'll be very different. It's not like we shouldn't be asking the question of what's the likelihood of getting a human-like thing? Mm. Uh, it, because that seems to be super special. It's more like, um, <laughs> how easy is it to make <laughs> slime mold? A, a, anything that has the skills of a human. And, and I don't mean like something with thumbs, but achieving basically a technological civilization. And according to Lee, at least it's, it's like, it's it's trivial. I know we we fought. A, I fought a little bit. I'd love to debate him. I think it'd be a lot of fun because we debate with love. When I talk yeah. with Lee, I love him and he loves me. I think, I hope. But let me ask you a question. I asked this of him and Sarah on a clubhouse once. So, what do you think would happen the next day? Let's say we discover life. It's Proxima Centauri B. It's um, it looks just like slime mold, like you got on your you know brie cheese or whatever. We discover it. What would happen the next day? And they were like, oh, this would be transformative. And, and, and I'm not trying to be like, you know, total Cassandra about this, but I said, I don't think anything would happen. And I'm like, what are you talking about? It would be transformational. I'm like, I stipulate that life exists. Go down to like the river, you know, I'm in San Diego, go down to the Pacific Ocean, scoop up a glass, mm -hmm. you know, um, you're going to find life in there. And what are we doing? What are we doing to our earth? We're destroying it callously. We're like, pumping crap into there. Like we have this toxic waste spill a couple of months ago in San Diego. I couldn't go to the beach. What, what, let me take it a step further. Do you know how many, well, you know how many people, I'm sorry that you do know, but how many people died in the 20th century? Killed. These are advanced civils. This isn't slime mold. We kill, we maim, we harm, we hurt, we hate. I don't think anything would happen the next day. Then we go back to what we had. And I said, if that weren't proof enough, life has been discovered at least two or three times just in my professional career. Once in 1996, these Allen Land Hills meteorites in Antarctica, this, uh, like microbial respiration processes. Still, we don't know. It was a press conference held by Bill Clinton on the White House lawn that's featured in the movie Contact. Um, repurposed for that movie. And um, and then there's uh, and then there's this um, the, this phosphorus life this this toxic life in the pools of Mono Lake, many you know extremophile. We don't give a crap. We continue to so why are we thinking that like our salvation from whence will our salvation come as the Bible says? Like it's not going to change how we are. It's not going to magnify how I treat you or you treat me. And and we're pretty knowledgeable people, you and I, compared to you know lay people. Uh, okay, that's interesting. That's a really interesting argument. I I wonder if you're right, but I, my intuition is, uh, I can, I can maybe present a different argument that you can think about in the realm of things you care about even deeper, which is like what happens once we figure out the origins of the universe. Like, how would that change your life? Yeah. I would I, I would say there are certain discoveries that even in their very idea will change the fabric of society. I tend to see if there's definitive proof that there's life and the more complex, the more powerful that uh, idea is no, elsewhere, that I'm not exactly sure how it will change society um, because it's such a slap in the face. <laughs> it's like a, such a humbling force or maybe not, or maybe it's a motivator to say, um, yeah, I don't know which force would take over. Maybe it would be governments with military uh, start to think like, well, how, how do we kill it? <laughs> if there's a lot of life out there, how do we create the defenses? How do we extract it? Or or yeah, or, yeah, or yeah. mine it for mm -hmm. uh, for benefits. All those, I mean, yeah. I just see like uh, there's a hundred million literal counterexamples of that. I mean, right now there's like like seven 
hundred million kids in poverty. And like, we just, how do we go about our life and just not deal with that? I mean, I look, I put it aside. I eat hamburgers and, I, you know, in a hundred years I'll be canceled for being a, you know, a carnivore or whatever. But, you know, so obviously to get through life, you have to make certain compromise. You're not going to think about certain things. But I, I, I just think there is a sort of wish fulfillment. Like every time there's water, why are we going to Mars and digging and flying this cool ass helicopter? I'm, mm-hmm. We're looking for water. Like stipulate that water was there. Like, I believe there was water. I think we should investigate and see what the geology was like. But but don't you think, so, so you're saying- I don't think you're going to get meaning from it. That's all I'm saying. I, I, I'm not saying it's not worth doing. I'm, I'm just saying there's a wish fulfillment aspect that people will find meaning for life from science. Okay, but there's a, there's a complicated line here. What, what if it's this intelligent civilization living, obviously- probably not on Mars, but somewhere like uh, in a neighboring galaxy that we, uh, sorry, in, 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 a na- in a neighboring star system. star system that we discover, don't you think that had a profound change in meaning? I mean, I guess, again, I assume that because of this panspermic process or whatever, that the probability is much, much greater than zero. I mean, it's not one, 100%, but it's, it's much likelier than not that at least some living material from Earth has ejaculated itself into the solar system, into the universe, right? Into our galaxy. Beep that, please. (laughs) (laughs) As well. That's right. So I, like, the fact that that could happen and that you're holding a piece, you know, from a planetary body, one that couldn't support life as far as we know, uh, but I could give, next time, if, if 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 you play nice and you come on my podcast someday, I will give you a tiny chunk of Mars. So Mars theoretically could support stuff, right? Moving on up. So yeah, so I believe that there's there could be remnants of Earth in this. So so that means there could be evolution. I don't think there's any chance that there's like you know people using iPhones and having podcasts and stuff in in Proxima no, there's, Centauri. There's so much some chance though, right? So, uh, uh, so again, it, it, yeah. it's. I it's, think the pro- well, obviously the simple statement to say it's much, much, much higher probability that life exists than technological life exists, right? I don't think we can argue that. Um, it doesn't mean it's forbidden. Again, I'm not saying any of this is forbidden, not worth studying, yeah, not interesting. Just, it's a likelihood thing. Yeah, and to answer your, I think you're w- wise to push back and like, what does it matter what I'm doing? And I like to think about that, you know, because it's like, what is the value of what you're doing? Like, you have to answer that question or else at the end of your life, you'll have these existential, you know, kind of uh, crises, right? So when I think about like who I am, part of my identity is answering and asking scientific questions. For me though, there is a religious kind of undercurrent that does undergird in some sense, this quest. Again, I'm not like a practicing, I'm not like wearing a yarmulke, you know, like I'm not like full on into uh, my birth religion, Judaism. But at the same token, I think as, you know, one of the things Einstein did say is that, you know, religion without science is blind and, uh, or is lame, and uh, science without religion is, is lame, is blind and lame. Anyway, the point is that, like, you can't get meaning, um, you know, from just knowing facts. Like, Wikipedia knows more than all of us will ever know, right? It has no wisdom. You know, wisdom, it means, you know, sapien. The word wisdom in Latin is sapien. We are wise. And by the way, do you know what we're, what is, our real name is Homo sapiens sapien. So it's man who knows that he knows. Do you know what he knows? Do you know what the knowing is? It's that he's going to die. We're the only creatures that know that we are going to die. We don't know when we're going to die. But like, you know, I have a cat, (laughs) a fierce attack cat. It's beautiful. Um, She doesn't know when she's going to die. Doesn't mean I'm more valuable. So the survival, I think I am. the survival instinct is much. It's fundamentally different from like the knowledge. Yeah. Of death, and that's where the Ernest Becker comes in Correct. with the terror of death, Correct. and that that's a creative force 
that um, seems to be more feature than bug <laughs> about the, <laughs> the human condition is that, um, I mean, it's a gift it of, of knowing our own mortality. Um, yeah, to me, I mean, that's that's why, you know, I I agree with you in some sense in terms of the aliens not being a thing that solves all mysteries. Mm-hmm. That's why you know my love has always been the human mind. So understanding uh, who we are, what yeah. the hell are we? And I think your love has been an echo of that, which is where did we come from? Yeah, or basically, as as cheesy as it sounds, you know. Uh, Michio Kaku has a way with words. I, if if oh, you yeah. if you can just like enjoy the, uh, you know, oh, what, he speaks in complete. He's like Sam Harris of cosmology. I mean, he speaks he, in complete paragraphs. But like, also unapologetically, he says, you know, we will know God, or we will know the mind of God, or whatever the quotes, those kinds of mm-hmm. things. That's exciting. That physics might be able to find equations that unlock our origins yeah. at the at the very core and like the fabric of it all too not just our origins you know what's up you know what's at the beginning um something tells me we're too dumb to truly understand mm-hmm. what's at the beginning but i think we we should be humble in that way i mean again another thing is you know you ever hear the saying like we share 99 percent of our dna with chimps or bonobos or whatever mm-hmm. i share like probably more than that it, you know sometimes i wish we shared like a hundred percent like that'd be so much more interesting <laughs> like we, oh well, there's 50 percent of a fruit fly or banana like we yeah. no no no. there's something but that should make us feel more precious and i almost feel like discovering life on another planet whatever solar system would cause a diminution of humanity. Like the one thing I do hold fast to from religion, I don't know where I am with God. Like, do I believe in God? I think that's an unanswerable question. Um, but but I, I have some thoughts about it. But by the, by the same token, I think the one thing I do get from religion is that every human has infinite worth because we are in a religious capacity considered to be equal to God. In other words, we are gods not to be like, you know, but we can contemplate what God did. We have aspects of God. We have free will. God had free will. Uh, if he exists, again, I can't prove that God exists. Otherwise, you wouldn't have any credit well, for believing in, in God. This is interesting. I mean, this, this, it's like I'm talking to Einstein here, but let me ask anyway. Can you clip that for my clips, John? <laughs> for somebody who's looking at the young universe, at the early universe, and are talking about God and are agnostic, who do you think is God? Hmm. So I thought you had just like one of the best podcasts with Sam Harris this past summer. And um, one of the things I liked about that conversation is he talked a lot about happiness and meditation. And he said something that's really resonated with me and I've been working it around and trying to work on it my own way. But he said like, you can never... You can never be happy, you can only become happy. And I've tried to take it a little bit further than that, because I think it's it's interesting, like meditation is like, you're not like, oh, I, I'm happy and now like, oh, my kid came in and now I'm not happy. They're like, no, like you can be satisfied. Kurt Vonnegut said like, some, you ever catch this sometimes, Lex, you're like walking around, you're like, life is freaking amazing, mm-hmm. like I'm happy. And Kurt Vonnegut said, you should say to yourself every time that happens, like a little mantra, like, if this isn't goodness, if this isn't happiness, nothing is. Mm-hmm. Just remind yourself how mm-hmm. awesome it is, every breath, everything that you do, when you make an impact, even some of the bad stuff that happens, good, it's mm-hmm. good. So Sam said that, 
And it made me think, because I was like, well, what does it really mean to, to be happy? Uh, because like, I can think of, um, I can think of about, you know, two or three ways that right now I could double my happiness. You know, like win the lottery or whatever, like I could double my happiness. There's only a few ways though, right? Like, you know, I had uh, um, this this kind of thought, like, how many boats can you water ski behind? <laughs> like, you had twice as many followers. Now you got 2 million followers, 5 million, whatever. It doesn't do anything. It's called the hedonic treadmill. Like, once you get to a certain level, it takes a lot more, you know, change in followers, money, impact, women, whatever you want to make you have one more quanta of happiness, right? On the other hand, this is a concept from entropy. I could make your life miserable in it infinite number of ways. In other words, there's more space space to make your life unhappy than happy. And so I thought about that in the context of what Sam said about happiness. Um, so it, it's sort of like, yeah, it's an expression of entropy. And that what you should be doing in life is doing that which will cause you devastation if it goes away. Because those are the things that like are where you're reducing entropy, like a kid, like anyone who's a parent, knows instantly what I'm talking about, like how to make your life a billion times worse. But there's no way to make your life a billion times better. And so thinking about that, now turning it to the question of God's existence, I feel like there's no way that you can believe in God, to quote, misquote Sam, but there's ways that you can become a believer in God. In other words, you could increase the Bayesian confidence level that there is some and let's not call it God because that's a freighted term. Let's just call it some infinite source of goodness or our beautiful power in the universe, right? Mm. Simple things can do that. You can increase your credulity in the goodness of life. And we have this bias as humans towards negativity, negativity bias, well-known fact. So what I want to do is, is it, let's call God good, right? That's where it comes from. God, good, same words in German. And when we think about what is good, let's do those things that would devastate us. And a lot of that could be relationships. And there's a powerful concept from, um, from network theory, which is that, you know, the number of connections in a network, you know, I'm just saying it for you, it grows as the square of the elements in the matrix and the number, right? So you think of a matrix with N people, you know, person one, two, three, four, and then there's four other people. There's 16 different pairs, but two, half of them overlap. The diagonal is where you know each other, you know yourself. <laughs> so there's, but that still grows as N squared. So those connections increase and decrease, right? Like, you ever have two friends that are fighting? And like, you're kind of upset, even though you're not fighting with either one of them. So like a network grows like that. So you want to increase your network as much as possible, but only the kind of high quality interstices between them. And I think in doing so, you 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 make yourself fragile, not anti-fragile. And I think that is where purpose and maybe approaching some notion of God can come from. So that is a source of meaning, maximizing the goodness in life and the way you know it's good is if it's taken away, it would devastate you. That's one way. Think about it, your brand, your business, your spouse, your kids. I mean, parents can't contemplate. I've, I've known parents that have lost. Jim Simons, here's a perfect example. He's one of my oldest friends and mentors. He is one of the richest people on earth. Gulfstream, mega yacht. <laughs> this is all documented, books about him. Um, he lost two sons as adults. And I hear people say, oh, I'm so jealous of Jim Simons. Would you take everything? I don't know where he has that strength 
and his wife, Marilyn, and his first wife, Barbara. I'm not, I'm not like that. Uh, some people are, there are angels that walk among us. And, you know, I, there's this famous prayer. It's like, you know, uh, God, you know, there's, there's an old saying that like one of the hardest tests there are in life is to be given a lot of money. And you see it like happens with like lawyer, like people that win the lottery or whatever, or NFL football players after their career's over, they get, they're broke, right? And I always go like, God, please test me with money. You know, that'd be great. But, but in reality, you should never say I'm going to, I want what X person has, unless you're willing to take everything. And you'll find you won't want to take everything. Yeah, um, I think a lot about the altering effects of fame, of money, of power on people. Mm -hmm. I it uh, it blinds people, and and I wonder about that for myself because it seems like in themselves these are definitely not the goals. I'm pretty much afraid. I'm not desirous. And I'm definitely afraid of each of those things, money, fame, and power. Mm -hmm. But it seems the dreams I have as consequences can often have these things. And I'm really afraid of becoming something that would disappoint me when I was younger, that, would, uh, that I wouldn't recognize. You know, because change happens gradually. But are you using yourself as the as the touchstone to use the assay amount, like what is your rubric to, to apprise if you have lived up to that 12 year old, whatever year old Lex, like how will you know or not know if you've let yourself down or like, I always think live to impress yourself. Like, I don't care if I have followers, like it's nice or whatever, but it's hedonic and it's just never ending. Cause you'll always see the next level. But I think it's pretty damn cool that like I've gotten to go to these places, the South Pole, and I've done these things, and I've made a family, and and I'm able to teleport my values into the future yeah. um, through my children, and I've had ideological children that I. So by what metric, you know, have you not already a impressed yourself, and b could you let yourself down? I don't want to turn this into therapy. I, I think some of it is psychology. For me, I'm very much just never. I'm highly self-critical. So that mm -hmm. I'm never happy, never happy with mm -hmm. what I've done. But I'm always happy in the way that you describe, which is <laughs> that uh, the Vonnegut thing, where you just often during the day I will feel I don't know. I just remember just eating um, beef jerky and being truly happy. That was just last night, and I have that all the time. And that to me is why I'm, I mean. That feels to me like a healthy way to live life. And at least for me, it's the one I really enjoy. A lot of people tell me that maybe being so self-critical, so hard on yourself is not a good way to go. But more and more as I get older, I realize it's just who I am. I, you have to at a certain point accept this is how I'm always going to be this self-critical. Yeah. It's like yeah. the Oracle of Delphi, right? You know thyself. But I want to leave you with one last thing, which is to say, just on this topic, you know, it could be different, right? We could go down to the ocean and get some krill instead of the 7-Eleven. You know, it could be that we have no other no other taste buds. And, and you know, Eric's talked to the four dimensions of, you know, the, <laughs> the vibration of your tongue, right? It could be like there's one and it's just like not, you know, Memphis barbecue or whatever you like in your, in your, in your uh, Slim Jim. It could be something, it could be very boring. Similarly, what if like that's a clue? Like, what if that's giving us evidence? Here's another clue. 
we there are many animals. Most animals have single mono monocolor vision. They only see in and in, in, you know black and white intensity. They only have rods and no cones. <clears throat> we could be like that, but we're not. Why is that not a clue? Like if the, like God's not going to like hit you over the head <laughs> and say like here I am because then everybody would believe in him. And there's very simplistic. I've had debates even with like famous atheists like Lawrence Krauss, who's like self declared militant atheist. And I was like, well, I don't believe in the same God you don't believe in. Like some guy in a white beard in a chair, like that's infantile. Like I gave that away a long time ago. But what if there are clues? What if Yang Mills theory and you know Maxwell's equate? Like what? If, those are beautiful. If you've ever seen like you know expressed in tensor notation, Einstein's equations or or Maxwell's equations, or and then Maxwell's equations riding on uh, Einstein's, it's unbelievably beautiful doesn't have to be that way. That we can comprehend it, that's a crack. Maybe that's where the light gets in. And the light is what reveals what's beautiful. So I, I, I don't believe in God. I think that's a stupid notion. Like, do I believe in God? Like, sometimes I joke, I, I wonder if God believes in me, you know, <laughs> like more than if I believe in it. Like, he needs Brian Keating? Like, you know, uh, what you know, it's like one of my uh, friends is a rabbi. He's like, um, what would I be doing if I were God? Exactly what God's doing right now. Like, you think I know more than God? Give me a break. Leaving <laughs> clues of beauty for yes. uh, for these hairless apes. Yeah, and to see what they do with this, and then marvel at um, at uh, both the tragedy of what the what those apes do to each other, and the the rare moments of uh, when they have when they understand understand deeply about how the world works. Brian, you're an incredible human being. I'm a big fan, and I'm really honored that you was, first of all, shower me with rocks from the moon. <laughs> from space. From space. Space uh, dust. Space the dust. And, um, crystals, and, magical crystals, healing crystals. Yeah. That you can, you can use for good. And tell me your story and spend your really valuable time with me today. This was amazing. That was a great Thanks. pleasure for me, Lex. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Brian Keating. To support this podcast, please check out our sponsors in the description. And now, let me leave you with some words from Galileo Galilei. In questions of science, the authority of a thousand is not worth the humble reasoning of a single individual. Thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.